Chapter 69 Wind or Women's Fancy Over the next two span, my new cloak kept me warm on my occasional walks to Imre, where I was consistently unsuccessful in finding Denna. I always had some reason to cross the river, borrowing a book from Devi, meeting Threp for lunch, playing at the Aeolian, but Denna was the real reason. Kilvin sold the rest of my emitters, and my mood improved as my burns healed. I had money to spare for luxuries such as soap and a second shirt to replace the one I'd lost. Today, I had gone to Imre for some basal filings I needed for my current project, a large sympathy lamp using two emitters I'd saved for myself. I hoped to turn a tidy profit. It may seem odd that I was constantly buying materials for my artificing over the river, but the truth was merchants near the university frequently took advantage of the students' laziness and raised their prices. It was worth the walk for me if I could save a couple of pennies. After I finished my errand, I headed to the Aeolian. Diak was at his usual post, leaning against the doorway. I've been keeping an eye out for your girl, he said. Irritated at how transparent I must seem, I muttered, She's not my girl. Diak rolled his eyes. Fine. The girl. Dena, Diane, Diane, whatever she's calling herself these days. I haven't seen hide nor hair of her. I even asked around a little. Nobody's seen her in a full span. That means she's probably left town. It's her way. She does it at the drop of a hat. I tried not to let my disappointment show. You didn't have to go to the trouble, I said. But thanks all the same. I wasn't asking entirely on your account, Diak admitted. I have a fondness for her myself. Do you now? I said as neutrally as I could manage. Don't give me that look. I'm not any sort of competition. He gave a crooked smile. Not this time around, at any rate. I might not be one of you university folk, but I can see the moon on a clear night. I'm smart enough not to stick my hand in the same fire twice. I struggled to get my expression back under control, more than slightly embarrassed. I don't usually let my emotions go parading around on my face. So you and Denna... Stanchion still gives me a hard time about chasing after a girl half my age. He shrugged his broad shoulders sheepishly. For all that, I am still fond of her. These days she reminds me of my littlest sister more than anything. How long have you known her? I asked, curious. I wouldn't say I really know her, lad. But I met her, what, about two years back? Not that long. Maybe a year and a little change. Diak ran both of his hands through his blonde hair and arched his back in a great stretch, the muscles in his arms straining against his shirt. Then he relaxed with an explosive sigh and looked out at the nearly empty courtyard. The door won't be busy for hours yet. Come, give an old man an excuse to sit and have a drink. He jerked his head in the direction of the bar. I looked at Diak, tall, muscular, and tan. Old man? You've still got all your hair in your teeth, don't you? What are you, thirty? 
Nothing makes a man feel older than a young woman. He laid a hand on my shoulder. Come on, share a drink with me. We made our way over to the long mahogany bar, and he muttered as he looked over the bottles. Beer dulls a memory. Brand sets it burning. But wine is best for a sore heart's yearning. He paused and turned to look at me, his brow furrowed. I can't remember the rest of that. Can you? Never heard it before, I said. But Tecum claims that out of all the spirits, only wine is suited to reminiscence. He said a good wine allows clarity and focus, while still allowing a bit of comforting coloration of the memory. Fair enough, he said, picking through the racks before drawing out a bottle and holding it up to a lamp, peering through it. Let's view her in a rosy light, shall we? He grabbed two glasses and led us off to a secluded booth in the corner of the room. So you've known Denna for a while, I prompted as he poured each of us a glass of pale red wine. He slouched back against the wall. Off and on, more off, honestly. What was she like back then? Diak spent several long moments pondering his answer, giving the question more serious consideration than I'd expected. He sipped his wine. The same, he said at last. I suppose she was younger, but I can't say she seems any older now. She always struck me as being older than her years, he frowned. Not old, really, more mature? I suggested. He shook his head. No. I don't know a good word for it. It's like if you look at a great oak tree. You don't appreciate it because it's older than the other trees, or because it's taller. It just has something that the other younger trees don't. Complexity, solidity, significance. Diak scowled, irritated. Damn if that isn't the worst comparison I've ever made. A smile broke onto my face. It's nice to see I'm not the only one who has trouble pinning her down with words. She's not much for being pinned down, Diak agreed and drank off the rest of his wine. He picked up the bottle and tapped the mouth of it lightly against my glass. I emptied it, and he poured again for both of us. Diak continued. She was just as restless then, and wild, just as pretty prone to startle the eye and stutter the heart. He shrugged again. As I said, largely the same. Lovely voice, light of foot, quick of tongue, men's adoration and woman's scorn in roughly equal amounts. Scorn? I asked. Diak looked at me as if he didn't understand what I was asking. Women hate Denna, he said plainly, as if repeating something we both already knew. Hate her? The thought baffled me. Why? Diak looked at me incredulously, then burst out laughing. Good Lord, you really don't know anything about women, do you? I would ordinarily have bristled at his comment, but Diak was nothing but good-natured. Think of it. She's pretty and charming. Men crowd around her like stags in a rut. He made a flippant gesture. Women are bound to resent it. I remembered what Sim had said about Diak not a span ago. He's managed to get the most beautiful woman in the place again. It's enough to make you hate a man. 
I've always felt she was rather lonely, I volunteered. Maybe that's why. Diak nodded solemnly. There's truth to that. I never see her in the company of other women folk, and she has about as much luck with men as... He paused, groping for a comparison. As... Damn! He gave a frustrated sigh. Well, you know what they say. Finding the right analogy is as hard as... I put on a thoughtful expression. As hard as... I made an inarticulate, grasping gesture. Diak laughed and poured more wine for both of us. I began to relax. There is a sort of camaraderie that rarely exists except between men who have fought the same enemies and known the same women. Did she tend to disappear back then, too? I asked. He nodded. No warning, just suddenly gone. Sometimes for a span, sometimes for months. No fickleness in flight like that of wind or woman's fancy, I quoted. I meant it to be musing, but it came out bitter. Do you have any guess as to why? I've given some thought to that, Diak said philosophically. In part, I think it's her nature. It could be she simply has wandering blood. My irritation cooled a bit at his words. Back in my troop, my father occasionally made us pull up stakes and leave a town despite the fact that we were welcome and the crowds were generous. Later, he would often explain his reasoning to me. A glare from the constable, too many fond sighs from the young wives in town. But sometimes he had no reason. We rue are meant to travel, son. When my blood tells me to wander, I know enough to trust it. Her circumstances are probably responsible for most of it, Dia continued. Circumstances? I asked, curious. She never talked of her past when we were together, and I was always careful not to press her. I knew what it was like not wanting to talk too much about your past. Well, she doesn't have any family or means of support. No long-standing friends able to help her out of a tight spot if the need arises. I haven't got any of those things either, I groused, the wine making me a little surly. There's more than a little difference there, Diak said with a hint of reproach. A man has a great many opportunities to make his way in the world. You found yourself a place at the university, and if you hadn't, you would still have options. He looked at me with a knowing eye. What options are available to a young, pretty girl with no family, no dowry, no home? He began to hold up fingers. There's begging and whoring, or being some lord's mistress, which is a different slice of the same loaf, and we know our Denna doesn't have it in her to be a kept woman or someone's docks. There's other work to be had, I said, holding up fingers of my own. Seamstress, weaver, serving girl. Diak snorted and gave me a disgusted look. Come now, lad, you're smarter than that. You know what those places are like, and you know that a pretty girl with no family ends up being taken advantage of just as often as a whore and paid less for her trouble. I flushed a bit at his rebuke, more than I would have normally as I was feeling the wine. 
It was making my lips and the tips of my fingers a little numb. Diak filled our glasses again. She's not to be looked down on for moving where the wind blows her. She has to take her opportunities where she finds them. If she gets the chance to travel with some folk who like her singing, or with a merchant who hopes her pretty face will help him sell his wares, who's to blame her for pulling up stakes and leaving town? And if she trades on her charm a bit, I'll not look down on her because of it. Young gents court her, buy her presents, dresses, jewelry. He shrugged his broad shoulders. If she sells those things for money to live, there's nothing wrong with that. They are gifts freely given, and hers to do with as she pleases. Diak fixed me with a stare. But what is she to do when some gent gets too familiar, or gets angry at being denied what he considers bought and paid for? What recourse does she have? No family, no friends, no standing, no choice. None but to give herself over to him, all unwilling. Diak's face was grim or to leave. Leave quickly and find better weather. Is it any surprise, then, that she is harder to lay hands on than a wind-blown leaf? He shook his head, looking down at the table. No, I do not envy her her life, nor do I judge her. His tirade seemed to have left him spent and slightly embarrassed. He didn't look up at me as he spoke. For all that... I would help her if she would let me. He glanced up at me and gave a chagrined smile. But she's not the sort to be beholden to anyone. Not one wit, not a hair's breadth. He sighed and dribbled the last drops of the bottle evenly into our glasses. You've shown her to me in a new light, I said honestly. I'm ashamed I didn't see it for myself. Well... I've had a head start on you, he said easily. I've known her longer. Nevertheless, I thank you, I said, holding up my glass. He held up his own. To Diane, he said, most lovely. To Denna, full of delight. Young and unbending. Bright and fair. Ever sought, ever alone. So wise and so foolish, I said. So merry and so sad. Gods of my fathers, Diak said reverently, keep her always so, unchanging, past my understanding and safe from harm. We both drank and set down our glasses. Let me buy the next bottle, I said. It would tap out my slowly hoarded line of credit with the bar, but I found myself increasingly fond of Diak, and the thought of not standing my round with him was too galling to consider. Stream, stone, and sky, he swore, rubbing at his face. I dare not. Another bottle, and we'd be slitting our wrists into the river before the sun goes down. I made a gesture to a serving girl. Nonsense, I said. We'll just change to something less maudlin than wine. I didn't notice I was being followed when I returned to the university. Perhaps my head was so full of Denna that there was little room left for anything else. Perhaps I had been living civilized for so long that the hard-earned reflexes I'd picked up in Tarbian were starting to fade. The Blackberry brand probably had something to do with it as well. Diak and I had talked for a long while, 
and between us drank half a bottle of the stuff. I had brought the remainder of the bottle back with me as I knew Simmon had a taste for it. Small matter why I didn't notice them, I suppose. The result was the same. I was strolling down a poorly lit part of Newhall Lane when something blunt struck me on the back of the head and I was bundled off into a nearby alley, half senseless. I was only stunned for a moment, but by the time I had regathered my wits, I had a heavy hand clamped over my mouth. All right, Cully, the huge man behind me spoke into my ear. I've got a knife on you. You struggle, I stick you. That's all there is to it. I felt a gentle prod against my ribs under my left arm. Check the finder, he said to his companion. A tall shape was all I could see in the dim light of the alley. He bowed his head, looking at his hand. I can't tell. Light a match, then. We have to be sure. My anxiety began to blossom into full-blown panic. This wasn't some back-alley coshing. They hadn't even checked my pockets for money. This was something else. We know it's him, the tall one said impatiently. Let's just do this and have it over with. I'm cold. Like hell. Check it now while he's close. We've lost him twice already. I'm not having another cock-up like an Adeline. I hate this thing, the tall man said as he went through his pockets, presumably looking for a match. You're an idiot, the one behind me said. It's cleaner this way, simpler. No confusing descriptions, no names, no worrying about disguises. Follow the needle, find our man, and have done with it. The matter-of-fact tone of their voices terrified me. These men were professionals. I realized with sudden certainty that Ambrose had finally taken steps to ensure I would never bother him again. My mind raced for a moment, and I did the only thing I could think of. I dropped the half-full bottle of brand. It shattered on the cobblestones, and the night air was suddenly filled with the smell of blackberries. That's great, the tall man hissed. How about you let him ring a bell while you're at it? The man behind me tightened his grip on my neck and shook me hard just once, the same way you would do to a naughty puppy. None of that, he said, irritated. I went limp, hoping to lull him, then concentrated and muttered a binding against the man's thick hand. Tough tits, the man replied. If you stepped in glass, it's your own damn fur. <laughs> he let out a startled shout as the pool of brand around our feet caught fire. I took advantage of his momentary distraction and twisted away from him, but I wasn't quite quick enough. His knife tore a bright line of pain across my ribs as I pulled away and began pelting down the alley. But my flight was short-lived. The alley dead-ended against a sheer brick wall. There were no doors, no windows, nothing to hide behind or use to get a leg up on the wall. I was trapped. I turned to see the two men blocking the mouth of the alley. The large one was stamping his leg furiously, trying to extinguish it. My left leg was burning as well, but I didn't spare a thought for it. A little burn would be the least of my problems if I didn't do something quick. I looked around again, but the alley was distressingly clean. Not even any decent garbage to use as a makeshift weapon. I frantically ran through the contents of my cloak's pockets, desperately trying to form some sort of plan. 
Some pieces of copper wire were useless. Salt, could I throw in their eyes? No. Dried apple, pen and ink, a marble, string, wax. The large man finally beat out the flames, and the two of them began to make their slow way down the alley. The light from the circle of burning brand flickered across the blades of their knives. Still going over my countless pockets, I found a lump that I didn't recognize. Then I remembered. It was the sack of basalt shavings I had bought to use for my sympathy lamp. Basalt is a light, silvery metal used in certain alloys that I would be using to construct my lamp. Manette, ever the careful teacher, had taken care to describe the dangers of every material we used. If it gets hot enough, basalt burns with an intense, white-hot flame. I hurriedly untied the pouch. The trouble was, I didn't know if I could make this work. Things like candle wicking or alcohol are easy to light. They just need a focused flash of heat to get them going. Basal was different. It needed a great deal of heat to ignite, which is why I wasn't worried about carrying it around in my pocket. The men came a few slow steps closer, and I flung the handful of basal shavings in a wide arc. I tried to get it close to their faces, but didn't hold much hope. The shavings had no real heft. It was like throwing a handful of loose snow. Lowering one hand to the flame licking at my leg, I focused my ailer. The wide pool of burning brand winked out behind the two men, leaving the alley in pitch darkness, but there still wasn't enough heat. Reckless with desperation, I touched my bloody side, concentrated and felt a terrible cold tear through me as I pulled more heat from my blood. There was an explosion of white light, blinding in the dark of the alley. I'd closed my eyes, but even through my lids the burning basalt was piercingly bright. One of the men screamed, high and terrified. When I opened my eyes, I could see nothing but blue ghosts dancing over my vision. The scream faded to a low moaning, and I heard a thump as if one of the men had stumbled and fallen. The tall man began to babble, his voice little more than a terrified sobbing. Oh God! Cam, my eyes! I'm blind! As I listened, my vision cleared enough for me to see the vague outlines of the alley. I could see the dark shapes of both men. One was kneeling with his hands in front of his face. The other was sprawled motionless on the ground farther down the alley. It looked like he had run headlong into a low rafter beam at the mouth of the alley and knocked himself unconscious. Scattered around the cobblestones, the remnants of basalt were sputtering out like tiny blue-white stars. The kneeling man was only flash-blind, but it would last for several minutes, long enough for me to get well away from here. I moved slowly around him, being careful to step quietly. My heart leapt into my throat as he spoke up again. Tam? The man's voice was high and frightened. I swear, Tam, I'm blind! The kid called down lightning on me! I saw him go down onto all fours and begin to feel around with his hands. You were right. We shouldn't have come here. No good comes of meddling with these sort of folk. Lightning. Of course. He didn't know a thing about real magic. It gave me a thought. I took a deep breath, settling my nerves. Who sent you? I demanded in my best Taberlin the Great voice. It wasn't as good as my father's, but it was good. The big man gave a wretched moan and stopped feeling around with his hands. Oh, sir, don't do anything. I'm not asking again, I cut him off angrily. Tell me who sent you. 
and if you lie to me, I'll know. I don't know a name, he said quickly. We just get half the coin and a hair. We don't know names. We don't actually meet, I, I swear. A hair. The thing they had called a finder was probably some sort of dousing compass. Though I couldn't make anything that advanced, I knew the principles involved. With a piece of my hair, it would point toward me no matter where I ran. If I ever see either of you again, I will call down worse than fire and lightning, I said menacingly as I edged toward the mouth of the alley. If I could get hold of their finder, I wouldn't have to worry about them tracking me down again. It had been dark, and the hood of my cloak had been up. They might not even know what I looked like. Thank you, sir, he babbled. I swear you won't see hide or hair of us after this. Thank you. I looked down at the fallen man. I could see one of his pale hands against the cobblestones, but it was empty. I looked around, wondering if he had dropped it. It was more likely that he'd tucked it away. I moved closer still, holding my breath. I reached into his cloak, feeling for pockets, but his cloak was pinned under his body. I took gentle hold of his shoulder and eased him slowly. Just then, he let out a low moan and rolled the rest of the way onto his back under his own power. His arm flopped loosely onto the cobbles, bumping my leg. I would like to say I simply took a step away, knowing that the tall man would be groggy and still half-blind. I'd like to tell you I remained calm and did my best to intimidate them further, or at the very least, that I said something dramatic or witty before I left. But that would not be the truth. The truth was, I ran like a frightened deer. I made it nearly a quarter of a mile before the darkness and my dazzled vision betrayed me, and I ran headlong into a horse tether, crumpling to the ground in a painful heap. Bruised, bleeding, and half-blind, I lay there. Only then did I realize I wasn't being chased at all. I dragged myself to my feet, cursing myself for a fool. If I'd kept my wits about me, I could have taken their dousing compass away, ensuring my safety. As it was, I'd have to take other precautions. I made my way back to Anchors, but when I arrived, all the inn's windows were dark and the door was locked. So, half drunk and wounded, I made my way up to my window, tripped the latch, and tugged. But it wouldn't open. It had been at least a span of days since I'd come back to the inn so late that I'd been forced to use my window route. Had the hinges rusted? Bracing myself against the wall, I drew out my hand lamp and thumbed it onto its dimmest setting. Only then did I see something lodged firmly into the crack of the window frame. Had anchors wedged my window shut? But when I touched it, I realized it wasn't wood. It was a piece of paper, much folded over. I tugged it free, and the window came open easily. I clambered inside. My shirt was ruined, but when I stripped it off, I was relieved by what I saw. The cut wasn't particularly deep, painful and messy, but less serious than when I'd been whipped. Fella's cloak was torn, too, which was irritating. But, everything said, it would be easier to patch that than my kidney. I made a mental note to thank Fella for choosing a nice, thick fabric. Stitching it up could wait. For all I knew, the two men had recovered from the little scare I'd given them and were already dousing for me again. I left through the window, 
leaving my cloak behind so as not to get any blood on it. I hoped the lateness of the hour and my natural stealth would keep me from being seen. I couldn't begin to guess what rumors would start if someone saw me running across the rooftops late at night, bloody and naked to the waist. I gathered up a handful of leaves as I made my way to the roof of a livery overlooking the pennant courtyard near the archives. In the dim moonlight I could see the dark, shapeless shadows of leaves swirling over the gray of the cobblestones below. I ran my hand roughly through my hair, ending up with a few loose strands. Then I dug at a seam of tar on the roof with my fingernails and used some to stick the hair to a leaf. I repeated this a dozen times, dropping the leaves off the roof, watching as the wind took them away in a mad dance back and forth across the courtyard. I smiled at the thought of anyone trying to douse for me now, trying to make sense of the dozens of contradictory signals as the leaves swirled and spun in a dozen different directions. I'd come to this particular courtyard because the wind moved oddly here. I'd only noticed it after the autumn leaves began to fall. They moved in a complex, chaotic dance across the cobblestones, first one way, then another, never falling into a predictable pattern. Once you noticed the wind's odd swirlings, it was hard to ignore. In fact, viewed from the roof like this, it was almost hypnotic, the same way flowing water or a campfire's flames can catch your eye and hold it. Watching it tonight, weary and wounded, it was rather relaxing. The more I watched it, the less chaotic it seemed. In fact, I began to sense a greater underlying pattern to the way the wind moved through the courtyard. It only looked chaotic because it was vastly, marvelously complex. What's more, it seemed to be always changing. It was a pattern made of changing patterns. It was, You're up studying awfully late, said a quiet voice from behind me. Startled out of my reverie, my body tensed, ready to bolt. How had someone managed to get up here without my noticing? It was Elodin, Master Elodin. He was dressed in a patched set of pants and a loose shirt. He waved idly in my direction and crouched down to sit cross-legged on the edge of the roof as casually as if we were meeting for a drink in a pub. He looked down into the courtyard. It's particularly good tonight, isn't it? I folded my arms, ineffectually trying to cover my bare, bloody chest. Only then did I notice the blood on my hands was dry. How long had I been sitting here motionless, watching the wind? Master Elodin, I said, then stopped. I had no idea what I could possibly say in a situation like this. Please, we're all friends here. Feel free to call me by my first name, Master. He gave a lazy grin and looked back down toward the courtyard. Hadn't he noticed the state I was in? Was he being polite? Maybe I shook my head. There was no use guessing with him. I knew better than anyone that Elodin was cracked as the potter's cobbles. Long ago, Elodin said conversationally, not taking his eyes from the courtyard below. When folk spoke differently, this used to be called the Quoyen Hail. Later, they called it the Questioning Hall, and students made a game of writing questions on slips of paper and letting them blow about. Rumor had it, you could divine your answer by which way the paper left the square. He pointed to the roads that left gaps between the gray buildings. Yes, no, 
maybe, elsewhere, soon. He shrugged. It was all a mistake, though. Bad translation. They thought Kuo-Yen was an early root of Kuitenten. Question. But it isn't. Kuo-Yen means wind. This is rightly named the House of the Wind. I waited a moment to see if he intended to say any more. When nothing was forthcoming, I got slowly to my feet. That's interesting, Master. I hesitated, not sure how serious he had been before. But I should be going. Elodin nodded absently and gave a wave that was half farewell, half dismissal. His eyes never left the courtyard below, following the ever-changing wind. Back in my room at Anchors, I sat on my bed for a long minute in the dark, trying to decide what to do. My thoughts were muddy. I was weary, wounded, and still a little drunk. The adrenaline that had kept me going earlier was slowly turning sour, and my side burned and stung. I took a deep breath and tried to focus my thoughts. I'd been moving on instinct so far, but now I needed to think things through carefully. Could I go to the masters for help? For a moment, hope rose in my chest, then fell. No. I had no proof that Ambrose was responsible. What's more, if I told them the whole story, I would have to admit that I used sympathy to blind and burn my attackers. Self-defense or no, what I'd done was unquestionably malfeasance. Students had been expelled for less than that just to preserve the university's reputation. No, I couldn't risk being expelled over this. And if I went to the Medica, there would be too many questions. And word of my injury would get around if I went in to get stitched. That meant Ambrose would know how close he had come to succeeding. It would be better to give the impression that I had walked away unscathed. I had no idea how long Ambrose's hired killers had been following me. One of them had said, We already lost him twice. That means they could know I had a room here at Anchors. I might not be safe here. I locked the window and drew the curtain before turning on my hand lamp. The light revealed the forgotten piece of paper that had been wedged into my window. I unfolded it and read, Quoth, Getting up here is every bit as much fun as you made it look. However, springing your window took some time. Finding you not at home, I hope you do not mind me borrowing paper and ink enough to leave this note. As you are not playing downstairs or peacefully abed, a cynical person might wonder what you are doing at this late hour, and if you are up to no good. Alas, I shall have to walk back home tonight without the comfort of your escort or the pleasure of your company. I missed you this felling past at Yeolian, but though denied your company, I had the good fortune to meet someone quite interesting. He is a quite singular fellow, and I am eager to tell you what little I can of him when next we meet. I currently have rooms at the Swan and Swale, Swale, in Imre. Please call on me before the 23rd of this month, and we will have our lunch, belated. After that, I will be about on my business. Your friend and apprentice housebreaker, Denna. Postscript. Please rest assured that I did not notice the disgraceful condition of your bed linens, and did not judge your character thereby. Today was the 28th. The letter didn't have a date, but it had probably been there for at least a span and a half. 
She must have left it only a few days after the fire in the fishery. I briefly tried to decide how I felt about it, flattered that she had tried to find me, furious that the note had gone unfound until now, as to the matter of the fellow that she had met. It was far too much for me to deal with at the moment, weary, wounded, and still somewhat the worse for drink. Instead, I quickly cleaned the shallow cut as best I could using my wash basin. I would have put some stitches in it myself, but I couldn't get a good angle. It started bleeding again, and I cut off the cleaner pieces of my ruined shirt to fashion a makeshift bandage. Blood. The men who tried to kill me still had the dousing compass, and I'd undoubtedly left some of my blood on his knife. Blood would be vastly more effective in a dousing compass than a simple hair. That meant that even if they didn't already know where I lived, they might be able to find me despite the precautions I'd taken. I moved around my room quickly, stuffing everything of value into my travel sack, as I didn't know when it would be safe to return. Under a stack of papers, I found a small folding knife I'd forgotten about after I'd won it off Sim playing corners. It would be worth next to nothing in a fight, but that was better than nothing at all. Then I grabbed my loot and cloak and snuck downstairs into the kitchen, where I was lucky enough to find an empty Valagian wine pot with a wide mouth. It was a minor piece of luck, but I was glad for whatever I could get at this point. I headed east and crossed the river, but didn't go all the way into Imre proper. Instead, I headed south a bit to where a few docks, a seedy inn, and a handful of houses perched on the bank of the wide Omethi River. It was a small port that serviced Imre, too small to have a name of its own. I stuffed my bloody shirt into the wine pot and made it watertight with a piece of sympathy wax. Then I dropped it in the Omethi River and watched it bob slowly downstream. If they were dousing for my blood, it would seem like I was heading south, running. Hopefully, they'd follow it. Chapter 70 Signs I came suddenly awake early the next morning. I didn't know exactly where I was, only that I wasn't where I should be and that something was wrong. I was hiding. Someone was after me. I was curled up in the corner of a small room. I lay on a blanket and I was wrapped in my cloak. This was an inn. It slowly came back to me. I had rented a room at an inn near Imre's docks. I came to my feet, stretching carefully so as not to aggravate my wound. I'd pushed the dresser against the room's only door and tied the window shut with a length of rope despite the fact that it was too small for a grown man to fit through. Seeing my precautions in the cool blue light of early morning, I was a little embarrassed. I couldn't remember whether I'd slept on the floor out of fear of assassins or bedbugs. Either way, it was clear I hadn't been thinking too clearly toward the end of the night. I gathered up my travel sack and loot and headed downstairs. I had some planning to do, but before that, I needed breakfast and a bath. Despite my busy night, I'd barely slept past sunrise, so I had easy access to the bathhouse. After cleaning myself up and re-wrapping the bandage around my side, I felt mostly human. A plate of eggs, a couple sausages, and some fried potatoes later, I felt I could begin to think rationally about my situation. It's amazing how much easier it is to think productively when your belly is full. I sat in the far corner of the little dockside inn and sipped a mug of fresh-pressed apple cider. 
I was no longer worried that hired killers were going to leap out and assault me. Still, I was sitting with my back to the wall with a good view of the door. Yesterday had left me shaken mostly because it had caught me so unprepared. In Tarbian, I'd lived each day expecting people would try to kill me. The civilized atmosphere of the university had lulled me into a false sense of security. I never would have been caught off my guard a year ago. I certainly wouldn't have been surprised by the attack itself. My hard-won instincts from Tarbian were urging me to run, leave this place, leave Ambrose and his vendetta far behind. But that feral part of me cared only for safety. It had no plan. I couldn't leave. I had too much invested here. My studies, my vain hopes for gaining a patron, and my stronger hopes of entry to the archives. My precious few friends. Denna. Sailors and dock workers began to filter into the inn to get the morning meal, and the room slowly filled with the gentle buzz of conversation. I heard a bell ringing dimly in the distance, and it occurred to me that my shift in the Medica would be starting in an hour. Arwill would notice if I was absent, and he was not forgiving of such things. I fought down the urge to run back to the university. It was well known that absent students were punished with higher tuitions the following term. To give myself something to do while I was thinking through my situation, I brought out my cloak along with needle and thread. The knife from last night had made a straight cut about two handspan across. I began to sew it closed, using tiny stitches so the seam wouldn't be obvious. While my hands were working, my thoughts wandered. Could I confront Ambrose? Threaten him? Not likely. He knew I couldn't successfully bring charges against him. But maybe I could persuade a few of the masters of what had really happened. Kilvin would be outraged at the thought of hired killers using a dousing compass, and perhaps Arwill. All blue fire, every one of them dead, thrown around like rag dolls, and the house fallen to pieces around them. I was glad to see the end of the place, I can tell you that. I jabbed my finger with the needle as my eavesdropper's ears picked the conversation out of the common room's general din. A few tables over, two men were drinking beer. One was tall and balding. The other was fat with a red beard. You're such an old woman, the fat one laughed. You'll listen to any piece of gossip. The tall man shook his head somberly. I was in the tavern when they came in with the news. They were gathering folk with wagons so they could go get the bodies. The whole wedding party dead as leather. Over thirty folks gutted like pigs, and the place burned down in a blue flame. And that weren't the least oddness from what... He dropped his voice, and I lost what he was saying among the general noise of the room. I swallowed against the sudden dryness in my throat. I slowly tied off the last stitch on my cloak and set it down. I noticed my bleeding finger and absently put it in my mouth. I took a deep breath. I took a drink. Then I walked over to the table where the two men sat talking. Did you gentlemen come downriver by any chance? They looked up, obviously irritated by the interruption. Gentlemen had been a mistake. I should have said fellows. Fellas. The bald one nodded. Did you come by way of Morrow? I asked, picking a northern town at random. No, the fat one said. We're down from Traban. Oh, good, 
I said, my mind racing for a plausible lie. I have family up in those parts I was thinking of visiting. My mind went blank as I tried to think of a way to ask them for the details of the story I'd overheard. My palms were sweaty. Are they getting ready for the harvest festival up that way, or have I already missed it? I finished lamely. Still in the works, the bald one said and pointedly turned his shoulder to me. I heard there was some problem with a wedding up in those parts. The bald one turned back to look at me. Well, I don't know how you'd have heard that. As the news was fresh last night, and we just docked down here ten minutes ago. He gave me a hard look. I don't know what you're selling, boy, but I ain't buying. Piss off, or I'll thump you. I went back to my seat, knowing I'd made an irrecoverable mess of things. I sat, keeping my hands flat on the table to keep them from shaking. A group of people brutally killed. Blue fire. Oddness. Chandrian. Less than a day ago, the Chandrian were in Traban. I finished my drink more out of reflex than anything else, then stood and made my way to the bar. I was quickly coming to grips with the reality of the situation. After all these years, I finally had the opportunity to learn something about the Chandrian, and not just a mention of them pressed flat between the pages of a book in the archives. I had the chance to see their work firsthand. This was an opportunity that might never come again. But I needed to get to Trayvon soon, while things were still fresh in people's memories, before curious or superstitious town folk destroyed what evidence remained. I didn't know what I hoped to find, but anything I heard about the Chandrian would be more than I knew now. And if I were to have a chance at anything useful, I had to be there as soon as possible. Today. The morning crowd was keeping the innkeeper busy, so I had to lay an iron drab on the bar before she paid me any attention at all. After paying for a private room last night, and breakfast, and bath this morning, the drab represented a good portion of my worldly wealth, so I kept my finger on it. What do you have? she asked as she came up to me. How far is it to Traben? I asked. Up river? A couple of days. I didn't ask how long it was. I need to know how far, I said, stressing the last word. No need to get snippy, she said, wiping her hands on her grubby apron. By river it's forty miles or so. Could take more than two days, depending on if you're on a barge or a billow boat. And what the weather's like. How far by road? I asked. Blacken me if I know, she muttered, then called down the bar. Rudd! How far to Traben by road? Three or four days, said a weathered man without looking up from his mug. I asked how far, she snapped at him. Is it longer than the riverway? Damn sight longer. About twenty-five leagues by road. A hard road, too, uphill. God's body. Who measured things in leagues these days? Depending on where that fellow grew up, a league could be anywhere between two to three and a half miles. My father always claimed that a league wasn't really a unit of measurement at all, just a way for farmers to attach numbers to their rough guesses. Still, it let me know Traben was somewhere between fifty and eighty miles to the north. It was probably best to assume the worst, at least seventy miles. The woman behind the bar turned back to me. There you have it. 
Now, can I get you something? I need a water skin, if you have one, or a bottle of water, if you don't, and some food that we'll keep on the road. Hard sausage, cheese, flatbread, apples? She asked. Got some lovely red jennies this morning. Good for the road. I nodded. And whatever else you have that's cheap and will travel. A drab doesn't go far, she said with a glance down at the bar. I shook out my purse and was surprised to see four drabs and a copper halfpenny I hadn't accounted for. I was practically rich. She gathered up my money and headed back to the kitchen. I fought off the momentary pang at being utterly destitute again and ran a quick mental inventory of what I had in my travel sack. She came back with two loaves of flatbread, a thick, hard sausage that smelled of garlic, a small cheese sealed in wax, a bottle of water, half a dozen gorgeous bright red apples, and a small sack of carrots and potatoes. I thanked her kindly and stuffed the lot into my sack. Seventy miles. I could make it today if I had a good horse. But good horses cost money. I breathed in the smell of rancid fat as I knocked on Debbie's door. I stood there for a minute, fighting the urge to fidget impatiently. I had no idea if Debbie would be awake at such an early hour, but it was a risk I had to take. Debbie opened the door and smiled when she saw me. Well, here's a pleasant surprise. She opened the door wider. Come in, sit down. I gave her my best smile. Devi, I just... She frowned. Come in, she said more firmly. I don't discuss business on the landing. I came in and she closed the door behind me. Take a seat, unless you'd rather have a bit of a lie down. She nodded playfully toward the huge curtained bed in the corner of the room. You won't believe the story I heard this morning, she said, laughter hiding in her voice. Despite the urgency I felt, I forced myself to relax. Devi was not one to be rushed. If I tried, it would only irritate her. What did you hear? She sat on her side of the desk and folded her hands. Apparently, last night, a pair of ruffians tried to lift a purse off a young student. Much to their dismay, it turns out he's the next Haberlin in training. He called down fire and lightning blinded one and gave the other such a mighty blow to the head that he still hasn't woken up. I sat quietly for a moment as I absorbed the information. An hour ago, this would have been the best news I could have heard. Now it was hardly more than a distraction. Still, despite the urgency of my other errand, I couldn't ignore the chance to gather some information about the crisis closer to home. They weren't just trying to rob me, I said. Debbie laughed. I knew it was you. They didn't know anything about him except for that he had red hair, but that was enough for me. Did I really blind the one? I asked. And the other still unconscious? I honestly don't know, Debbie admitted. News travels quickly among us unsavory types, but it's mostly gossip. My mind was spinning quickly along a new plan now. Would you care to spread a little gossip of your own? I asked. That depends. She gave a wicked smile. Is it terribly exciting? Drop my name, I said. Let them know exactly who it was. Let them know I'm mad as hell, and I'll kill the next ones that come after me. I'll kill them and whoever hired them, the middlemen, their families, their dogs, the whole lot. Devi's delighted expression faded to something closer to distaste. 
That's a little grim, don't you think? I appreciate that you're attached to your purse. She gave me a playful look. And I have a vested interest there myself. But there's no... They weren't thieves, I said. They were hired to kill me. Debbie gave me a skeptical look. I tugged up the corner of my shirt to show my bandage. I'm serious. I can show you where one of them cut me before I got away. Frowning, she stood up and came around the other side of the desk. All right, show me. I hesitated, then decided that I was better off humoring her, as I still had favors to ask. I took off my shirt and lay it on the desk. That bandage is filthy, she said as if it was a personal offense. Get rid of it. She walked to a cabinet at the back of the room and came back with a black physicker's kit and a wash basin. She washed her hands, then looked at my side. You haven't even had it stitched, she said incredulously. I've been rather busy, I said, with the running like hell and hiding all night. She ignored me and set about cleaning my side with a cool efficiency that let me know she'd studied in the Medica. It's messy, but not deep, she said. It's not even all the way through the skin in some places. She stood up and pulled a few things out of her bag. You'll still need stitches. I would have done it myself, I said, but... But you're an idiot who didn't even make sure this was cleaned properly, she finished. If this gets infected, it would serve you right. She finished cleaning my side and rinsed her hands in the bowl. I want you to know I'm doing this because I have a soft spot for pretty boys, the mentally infirm, and people who owe me money. I consider this protecting my investment. Yes, ma'am. I sucked in air when she applied the antiseptic. I thought you weren't supposed to bleed, she said matter-of-factly. There's another legend proven false. Speaking of, moving as little as possible, I reached out and pulled a book out of my travel sack, then laid it on her desk. I brought back your copy of Mating Habits of the Common Dracus. You were right. The engravings added a lot to it. I knew you'd like it. There was a moment of silence as she began stitching me back together. When she spoke again, most of the playfulness was gone from her voice. Were these fellows really hired to kill you, Quoth? I nodded. They had a dowsing compass in some of my hair. That's how they knew I was a redhead. Lord and lady, wouldn't that just send Kilvin into a froth? She shook her head. Are you sure they weren't just hired to scare you? Rough you up a little to teach you to mind your betters? She paused in her stitching and looked up at me. You weren't stupid enough to borrow money off of Heffern and his boys, were you? I shook my head. You're the only hawk for me, Debbie, I smiled. In fact, that's why I stopped by today. And here I thought you merely enjoyed my company, she said, turning back to her needlework. I thought I detected a tinge of irritation in her voice. Let me finish this first. I thought about what she'd said for a long moment. The tall man had said, let's do him, but that could mean any number of things. It's possible they weren't trying to kill me, I admitted slowly. He had a knife, though. You don't need a knife to give someone a beating. Debbie snorted. And I don't need blood to get people to settle their debts, 
but it certainly helps. I thought about it as she tied off the final stitch and began to wrap me in a fresh bandage. Maybe it was meant to be a simple beating. An anonymous message from Ambrose telling me to mind my betters. Maybe it was a simple attempt to scare me off. I sighed, trying not to move too much as I did so. I'd like to believe that's the case, but I really don't think so. I think they were really after blood. That's what my gut tells me. Her expression grew serious. In that case, I will spread the word a little, she said. I don't know about the part about killing their dogs, but I'll drop a few things into the rumor mill so people will think twice about taking that sort of job. She chuckled low in her throat. Actually, they're already thinking twice after last night. This will make them think three times. I appreciate it. Small trouble to me, she said dismissively as she stood up and brushed off her knees. A small favor to help a friend. She washed her hands in the basin, then dried them carelessly on her shirt. Let's hear it, she said as she sat behind the desk, her expression suddenly businesslike. I need money for a fast horse, I said. Leaving town? She arched a pale eyebrow. You never struck me as the running away sort. I'm not running, I said. But I need to cover some ground. Seventy miles before it gets much afternoon. Debbie widened her eyes a bit. A horse that could make that trip is going to cost, she said. Why not just buy a post note and switch out fresh horses all the way? Faster and cheaper. There's no post stations where I'm going, I said. Up river, then into the hills. A little town called Traben. All right, she said. How much are you looking for? I'll need money to buy a fast horse with no dickering, plus lodging, food, maybe bribes. Twenty talents. She burst out laughing, then regained her composure and covered her mouth. No. I'm sorry, but no. I do have a soft spot for charming young men like yourself, but it's not on my head. I have my loot, I said, sliding the case forward with my foot, for collateral, plus anything else in here. I put my travel sack on the desk. She drew a breath as if to refuse me out of hand, then shrugged and looked into the bag, poking around. She pulled out my copy of Rhetoric and Logic, and a moment later my handheld sympathy lamp. Hello, she said curiously, thumbing on the switch and pointing the light toward the wall. This is interesting. I grimaced. Anything except that, I said. I promised Kilvin I wouldn't ever let that out of my hands. I gave my word. She gave me a frank look. Have you ever heard the expression, beggars can't be choosers? I gave my word, I repeated. I unpinned my silver talent pipes from my cloak and slid them across her desk so they lay near rhetoric and logic. Those aren't easy to come by, you know. Debbie looked at the loot, the book, and the pipes and drew a long, slow breath. Quoth, I can tell that this is important to you, but the numbers just don't add. You're not good for that much money. You're barely good for the four talents you owe me. That stung mostly because I knew it to be the truth. Debbie thought about it for another second, then shook her head firmly. No, just the interest. 
In two months, you'd owe me over thirty-five talents. Or something equally valuable in trade, I said. She gave me a gentle smile. And what do you have worth thirty-five talents? Access to the archives. Debbie sat, her slightly patronizing smile frozen on her face. You're lying. I shook my head. I know there's another way in. I haven't found it yet, but I will. That's a lot of if. Debbie's tone was skeptical, but her eyes were full of something more than simple desire. It was closer to hunger, or lust. I could tell she wanted into the archives just as badly as I did, perhaps even more so. That's what I'm offering, I said. If I can pay you back, I will. If not, when I find a way into the archives, I'll share it with you. Debbie looked up at the ceiling as if calculating odds in her head. With these things as collateral, and the possibility of access to the archives, I can loan you a dozen talents. I stood up and swung my travel sack over my shoulder. I'm afraid we're not bargaining here, I said. I'm just informing you as to the conditions of the loan. I gave her an apologetic smile. It's twenty talents or nothing. I'm sorry, I didn't make that clear from the beginning. Chapter seventy one. Strange attraction. Three minutes later, I strode toward the doors of the nearest livery. A well-dressed sealdish man smiled at my approach and stepped forward to greet me. Ah, young sir, he said, holding out his hand. My name is Kerva. Might I ask? I need a horse, I said, shaking his hand quickly. Healthy, well-rested, and well-fed. One that can take six hours of hard riding today. Certainly, certainly, Kerva said, rubbing his hands together and nodding. All things are possible with the will of God. I'd be pleased to listen. I interrupted again. I'm in a hurry, so we're going to skip the preliminaries. I won't pretend to be uninterested. You won't waste my time with a parade of hacks and nags. If I have not bought a horse in ten minutes, I will leave and buy one elsewhere. I met his eye. Linsatva. The sealdish man was aghast. Sir, the purchase of a horse should never be so rushed. You would not pick a wife in ten minutes. And on the road, a horse is more important than a wife. He gave a bashful smile. Even God Himself didn't. I cut him off yet again. God's not buying a horse today. I am. The thin, sealdish man paused to collect his thoughts. Right, he said softly, more to himself than to me. Clint, come around and see what we have. He led me around the outside of the stables to a small corral. He gestured near the edge of the fence. That dapple mare is as steady a horse as any you could hope for. She'll take you. I ignored him and looked over the half dozen hacks that stood idly inside the fence. Though I had neither means nor reason to keep a horse, I knew good from bad, and nothing I saw here came close to suiting my needs. You see, troopers live and die by the horses that pull their wagons. And my parents had not neglected my education in this area. I could size up a horse by the time I was eight, and a good thing too. Townsfolk regularly tried to pass off half-dead or gingered-up nags to us, knowing that by the time we discovered our mistakes, 
we'd be miles and days away. There was a world of trouble waiting for a man who sold his neighbor some sickly hobble, but what was the harm of swindling one of the filthy thieving rue? I turned to face the cabler, frowning. You have just wasted two precious minutes of my time, so I'm guessing you still don't understand my position here. Let me be as plain as possible. I want a fast horse ready for hard riding today. For this I will pay quickly, in hard coin and without complaint. I held up my newly heavy purse in one hand and shook it, knowing he could tell the ring of true sealedish silver inside. If you sell me a horse that throws a shoe or starts to limp or spooks at shadows, I will miss a valuable opportunity, a quite unrecoverable opportunity. If that happens, I will not come back and demand a refund. I will not petition the constable. I will walk back to Imre this very night and set fire to your house. Then, when you run out the front door in your nightshirt and stockle cap, I will kill you, cook you, and eat you, right there on your lawn while all your neighbors watch. I gave him a deadly serious look. This is the business arrangement I am proposing, Kerva. If you are not comfortable with it, tell me and I will go elsewhere. Otherwise, leave off this parade of drays and show me a real horse. The short sealed looked at me, more stunned than horrified. I could see him trying to come to grips with the situation. He must think I was either a raving lunatic or the son of some important noble, or both. Very well, he said, letting all the ingratiating charm fall from his voice. When you say hard riding, how hard do you mean? Very hard, I said. I need to go seventy miles today, dirt roads. Will you need saddle and tack, too? I nodded. Nothing fancy, nothing new. He drew a deep breath. Fine. And how much do you have to spend? I shook my head and gave a tight smile. Show me the horse and name your price. A Valder would do nicely. If he's a little wild, I won't mind if it means he's got energy to spare. Even a good Valder mix could serve me, or a Kershan fourth horse. Kerva nodded and led me back toward the wide doors of the stable. I do have a Kershan. A full blood, actually. He made a gesture to one of the stable hands. Bring out our black gentleman, double quick. The boy sprinted off. The cavalier turned back to me. Gorgeous animal. I ran him through the traces before I bought him, just to be sure. Galloped him a full mile, and he hardly even worked up his sweat. Smooth a gait as ever I felt, and I'd not lie to your lordship on that account. I nodded. A full-blooded Kershan was exactly suited to my purpose. They had a legendary endurance, but there would be no avoiding the price either. A well-trained fourth horse was worth a dozen talents. How much are you asking for him? I'll want two solid marks, he said without any hint of apology or wheedling in his voice. Merciful Telu, twenty talents! He'd have to have silver shoes to be worth that much. I'm in no mood for a lengthy dicker, Kerva, I said shortly. You've made me well aware of that, my lord, he said. I'm telling you my honest price. Here, you'll see why. The boy hurried out, leading a sleek monster of a horse, at least eighteen hands tall, proud head, and black from his nose to the tip of his tail. He loves to run, Kerva said with genuine affection in his voice. He ran a hand along the smooth black neck. And look at that color! 
not so much as a pale whisker. That's why he's worth twenty if he's worth a single shim. I don't care about the color, I said absent-mindedly, while I looked him over for signs of injury or old age. There was nothing. He was glossy, young, strong. I just need to move quickly. I understand, he said apologetically. But I can't just ignore the coloring. If I wait a span or two, some young lord will pay just for the snappy look of him. I knew it was true. Does he have a name? I asked, moving slowly toward the black horse, letting him smell my hands and get used to me. Bargaining can be hurried, but befriending a horse cannot. Only a fool rushes first impressions with a spirited young Kershane. Not one that's stuck on him, he said. What's your name, boy? I asked gently, just so he could get used to the sound of my voice. He snuffled delicately at my hand, keeping close watch with one large, intelligent eye. He didn't back away, but he certainly wasn't at his ease either. I kept talking as I came closer, hoping he would relax at the sound of my voice. You deserve a good name. I hate to see some lordling with delusions of wit saddle you with some terrible name like Midnight or Sooty or Scut. I came closer and lay one hand along his neck. His skin twitched, but he didn't pull away. I needed to be sure of his temperament as much as his stamina. I couldn't take the risk of jumping on the back of a skittish horse. Someone half-clever might dub you Pitch or Scuttle, ill-favored names, or Slate, a sedentary name. Heaven forbid you end up Blackie. That's an ill-fitting name for a prince like you. My father always talked to new horses in this way, in a steady, calming litany. As I stroked his neck, I kept speaking without giving any mind to what I said. Words don't matter to the horse. The tone of your voice is the important thing. You've come a long way. You should have a proud name so folk won't think of you as common. Was your previous owner Sealdish? I asked. Vivaniloy. Deuterium Keta? Palante? I could sense him relax a bit at the sound of the familiar language. I walked on to his other side, still looking him over carefully and letting him get used to my presence. Dugetha? I asked him. Are you coal? Tumane? Are you a shadow? I wanted to say twilight, but I couldn't bring the Siaru word to mind. Rather than pause, I just bulled ahead, faking it as best I could as I eyed his hooves to see if they were chipped or cracked. Dugeth Salen? Are you first knight? The big black lowered his head and nuzzled me. You like that one, do you? I said with a bit of a laugh, knowing that what really happened was that he had caught scent of the package of dried apple I had tucked in one of the pockets of my cloak. The important thing was that he had a feel for me now. If he was comfortable enough to nuzzle at me for food, we could get along well enough for a hard day's ride. Keth Salen seems to suit him for a name, I said, turning back to Kierva. Anything else I need to know? Kierva seemed disconcerted. He shies a bit on his right side. A bit? Just a bit. It stands to reason that he's probably a bit prone to spooking on that side, too, but I haven't seen him do it. How's he trained? Close rein or trooper style? Close. Fine. You've got one minute left to make this deal. 
He's a good animal, but I'm not paying twenty talents for him. I spoke with certainty in my voice, but no hope in my heart. He was a gorgeous animal, and his coloring made him worth at least twenty talents. Still, I'd go through the motions and hope to squeeze the man down to nineteen. That at least would leave me money for food and lodging when I got to Traban. Very well, Kirva said. Sixteen. Only my years of stage training kept me from gaping openly at his sudden drop. Fifteen, I said, feigning irritation. And that will include the saddle, tack, and a bag of oats. I began pulling money out of my purse as if the deal was already finished. Unbelievably, Kerva nodded and called for one of the boys to bring a saddle and tack. I counted the money into Kerva's hand as his assistant saddled the big black. The sealed seemed uncomfortable meeting my eye. If I didn't know horses as well as I do, I would have thought I was being swindled. Maybe the horse was stolen, or the man was desperate for money. Whatever the reason, I didn't care. I was due a bit of good luck. Best of all, this meant that I might be able to resell the horse at a bit of a profit after I reached Traben. Honestly, I would need to sell him as soon as I could manage, even if I lost money on the deal. Stabling, food, and grooming for a horse like this would cost me a penny a day. I couldn't afford to keep him. I strapped my travel sack into a saddlebag, checked the cinch and stirrups, then swung myself up onto Keth Salen's back. He danced slightly to the right, eager to be off. That made two of us. I twitched the reins, and we were on our way. Most problems with horses have nothing to do with the horses themselves. They stem from the ignorance of the rider. Folk shoe their horses badly, saddle them improperly, feed them poorly, then complain that they were sold a half-lame, sway-back, ill-tempered hack. I knew horses. My parents had taught me to ride and care for them. While most of my experience had been with sturdier breeds, bred to pull rather than to race, I knew how to cover ground quickly when I needed to. When they're in a hurry, most folk push their mount too hard too soon. They head out at a dead gallop, then find themselves with a horse lame or half-dead inside an hour. Pure idiocy. Only a twelve-colored bastard treats a horse that way. But to be entirely truthful, I would have ridden Keth Salen to death if it would have brought me to Traben in a timely fashion. There are some times when I'm willing to be a bastard. I would have killed a dozen horses if it would have helped me get more information about the Chandrian and why they had killed my parents. But ultimately, there was no sense in thinking that way. A dead horse wouldn't get me to Traben. A live one would. So I started Keth Salen at a nice walk to warm him up. He was eager to go faster, probably sensing my own impatience, and that would have been fine if I'd only needed to go a mile or three. But I needed him for at least fifty, maybe seventy, and that meant patience. I had to rein him back down to a walk twice before he resigned himself to it. After a mile, I trotted him for a bit. His gait was smooth, even for a kershain, but a trot is jarring no matter what, and it pulled at the new stitches in my side. I urged him up to a canter after another mile or so. Only after we were three or four miles out of Imre and we came to a good straight stretch of flat road did I nudge him up to a gallop. Finally given the chance to run, he surged ahead. The sun had just finished burning away the morning dew, and farmers harvesting wheat and barley in the fields looked up as we thundered past. Keth Salen was fast. 
so fast that the wind tore at my cloak, stretching it behind me like a flag. Despite the fact that I knew I must cut quite the dramatic figure, I quickly grew tired of the drag on my neck, unfastened the cloak, then stuffed it into a saddlebag. When we passed through a stand of trees, I brought Salen back down to a trot. That way he got a little rest, and we didn't run the risk of rounding a corner and barreling into a fallen tree or slow-moving cart. When we came out into pasture land, I could see our way was clear. I gave him his head again, and we practically flew. After an hour and a half of this, Salen was sweating and breathing hard, but he was doing better than I was. My legs were a rubbery mess. I was fit enough and young, but I hadn't been in the saddle for years. Riding uses different muscles than walking, and riding at a gallop is just as hard as running unless you want to make your horse work twice as hard for every mile. Suffice to say, I welcomed the next stretch of trees. I hopped out of the saddle and walked to give both of us a well-deserved break. I cut one of my apples down the middle and gave him the larger half. I figured we'd come about thirty miles, and the sun wasn't even fully at zenith. That's the easy bit, I told him, stroking his neck fondly. Lord, but you are lovely. You're not half-blown yet, are you? We walked for about ten minutes. Then we had the good luck to come across a little creek with a wooden bridge running across it. I let him drink for a long minute, then pulled him away before he took too much. Then I mounted up and gated him back up to a gallop by slow stages. My legs burned and ached as I leaned over his neck. The drumming of his hooves was like a counterpoint to the slow song of the wind endlessly burning past my ears. The first snag came about an hour later, when we had to cross a wide stream. It wasn't treacherous by any means, but I had to unsaddle him and carry everything across rather than risk it getting wet. I couldn't ride him for hours wearing a wet harness. On the other side of the river, I dried him off with my blanket and resaddled him. It took half an hour, which meant he had gone from being rested to being cold, so I had to warm him up gently, slow walk to trot, to canter. That stream cost me an hour, all told. I worried if there was another one, the chill would get into Salen's muscles. If that happened, Talu himself wouldn't be able to bring him up to a gallop again. An hour later, I passed through a small town, hardly more than a church and a tavern that happened to be next to each other. I stopped long enough to let Salen drink a bit from a trough. I stretched my numb legs and looked up anxiously at the sun. After that, the fields and farms grew fewer and farther between. The trees grew thicker and denser. The road narrowed and was not in good repair, rocky in places, washed out in others. It made for slower and slower going, but truth be told, neither myself nor Keth Salen had much more galloping left in us. Eventually, we came to another stream crossing the road, not much more than a foot deep at the most. The water had a hard, sharp, foul smell that let me know there was a tannery upstream, or a refinery. There wasn't any bridge, and Keth Salen made his way slowly across, placing his hooves gingerly on the rocky bottom. I wondered idly if it felt good, like when you dandle your feet in the water after a long day's walking. The stream didn't slow us down much, but over the next half hour, we had to cross it three separate times as it wound back and forth across the road. It was an inconvenience more than anything, never much deeper than a foot and a half. Each time we crossed it, the acrid smell of the water was worse. 
solvents, and acids. If not a refinery, then at least a mine. I kept my hands on the reins, ready to pull Salen's head up if he tried to drink, but he was smarter than that. A long canter later, I came up over a hill and looked down onto a crossroads at the bottom of a small, grassy valley. Right under the signpost was a tinker with a pair of donkeys, one of them loaded so high with bags and bundles that it looked ready to tip over, the other conspicuously unburdened. It stood by the side of the dirt road, grazing with a small mountain of gear piled beside it. The tinker sat on a small stool at the side of the road, looking dispirited. His expression brightened when he saw me riding down the hill. I read the signpost as I came closer. North was Traben. South was Tem Falls. I reined in as I approached. Keth Salen and I could both use the rest, and I was not in enough of a hurry to be rude to a tinker, not by half. If nothing else, the fellow could tell me how far I had left to go before I came to Traben. Hello there, he said, looking up at me, shading his eyes with one hand. You've got the look of a lad that's wanting something. He was older, balding with a round, friendly face. I laughed. I'm wanting a lot of things, Tinker, but I don't think you've got any of them in your packs. He gave me an ingratiating smile. Well now, don't go assuming. He stopped and looked down for a moment, thoughtfully. When he met my eyes again, his expression was still kind, but more serious than before. Listen, I'll be honest with you, son. My little donkey has got herself a stone bruise in her forehoof and can't carry her load. I'm stuck here until I come by some manner of help. Normally nothing would make me happier than to help you, Tinker, I said, but I need to get to Traben as quickly as I can. That won't take much doing, he nodded over the hill to the north. You're only about a half mile out. If the wind was blowing southerly, you could smell the smoke. I looked in the direction he gestured and saw chimney smoke rising from behind the hill. A great wave of relief washed over me. I'd made it, and it was barely an hour after noon. The tinker continued. I need to get to the eaves down docks, he nodded to the east. I've made arrangements to ship down river, and I'd dearly love to catch my boat. He eyed my horse significantly. But I'll need a new pack animal to carry my gear. It seems my luck had finally turned. Salen was a fine horse, but now that I was in Traben, he would be little more than a constant drain on my limited resources. Still, it's never wise to look eager to sell. This is an awful lot of horse to be used for packing, I said, patting Keth Salen's neck. He's a full-blooded Kershain, and I can tell you I've never seen a better horse in all my days. The tinker looked him over skeptically. He's knackered is what he is, he said. He hasn't got another mile left in him. I swung off the saddle, staggering a bit when my rubbery legs almost buckled underneath me. You should give him more credit, Tinker. He's come all the way from Imre today. The Tinker chuckled. You're not a bad liar, boy, but you need to know when to stop. If the bait's too big, the fish won't bite. I didn't need to pretend to be horrified. I'm sorry I didn't properly introduce myself. I held out my hand. My name is Quoth. I'm a trooper and one of the Edema Rue. Never on my most desperate day would I lie to a tinker. The tinker shook my hand. Well, 
he said, slightly taken aback. My sincere apologies to you and your family. It's rare to see one of your folk alone on the road. He looked the horse over critically. All the way from Imre, you say? I nodded. That's what, almost sixty miles? Hell of a ride. He looked at me with a knowing smile. How are your legs? I grinned back at him. Let's just say I'll be glad to be on my own feet again. He's good for another ten miles, I'd guess, but I can't say the same for myself. The tinker looked over the horse again and gave a gusty sigh. Well, as I said, you've got me over a bit of a barrel. How much do you want for him? Well, I said, Keth Salen here is a full-blooded Kershane, and his color is lovely, you have to admit. Not a patch on him but isn't black. Not a white whisker. The tinker burst out laughing. I take it back, he said. You're a terrible liar. I don't see what's so funny, I said a little stiffly. The tinker gave me an odd look. Not a white whisker, no? He nodded past me toward Salen's hindquarters. But if he's all black, then I'm Orin Velsiter. I turned to look and saw that Keth Salen's left hind foot had a distinct white sock that went halfway up to his hock. Stupefied, I walked back and bent down to look. It wasn't a clean white, more of a washed-out gray. I could smell the faint odor of the stream we had splashed through on the last leg of our journey. Solvents. That shim bastard, I said incredulously. He sold me a dyed horse. Didn't the name tip you off? The tinker chuckled. Keth Salen? Lord, boy, someone's been thumbing their nose at you. His name means Twilight, I said. The tinker shook his head. Your Siaru is rusty. Ket Salem would be first night. Salen means sock. His name is one sock. I thought back to the horse trader's reaction when I'd picked the name. No wonder the fellow had seemed so disconcerted. No wonder he had dropped the price so quickly and easily. He thought I knew his little secret. The tinker laughed at my expression and clapped me on the back. Don't sweat it, lad. It happens to the best of us from time to time. He turned away and began to rummage through his bundles. I think I have something you'll like. Let me offer you a trade. He turned around and held out something black and gnarled like a piece of driftwood. I took it from him and looked it over. It was heavy and cold to the touch. A lump of slag iron? I asked. Are you out of magic beans? The tinker held out a pin in his other hand. He held it about a hand span away, then let go. Instead of falling, the pin snapped to the side and clung to the smooth blob of black iron. I drew in an appreciative breath. A loden stone? I've never seen one of these. Technically, it's a Traben stone, he said matter-of-factly, as it's never been near Loden, but you're near enough. There's all manner of people who would be interested in that beauty down Imre way. I nodded absently as I turned it over in my hands. I'd always wanted to see a drawstone, ever since I was a child. I pulled the pin away, feeling the strange attraction it had to smooth black metal. I marveled. A piece of star iron in my hand. 
How much do you figure it's worth? I asked. The tinker sucked his teeth a little. Well, I'm figuring right here and now it's worth just about one full-blooded Kershane pack mule. I turned it over in my hand, pulled the pin away, and let it snap back again. Trouble is, Tinker, I put myself into debt with a dangerous woman in order to buy this horse. If I don't sell it well, I'm going to be in a desperate way. He nodded. Piece of sky iron of that size? If you take less than eighteen talents, you're cutting a hole in your own purse. Jewelers will buy it, or rich folk who want it for the novelty. He tapped the side of his nose. But if you head to the university, you'll do better. Artificers have a great love for Lodenstone. Alchemists, too. If you find one in the right mood, you'll get more. It was a good deal. Manette had taught me Lodenstone was quite valuable and difficult to come by, not only for its galvanic properties, but because pieces of sky iron like this often had rare metals mingled with the iron. I held out my hand. I'm willing to make it a deal. We shook hands solemnly, then just as the tinker began to reach for the reins, I asked, And what will you give me for his tack and saddle? I was a little worried that the tinker might take offense at my wheedling, but instead he smiled a sly smile. That's a clever lad, he chuckled. I like a fellow who's not afraid to push for a little extra. What would you like, then? I've got a lovely woolen blanket here, or some nice rope. He pulled a coil of it out of the donkey's packs. Always good to have a piece of rope with you. Ooh, how about this? He turned around with a bottle in his hands and winked at me. I've got some lovely Avenish fruit wine. I'll give you all three for your horse's gear. I could use a spare blanket, I admitted. Then a thought occurred to me. Do you have any clothes near my size? I seem to be going through a lot of shirts lately. The old man paused, holding the rope and bottle of wine, then shrugged and began to dig around in his packs. Have you heard anything about a wedding around these parts? I asked. Tinkers always have their ears to the ground. The Mothin wedding? He tied off one pack and began to dig through another. I hate to tell you, but you missed it. Happened yesterday. My stomach clenched at his casual tone. If there had been a massacre, the tinker would certainly have heard. I suddenly had the horrible thought that I'd put myself in debt and run halfway to the mountains on a goose chase. Were you there? Did anything odd happen? Here we are. The tinker turned around, holding up a shirt of plain gray homespun. Nothing fancy, I'm afraid, but it's new. Well, newish. He held it up to my chest to judge the fit. The wedding? I prompted. What? Oh, no, I wasn't there. Bit of an event, though, from what I understand. Mothin's only daughter, and they were sending her off proper. Been planning it for months. So you didn't hear of anything odd happening? I asked, a sinking feeling in my gut. He shrugged helplessly. Like I said, I wasn't there. I've been up around the ironworks the last couple days. He nodded to the west. Trading with panners and folk up in the high rock. He tapped the side of his head as if he just remembered something. That reminds me. I found a brassy up in the hills. He rummaged in his packs again and brought out a flat, thick bottle. If you don't care for wine, maybe something a little stronger. 
I started to shake my head, then realized that some homemade brand would be useful cleaning my side tonight. I might be, I said, depending on the offer on the table. Honest young gent like yourself, he said grandly. I'll give you blanket, both bottles, and the coil of rope. You're generous, Tinker, but I'd rather have the shirt than the rope and the fruit wine. They'd just be dead weight in my bag, and I've got a lot of walking ahead of me. His expression soured a little, but he shrugged. Your call, of course. Blanket, shirt, brand, and three jots. We shook hands, and I took time to help him load Keth Salen because I had a vague feeling that I'd insulted him by turning down his previous offer. Ten minutes later he was heading east, and I made my way north over the green hills into Traban. I was glad to walk the last half mile under my own power as it helped me work the stiffness from my legs and back. As I crested the hill, I saw Traban sprawling out below, tucked into a low bowl made by the hills. It wasn't a large town by any means, perhaps a hundred buildings sprawling around a dozen winding packed dirt streets. In the early days with the troupe, I'd learned how to size up a town. It's a lot like reading your audience when you're playing in a tavern. The stakes are higher, of course. Play the wrong song in a tavern and people might hiss you, but misjudge an entire town and things can get uglier than that. So I sized up Traben. It was off the beaten path, halfway between a mining town and a farming town. They weren't likely to be instantly suspicious of strangers, but it was small enough that everyone knew by looking at you that you weren't one of the locals. I was surprised to see people setting up straw-stuffed shamblemen outside their homes. That meant that despite the proximity to Imre and the university, Traben was truly a backwater community. Every town has a harvest festival of some sort, but these days most folks settle for having a bonfire and getting drunk. The fact that they were following old folk traditions meant people in Traben were more superstitious than I would usually expect. Despite that, I liked seeing the shamblemen. I have a fondness for the traditional harvest festivals, superstitions and all. They're a type of theater, really. The Tailing Church was the nicest building in town, three stories tall and made of quarried stone. Nothing odd about that, but bolted above the front doors, high above the ground, was one of the biggest iron wheels I'd ever seen. It was real iron, too, not just painted wood. It was ten feet tall and must have weighed a solid ton. Ordinarily, such a display would have made me nervous, but since Traben was a mining town, I guessed it showed civic pride more than fanatic piety. Most of the other buildings in town were low to the ground, built of rough timber with cedar shingle roofs. The inn was respectable, though, two stories tall, with plaster walls and red clay tiles on the roof. There was bound to be someone in there who would know more about the wedding. There was a bare handful of people inside, not surprising as harvest was in full swing and there were still five or six hours of good daylight left. I put on my best anxious expression as I made my way over to the bar where the innkeeper stood. Excuse me, I said. I hate to trouble you, but I'm looking for someone. The innkeeper was a dark-haired man with a perpetual scowl. Who's that, then? My cousin was here for a wedding, I said, and I heard there was some trouble. At the word wedding... The innkeeper's scowl turned stony. I could feel the two men farther down the bar not looking at me, pointedly not looking anywhere in my direction. 
It was true, then. Something terrible had happened. I saw the innkeeper reach out and press his fingers onto the bar. It took me a second to realize he was touching the iron head of a nail driven into the wood. Bad business, he said shortly. Nothing I care to say about it. Please, I said, letting worry bleed into my tone. I was visiting family in Tem Falls when the rumor came down that something had happened. They're all busy pulling in the last of the wheat, so I promised I'd come up and see what the trouble was. The innkeeper looked me up and down. A gawker, he could turn away. But he couldn't deny me the right to know what had happened to a family member. There's the one upstairs who was there, he said shortly. Not from around here. Might be your cousin. A witness. I opened my mouth to ask another question, but he shook his head. I don't know a thing about it, he said firmly. Don't care to either. He turned and made himself suddenly busy with the taps of his beer barrels. Up at the far end of the hall, on the left. I headed across the room and up the stairs. I could feel everyone not looking at me now. Their silence and the innkeeper's tone made it clear that whoever was upstairs was not one of the many who had been there. It was the one. One survivor. I went to the end of the hallway and knocked on the door first softly, then again louder. I opened the door slowly so as not to startle whoever might be inside. It was a narrow room with a narrow bed. A woman lay on it, fully clothed, one arm wrapped in a bandage. Her head was turned toward the window so I could only see her profile. Still, I recognized her. Denna. I must have made some noise because she turned to look at me. Her eyes went wide, and for once she was the one who was at a loss for words. I heard you were in some trouble, I said nonchalantly, so I thought I'd come and help. Her eyes went wide for a moment, then narrowed. You're lying, she said with a wry twist to her lips. I am, I admitted, but it's a pretty lie. I took a step into the room and closed the door softly. I would have come if I'd known. Anyone can make the trip after they get the news, she said dismissively. It takes a special sort of man to show up when he doesn't know there's trouble. She sat up and turned to face me, swinging her legs over the side of the bed. Now that I looked more closely, I noticed that she had a bruise high on one temple in addition to the bandage on her arm. I took another step toward her. Are you all right? I asked. No, she said bluntly, but I could be a damn sight worse off. She came to her feet slowly, as if she was unsure how steady she would be. She took a cautious step or two and seemed more or less satisfied. Right. I can walk. Let's get out of here. Chapter 72 Borrow Rill Denna turned left instead of right as she came out of her room. At first I thought she was disoriented, but when she came to a back stairway... I saw she was actually trying to leave without heading through the tap room. She found the alley door, but it was locked fast. So we headed out the front. As soon as we entered the tap room, I was pointedly aware of everyone's attention on us. Denna made a beeline for the front door, moving but with slow determination of a storm cloud. We were almost out when the man behind the bar called out, Oi! Hey now! 
Denna's eyes flickered to the side. Her mouth made a thin line, and she continued her walk to the door as if she hadn't heard. I'll deal with him, I said softly. Wait for me. I'll be out in just a second. I walked over to where the barman stood scowling. That your cousin, then? he asked. Has the constable said she can go? I thought you didn't want to know anything about it, I said. I surely don't. But she's had use of the room and meals, and I had the doctor out to patch her up. I gave him a hard look. If there's a doctor in this town worth more than a half penny, then I'm the king of Vint. I'm out half a talent and all, he insisted. Bandages ain't free, and I had a woman by to sit with her, waiting for her to wake up. I doubted very much that he was out half that, but I certainly didn't want trouble with the constable. In truth, I didn't want any sort of delay. Given Denna's tendencies, I was worried that if I lost sight of her for more than a minute, she would disappear like morning fog. I took five jots from my purse and scattered them onto the bar. Knackers profit from a plague, I said scathingly, and left. I felt a ridiculous amount of relief when I saw Denna waiting outside, leaning against the horse post. Her eyes were closed and she had her face tilted toward the sun. She sighed contentedly and turned toward the sound of my approaching footsteps. Was it that bad? I asked. They were kind enough at first, Denna admitted, gesturing with her bandaged arm. But this old woman kept checking in on me. She frowned and brushed her long black hair back, giving me a clear view of the purpling bruise that spread from her temple all the way back to her hairline. You know the type. Some tight-laced spinster with a mouth like a cat's ass. I burst out laughing, and Denna's sudden smile was like the sun peering from behind a cloud. Then her face grew dark again as she continued. She kept giving me this look, like I should have had the decency to die with all the other folk, like all this was my fault. Denna shook her head. But she was better than the old men. The constable put his hand on my leg. She shuddered. Even the mayor came, clucking over me like he cared, but he was only there to badger me with questions. What were you doing there? What happened? What did you see? The scorn in Denna's voice made me bite back my own questions so quickly that I almost caught my tongue between my teeth. It's my nature to ask questions, not to mention that the whole purpose of this mad dash into the foothills was to investigate what had happened. Still, the tone of Denna's voice made it clear she was in no mood to give answers right now. I shrugged my travel sack higher up onto my shoulder, and something occurred to me. Wait! Your things! You left them all back in your room. Denna hesitated for a heartbeat. I don't think anything of mine was there, she said, as if the thought hadn't even occurred to her before. Are you sure you don't want to go back and check? She shook her head firmly. I leave where I'm not welcome, she said matter-of-factly. Everything else I can make up along the way. Denna started to walk down the street, and I fell in beside her. She turned onto a narrow side street heading west. We passed an old woman hanging a shamble man made of oat sheaves. It wore a crude straw hat and a pair of sackcloth pants. Where are we headed? I asked. I need to see if my things are out at the Mothin farm, she said. After that, I'm open to suggestions. Where were you planning to go before you found me? Honestly, I was heading out to the Mothin farm myself. 
Denna gave me a sideways look. Fair enough. It's only about a mile out to the farm. We can be there and still have plenty of light. The land around Traben was rough, mostly thick forest broken by stretches of rocky ground. Then the road would round a corner, and there would be a small, perfect field of golden wheat tucked among the trees, or nestled into a valley surrounded by dark stone bluffs. Farmers and hands dotted the fields, covered in chaff and moving with the slow weariness that comes from knowing half the day's harvest was still to come. We'd only been walking a minute when I heard a familiar thump of hooves behind us. I turned to see a small, open-topped cart bumping slowly up the road. Denna and I stepped off into the scrub as the road was barely wide enough for the cart. A bone-weary farmer eyed us suspiciously from where he sat, hunched over the reins. We're heading to the Mothin farm, Denna called out as he came closer. Would you mind if we caught a ride? The man eyed us grimly, then nodded toward the back of the cart. I'm heading past old Boril. You'll have to make your own way from there. Denna and I clambered on and sat facing backward on the clapboard with our feet dangling over the edge. It wasn't much faster than walking, but we were both glad to be off our feet. We rode in silence. Denna obviously wasn't interested in discussing things in front of the farmer, and I was glad to have a moment to think things over. I had planned on telling whatever lies were necessary to get the information I wanted from the witness. Denna complicated things. I didn't want to lie to her, but at the same time I couldn't risk telling her too much. The last thing I wanted to do was convince her that I was crazy with wild stories of the Chandrian. So we rode in silence. It was just nice being near her. You wouldn't think a girl in bandages with a blackened eye could be beautiful, but Denna was. Lovely as the moon, not flawless, perhaps, but perfect. The farmer spoke up, breaking my reverie. Yes, Boril. I looked around for the rill, but couldn't see it, which was a shame as I wouldn't mind a cool drink or a bit of a wash. Hours of hard riding had left me sweaty and smelling of horse. We thanked the farmer and hopped off the back of the cart. Denna led the way along the dirt track that wound back and forth up the side of the hill between the trees and the occasional outcrop of worn, dark stone. Denna seemed steadier than when we'd left the tavern, but kept her eyes on the ground, choosing her steps with deliberate care as if she didn't quite trust her balance. A sudden thought came to me. I got your note, I said, pulling the folded piece of paper out of a pocket in my cloak. When did you leave it for me? Nearly two span ago. I grimaced. I only got it last night. She nodded to herself. I worried about that when you never showed up. I thought it might have fallen out or gotten wet so you couldn't read it. I just haven't used the window lately, I said. Denna shrugged nonchalantly. Silly of me to assume you would, really. I tried to think of something to add. Something that would explain what she might have seen when Fella had given me my cloak in the Aeolian. I couldn't think of anything. I'm sorry I missed our lunch. Denna looked up, amused. Diak said you were caught in a fire or something. Told me that you looked positively wretched. I felt wretched, I said. More from missing you than from the fire. She rolled her eyes. I'm sure you were terribly distraught. 
You did me a favor in a way. While I was sitting there, alone, pining away, I said I was sorry. An older gentleman introduced himself to me. We talked, got to know each other. She shrugged and looked sideways at me, almost bashfully. I've been meeting with him ever since. If things continue smoothly, I think he'll be my patron before the year is out. Really? I said, relief splashing over me like cold water. That's wonderful and long overdue. Who is he? She shook her head, her dark hair falling down around her face. I can't say. He's obsessed with his privacy. He wouldn't tell me his real name for more than a span. Even now, I don't know if the name he's given me is real. If you're not sure who he really is, I said slowly, how do you know he's a gentleman? It was a foolish question. We both knew the answer, but she said it anyway. Money, clothes, bearing, she shrugged. Even if he's only a wealthy merchant, he'll still make a good patron. But not a great one. Merchant families don't have the same stability, and their names don't carry the same weight, she finished with another knowing shrug. Half a loaf is better than none, and I'm tired of having no loaf at all, she sighed. I've been working hard to reel him in, but he's so dodgy. We never meet in the same place twice, and never in public. Sometimes he'll set up a meeting and never even show up for it. Not that that's anything new in my life. Denna staggered as a rock shifted under her foot. I grabbed for her and she caught hold of my arm and shoulder before she fell. For a moment, we were pressed against each other, and I was very aware of her body against mine, as she took a moment to balance herself. I steadied her, and we moved apart. But after she regained her footing, she kept her hand resting lightly on my arm. I moved slowly, as if a wild bird had landed there and I was desperately trying to avoid startling it into flight. I considered putting my arm around her, partly for support and partly for other more obvious reasons. I quickly discarded the idea. I still remembered the look on her face when she mentioned the constable touching her leg. What would I do if she had a similar response to me? Men flocked around Denna, and I knew from our conversations how tiresome she found them. I couldn't bear the thought of making the same mistakes they made, simply because I didn't know any better. It was better not to risk offending her, better to be safe. As I've said before, there's a great difference between being fearless and being brave. We followed the path as it doubled back on itself, continuing up the hill. All was silent except for the wind moving in the tall grass. So he's secretive, I prompted gently worried that the silence would soon become uncomfortable. Secretive doesn't cover it by half, Dennis said, rolling her eyes. Once a woman offered me money for information about him. I played dumb, and later when I told him about it, he said it had been a test to see how much I could be trusted. Another time, some men threatened me. I'm guessing that was another test. The fellow sounded rather sinister to me, like a fugitive from the law or someone hiding from his family. I was about to say so when I saw Denna looking at me anxiously. She was worried, worried that I would think less of her for pandering to the whimsy of some paranoid lordling. I thought about my talk with Diok, about the fact that, hard as my lot was, hers was undoubtedly harder. 
What would I put up with if I could win a powerful noble's patronage? What would I go through to find someone who would give me money for loot strings, see that I was dressed and fed, and protect me from vicious little bastards like Ambrose? I bit back my previous comments and gave her a knowing grin. He'd better be rich enough to be worth your trouble, I said. Bags of money. Pots of it. Her mouth quirked up at the corner, and I felt her body relax, glad that I wasn't judging her. Well, that would be telling now, wouldn't it? Her eyes danced, saying, yes. He's the reason I'm here, she continued. He told me to show up at this wedding. It's a lot more rural than I expected, but... She shrugged again, a silent comment about the inexplicable desires of the nobility. I expected my patron-to-be to be there. She stopped, laughing. Did that even make any sense? Just make up a name for him, I suggested. You pick one, she said. Don't they teach you about names at the university? Annabelle, I suggested. I will not, she said, laughing. Refer to my potential patron as Annabelle. The Duke of Richmoney? Now you're just being flippant. Try again. Just tell me when I hit one you like. Frederick the Flippant. Frank. Farron. Foru. Fordale. She shook her head at me as we climbed the crest of the hill. As we finally reached the top, the wind gusted past us. Denna gripped my arm for balance, and I held up a hand to shield my eyes from dust and leaves. I coughed in surprise as the wind forced a leaf straight into my mouth, causing me to choke and sputter. Denna thought this was particularly funny. Fine, I said, as I fished the leaf out of my mouth. It was yellow, shaped like a spearhead. The wind has decided for us. Master Ash. Are you sure it isn't Master Elm? she asked, eyeing the leaf. It's a common mistake. Tastes like an ash, I said. Besides, Elm is feminine. She nodded seriously, though her eyes were dancing. Ash it is, then. As we made it out of the trees and over the top of the hill, the wind gusted again, pelting us with more debris before it died down. Denna took a step away from me, muttering and rubbing at her eyes. The part of my arm where her hand had rested suddenly felt very cold. Black hands, she said, scrubbing at her face. I've got chaff in my eyes. Not chaff, I said, looking across the top of the hill. Not fifty feet away was a cluster of charred buildings that must have once been the Mothin farm. Ash. I led Denna to a little stand of trees that blocked the wind and the sight of the farm. I gave her my water bottle and we sat on a fallen tree, resting as she rinsed her eyes clean. You know, I said hesitantly, you don't need to go over there. I could look for your things if you tell me where you left them. Her eyes narrowed a little. I can't tell if you're being considerate or condescending. I don't know what you saw last night, so I don't know how delicate I should be. I don't need much delicacy as a rule, she said shortly. I'm no blushing daisy. Daisies don't blush. Denna looked at me, blinking her red eyes. You're probably thinking of shrinking violet or blushing virgin. Either way, daisies are white. They can't blush. That, she said flatly, was condescending. Well, I thought I'd let you know what it looked like, I said. For comparison, 
so there's less confusion when I'm trying to be considerate. We stared at each other for a bit. Eventually, she looked away, rubbing at her eyes. Fair enough, she admitted. She tilted her head back and splashed more water onto her face, blinking furiously. I really didn't see much, she said as she daubed her face on her shirt sleeve. I played before the wedding, then again while they were getting ready for supper. I kept expecting my... She gave a faint smile. Master Ash to make an appearance, but I knew I couldn't dare ask about him. For all I knew, the whole thing was another test of his. She trailed off, frowning. He has a way of signaling me, a way of letting me know when he's around. I excused myself and found him over by the barn. We headed into the woods for a bit, and he asked me questions. Who was there, how many people, what they looked like. She looked thoughtful. Now that I'm thinking of it, I think that was the real test. He wanted to see how observant I was. He almost sounds like a spy, I mused. Denna shrugged. We wandered for about half an hour, talking. Then he heard something and told me to wait for him. He headed off toward the farmhouse and was gone for a long while. How long? Ten minutes, she shrugged. You know how it is when you're waiting for someone. It was dark and I was cold and hungry. She wrapped her arms around her stomach and leaned forward a little. Gods, I'm hungry now, too. I wish I would have... I pulled an apple out of my travel sack and handed it to her. They were gorgeous, red as blood, sweet and crisp. The sort of apples you dream about all year but can only get for a few weeks during the fall. Denna gave me a curious look. I used to travel a lot, I explained as I took one for myself, and I used to be hungry a lot, so I usually carry something to eat. I'll fix you a real dinner when we set camp for the night. And he cooks, too. She bit into the apple and took a drink of water to wash it down. Anyway, I thought I heard shouting, so I headed back in the direction of the farm. When I came out from behind a bluff, I could definitely hear screaming and shouting. Then I got closer and smelled smoke, and I saw the light of the fire through the trees. What color was it? I asked, my mouth half full of apple. Denna looked at me sharply, her expression suddenly suspicious. Why do you ask that? I'm sorry, I interrupted. I said, swallowing my mouthful of apple. Finish your story first, and I'll tell you afterward. I've been talking an awful lot, she said, and you haven't made any mention at all of why you're up in this little corner of the world. The masters down at the university heard some odd rumors and sent me here to find out if they were true, I said. There was no awkwardness or hesitation in the lie. I didn't even plan it, really. It just came out. Forced to make a snap decision, I couldn't safely tell her the truth about my search for the Chandrian. I couldn't bear the thought of Denna thinking I was brain-addled. The university does that sort of thing, Denna asked. I thought you lot just sat around reading books. Some folks read, I admitted. But when we hear strange rumors, someone needs to go out and find out what's really happened. When people get superstitious, they start to look toward the university and think, who around here is meddling with dark powers better left alone? Who should we toss into a great blazing bonfire? So you do this sort of thing a lot? She made a gesture with her half-eaten apple. Investigate things? I shook my head. I just got on a master's bad side. 
he made sure I drew the short straw for this little trip. Not a bad lie, considering it was off the cuff. It would even hold up if she did any asking around, as parts of it were true. When necessity demands it, I'm an excellent liar. Not the noblest of skills, but useful. It ties closely to acting and storytelling, and I learned all three from my father, who was a master craftsman. You are so full of horseshit, she said matter-of-factly. I froze with my teeth halfway into my apple. I pulled back, leaving white impressions in the red skin. I beg your pardon? She shrugged. If you don't want to tell me, that's fine, but don't fabricate some story out of a misguided desire to pacify or impress me. I drew a deep breath, hesitated, and let it out slowly. I don't want to lie to you about why I'm here, I said, but I worry what you might think if I tell you the truth. Denna's eyes were dark, thoughtful, and gave nothing away. Fair enough, she said at last with an almost imperceptible nod. I believe that. She took a bite of her apple and gave me a long look as she chewed, never looking away from my eyes. Her lips were wet and redder than the apple. I heard some rumors, I said at last, and I want to know what happened here. That's all, really. I just... Listen, Quoth, I'm sorry. Denna sighed and ran a hand through her hair. I shouldn't have pushed you. It's none of my business, really. I know what it's like to have secrets. I almost told her everything then. The whole story about my parents, the Chandrian, the man with black eyes and a nightmare smile. But I worried it might seem like the desperate elaboration of a child caught in a lie. So instead, I took the coward's way out and stayed silent. You'll never find your true love that way, Denna said. I snapped out of my reverie, confused. I'm sorry, what? You eat the core of your apple, she said, amused. You eat it all around, then from the bottom to the top. I've never seen anyone do that before. Old habit, I said dismissively, not wanting to tell her the truth, that there had been a time in my life when the core was all of the apple I was likely to find, and I'd been glad of it. What did you mean before? Didn't you ever play that game? She held up her own apple core and grabbed the stem with two fingers. You think of a letter and twist. If the stem stays on, you think of another letter and twist again. When the stem breaks off, hers did, you know the first letter of the name of the person you are going to fall in love with. I looked down at the tiny piece of apple I had left. Not enough to grip and twist. I bit off the last of the apple and tossed the stem. Looks like I'm destined to be loveless. There you go with seven words again, she said with a smile. You do realize you always do that. It took me a minute to realize what she was referring to, but before I could respond, Denna had moved on. I heard the seeds are supposed to be bad for you, she said. They have arsenic in them. That's just a wives' tale, I said. It was one of the ten thousand questions I'd asked Ben when he traveled with the troop. It's not arsenic, it's cyanide, and there's not enough to hurt you unless you eat buckets full. Oh. Denna gave the remains of her apple a speculative look, then began to eat it from the bottom up. You were telling me about what happened to Master Ash before I rudely interrupted, I prompted gently as I could. Denna shrugged. 
there isn't much left to tell. I saw the fire, came closer, heard more shouting and commotion. And the fire? She hesitated. Blue. I felt a sort of anticipation rise up in me. Excitement at finally being close to answers about the Chandrian. Fear at the thought of being close to them. What did the ones look like who attacked you? How did you get away? She gave a bitter laugh. Nobody attacked me. I saw shapes outlined against the fire and ran like Billy Hell. She lifted her bandaged arm and touched the side of her head. I must have gone headfirst into a tree and knocked myself out. I woke up in town this morning. That's the other reason I needed to come back, she said. I don't know if Master Ash might still be out here. I didn't hear anyone in town talking about finding an extra body, but I couldn't ask without making everyone suspicious. And he wouldn't like that, I said. Denna nodded. I don't doubt he'll turn this into another test to see how well I can keep my mouth shut. She gave me a significant look. Speaking of which, I'll make a point of being terribly surprised if we find anyone, I said. Don't worry. She smiled nervously. Thanks. I just hope he's alive. I've invested two whole span trying to win him over. She took a final drink out of my water bottle and handed it back to me. Let's go have a look around, shall we? Denna came unsteadily to her feet and I tucked my water bottle back into my travel sack, watching her out of the corner of my eye. I had worked in the Medica for the better part of a year. Denna had been struck on her left temple hard enough to blacken her eye and bruise her well past her ear into her hairline. Her right arm was bandaged, and from the way she carried herself, I guessed she had some serious bruises along her left side, if not a few broken ribs. If she had run into a tree... It must have been an oddly shaped tree. But still, I didn't make a point of it. Didn't press her. How could I? I, too, knew what it was like to have secrets. The farm was nowhere near as gruesome as it could have been. The barn was nothing but a jumble of ash and planking. To one side, a water trough stood next to a charred windmill. The wind tried to spin the wheel, but it only had three fins left, and it simply swayed back and forth, back and forth. There were no bodies. Only the deep ruts wagon wheels had cut into the turf when they had come to haul them away. How many people were at the wedding? I asked. Twenty-six, counting the bride and groom. Denna kicked idly at a charred timber, half buried in ashes near the remains of the barn. Good thing it usually rains in the evenings here, or this whole side of the mountain would be on fire by now. Any simmering feuds lurking around here? I asked. Rival families? Another suitor looking for revenge? Of course, Denna said easily. Little town like this, that's what keeps things on an even keel. These folk will carry a grudge for fifty years about what their Tom said about our carry. She shook her head. But nothing of the killing sort. These were normal folk. Normal, but wealthy. I thought to myself as I walked toward the farmhouse. This was the sort of house only a wealthy family could afford to build. The foundation and the lower walls were solid gray stone. The upper story was plaster and timber with stone reinforcing the corners. Still, 
the wall sagged inward on the verge of collapse. The windows and door gaped with dark soot licking out around the edges. I peered through the doorway and saw the gray stone of the walls charred black. There was broken crockery scattered among the remains of furniture and charred floorboards. If your things were in there, I said to Denna, I think they're as good as gone. I can go in for a look. Don't be stupid, she said. This whole thing is about to come down. She knocked a knuckle against the door frame. It echoed hollowly. Curious at the odd sound of it, I went over to look. I picked at the doorpost with a fingernail, and a long splinter the size of my palm peeled away with little resistance. This is more like driftwood than timber, I said. After spending all this money, why skimp on the doorframe? Denna shrugged. Maybe the heat of the fire did it. I nodded absently and continued to wander around, looking things over. I bent to pick up a piece of charred shingle and muttered a binding under my breath. A brief chill spread up my arms and flame flickered to life along the rough edge of the wood. That's something you don't see every day, Denna said. Her voice was calm, but it was a forced calm, as if she was trying to sound nonchalant. It took me a moment to figure out what she was talking about. Simple sympathy like this was so commonplace in the university that I hadn't even thought about how it would look to someone else. Just a little meddling with dark forces better left alone, I said lightly, holding up the burning shingle. The fire was blue last night? She nodded. Like a coal gas flame. Like the lamps they have in aniline. The shingle was burning an ordinary, cheerful orange. No trace of blue about it, but it could have been blue last night. I dropped the shingle and crushed it out with my boot. I circled the house again. Something was bothering me, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I wanted to go inside for a look around. The fire really wasn't that bad, I called out to Denna. What did you end up leaving inside? Not that bad, she said incredulously as she came around the corner. The place is a husk. I pointed. The roof isn't burned through except right by the chimney. That means the fire probably didn't damage the second story very much. What of yours was in there? I had some clothes and a liar Master Ash bought for me. You play the liar? I was surprised. How many strings? Seven. I'm just learning. She gave a brief humorless laugh. I was learning. I'm good enough for a country wedding, and that's about it. Don't waste yourself on the lyre, I said. It's an archaic instrument with no room for subtlety. Not to disparage your choice of instrument, I said quickly. It's just that your voice deserves better accompaniment than a lyre can give you. If you're looking for a straight-string instrument you can carry with you, go for a half-harp. You're sweet, she said. But I didn't pick it. Mr. Ash did. I'll push him for a harp next time. She looked around aimlessly and sighed. If he's still alive. I peered in one of the gaping windows to look around, only to have a chunk of the windowsill snap off in my hands when I leaned on it. This one's rotten through, too, I said, crumbling it in my hands. Exactly. Denna took hold of my arm and pulled me away from the window. The place is just waiting to fall in on you. It's not worth going in. Like you said, it's just a liar. 
I let myself be led away. Your patron's body might be up there. Denna shook her head. He's not the sort to run into a burning building and get himself trapped. She gave me a hard look. What do you think you're going to find in there anyway? I don't know, I admitted. But if I don't go inside, I don't know where else to look for clues about what really happened here. What rumors did you hear anyway? Denna asked. Not much, I admitted, thinking back to what the bargeman had said. A bunch of people were killed at a wedding, everyone dead, torn apart like rag dolls, blue fire. They weren't really torn apart, Denna said. From what I heard in town, it was a lot of knife and sword work. I hadn't seen anyone wearing so much as a belt knife since I'd been in town. The closest thing had been farmers with sickles and scythes in the fields. I looked back at the sagging farmhouse, sure that I was missing something. So what do you think happened here? she asked. I don't know, I said. I was half expecting to find nothing. You know how rumors get blown out of proportion. I looked around. I would have written the blue fire off to rumor if you hadn't been here to confirm it. Other people saw it last night, she said. Things were still smoldering when they came for the bodies and found me. I looked around, irritated. I still felt like I was missing something, but I couldn't think of what in the world it could be. What do they think in town? I asked. Folk weren't really talkative around me, she said bitterly. But I caught a bit of the conversation between the constable and the mayor. Folk are whispering about demons. The blue fire made sure of that. Some folk were talking about shamble men. I expect the harvest festival will be more traditional than usual this year. Lots of fires and cider and straw men. I looked around again. The collapsed wreckage of the barn, a windmill with three fins, and a burned-out husk of a house. Frustrated, I ran my hands through my hair, still sure I was missing something. I'd expected to find... something. Anything. As I stood there, it occurred to me how foolish the hope was. What had I hoped to find? A footprint? A scrap of cloth from someone's cloak? Some crumpled note with a vital piece of information conveniently written out for me to find? That sort of thing only happened in stories. I pulled out my water bottle and drank off the last of it. Well, I'm done here, I said as I walked over to the water trough. What are you planning to do next? I need to look around a bit, she said. There's a chance my gentleman friend is out there, hurt. I looked out over the rolling hills, gold with autumn leaves and wheat fields, green with pasture and stands of pine and fir. Scattered throughout were the dark scars of bluffs and stone outcroppings. There's a lot of ground to cover, I said. She nodded, her expression resigned. I've got to at least make an effort. Would you like some help? I asked. I know a little woodcraft. I certainly wouldn't mind the company, she said, especially considering the fact that there may be a troop of marauding demons in these parts. Besides, you already offered to make me dinner tonight. That I did. I made my way past the charred windmill to the iron hand pump. I grabbed the handle, leaned my weight against it, and staggered as it snapped off at the base. 
I stared at the broken pump handle. It was rusted through to the center, crumbling away in gritty sheets of red rust. In a sudden flash, I remembered coming back to find my troop killed that evening so many years ago. I remembered reaching out a hand to steady myself and finding the strong iron bands on the wagon's wheel rusted away. I remembered the thick, solid wood falling to pieces when I touched it. Quoth? Denna's face was close to mine, her expression concerned. Are you all right? Taylu Blacken, sit down before you fall down. Are you hurt? I moved to sit on the edge of the water trough, but the thick planking crumbled under my weight like a rotten stump. I let gravity pull me the rest of the way down and sat on the grass. I held the rusted-through pump handle up for Denna to see. She frowned at it. That pump was new. The father was bragging about how much it had cost to get a well set up here at the top of the hill. He kept saying that no daughter of his would have to carry buckets uphill three times a day. What do you think happened here? I asked. Truthfully. She looked around, the bruise on her temple a sharp contrast against her pale skin. I think when I'm done looking for my patron-to-be, I'm going to wash my hands of this place and never look back. That's not an answer, I said. What do you think happened? She looked at me for a long moment before responding. Something bad. I've never seen a demon, and I don't ever expect to. But I've never seen the King of Vint, either. Do you know that children's song? Denna looked at me blankly, so I sang. When the hearth fire turns to blue, what to do, what to do? Run outside, run and hide. When your bright sword turns to rust, who to trust, who to trust? Stand alone, standing stone. Denna grew paler as she realized what I was implying. She nodded and chanted the chorus softly to herself. See a woman pale as snow. Silent come and silent go. What's their plan? What's their plan? Chandrian, Chandrian. Denna and I sat in the patchwork shade of the autumn trees, out of sight of the ruined farm. Chandrian. The Chandrian were really here. I was still trying to collect my thoughts when she spoke. Is this what you were expecting to find? she asked. It's what I was looking for, I said. The Chandrian were here less than a day ago. But I didn't expect this. I mean, when you're a child and you go digging for buried treasure, you don't expect to find any. You go looking for dennerlings and fairies in the forest, but you don't find them. They killed my troop, and they killed this wedding party. Hell, I go looking for you and Imre all the time, but I don't actually expect to find you. I trailed off, realizing that I was blathering. Some of the tension bled out of Denna as she laughed. There was no mocking in it, only amusement. So am I lost treasure or a failing? You're both. Hidden, valuable, much sought and seldom found. I looked up at her my mind hardly attending to what was coming out of my mouth. There's much of the fae in you as well. They are real. The Chandrian were real. You're never where I look for you, then you appear all unexpected. 
like a rainbow. Over the last year, I'd held a silent fear in my secret heart. I worried at times that the memory of my troop's death and the Chandrian had just been a strange sort of grief dream my mind had created to help me deal with the loss of my entire world. But now I had something resembling proof. They were real. My memory was real. I wasn't crazy. When I was a child, I chased a rainbow for an hour one evening. It got lost in the woods. My parents were frantic. I thought I could catch up to it. I could see where it should touch the ground. That's what your... Denna touched my arm. I felt the sudden warmth of her hand through my shirt. I drew a deep breath and smelled the smell of her hair, warm with the sun. The smell of green grass and her clean sweat and her breath and apples. The wind sighed through the trees and lifted her hair so that it tickled my face. Only when sudden silence filled the clearing did I realize that I had been keeping up a steady stream of mindless chatter for several minutes. I flushed with embarrassment and looked around, suddenly remembering where I was. You were a little wild around the eyes there, she said gently. I don't think I've ever seen you out of sorts before. I took another slow breath. I'm out of sorts all the time, I said. I just don't show it. My point exactly. She took a step back, her hand slowly sliding down the length of my arm until it fell away. So what now? I... I have no idea. I looked around aimlessly. That doesn't sound like you either, she said. I'd like a drink of water, I said, then gave a sheepish grin at how childish it sounded. She grinned back at me. That's a good place to start, she teased. After that? I'd like to know why the Chandrian attacked here. What's their plan, eh? She looked serious. There isn't much middle ground with you, is there? All you want is a drink of water and then the answer to a question that folk have been guessing at since, well, since forever. What do you think happened here? I asked. Who do you think killed these folks? She crossed her arms in front of her chest. I don't know, she said. It could have been all manner of... She stopped, chewing on her lower lip. No, that's a lie, she said at last. It sounds strange to say, but I think it was them. It sounds like something out of a story, so I don't want to believe it. But I do. She looked at me nervously. That makes me feel better. I stood up. I thought I might be a little crazy. You still might be, she said. I'm not a good touchstone to use for judging your sanity. Do you feel crazy? She shook her head, a half-smile curling the corner of her mouth. No. How about you? Not particularly. That's either good or bad, depending, she said. How do you propose we go about solving the mystery of the ages? I need to think on it for a while, I said. In the meantime, let's find your mysterious master, Ash. I'd love to ask him a few questions about what he saw back at the Mothin farm. Denna nodded. I was thinking I would head back to where he left me, behind that bluff, then look between there and the farm. 
she shrugged. It's not much of a plan. It gives us a place to start, I said. If he came back and found you were gone, he might have left a trail that we could pick up. Denna led the way through the woods. It was warmer here. The trees kept the wind at bay, but the sun could still peer through as many of the trees were nearly bare. Only the tall oaks were still holding all their leaves like self-conscious old men. As we walked, I tried to think of what reason the Chandrian could have had for killing these people. Was there any similarity between this wedding party and my troop? Someone's parents have been singing the entirely wrong sort of songs. What did you sing last night? I asked. For the wedding. The usual, Dennis said, kicking through a pile of leaves. Bright stuff. Penny whistle, come wash in the river, copper bottom pot, she chuckled. Aunt Emmy's tub. You didn't, I said aghast. At a wedding? A drunk grandfather asked for it. She shrugged as she made her way through a thick tangle of yellow baner buyer. There were a few raised eyebrows, but not many. They're earthy folk around here. We walked a little longer in silence. The wind gusted in the high branches above us, but where we trudged along, it was just a whisper. I don't think I've ever heard come wash before. I'd have thought. Denna looked over her shoulder at me. Are you trying to trick me into singing for you? Of course. She turned and smiled warmly at me, her hair falling into her face. Maybe later. I'll sing for my supper. She led us around a tall outcrop of dark stone. It was chillier here, out of the sun. I think he left me here, she said, looking around uncertainly. Everything looks different during the day. Do you want to search the route back toward the farm, or circle out from here? Circles, she said, but you'll have to show me what I'm supposed to be looking for. I'm a city girl. I briefly showed her what little I knew of woodcraft. I showed her the sort of ground where a boot will leave a scuff or a print. I pointed out how the pile of leaves she had walked through were obviously disturbed, and how the branches of the banner buyer were broken and torn where she'd struggled through. We stayed close together, as two pairs of eyes are better than one, and neither of us was eager to set off alone. We worked back and forth, making larger and larger arcs away from the bluff. After five minutes, I began to sense the futility of it. It was just too much forest. I could tell that Denna quickly came to the same conclusion. The storybook clues we hoped to find once again failed to show themselves. There were no torn scraps of cloth clinging to branches, no deep boot prints or abandoned campsites. We did find mushrooms, acorns, mosquitoes, and raccoon scat cleverly concealed by pine needles. Do you hear water? Denna asked. I nodded. I could really do with a drink, I said, and a bit of a wash. We wandered wordlessly away from our search, neither one of us wanting to admit that we were eager to give up, both of us feeling in our bones how pointless it was. We followed the sound of running water down the hill until we pushed through a thick stand of pine trees and came upon a lovely deep stream about twenty feet across. There was no scent of foundry runoff in this water, so we drank, and I topped off my water bottle. I knew the shape of stories. 
When a young couple comes to a river, there is a definite shape to what will happen next. Denna would bathe on the other side of the nearby fir tree, out of sight on a sandy bit of shore. I would move off a discreet distance, out of sight but within easy talking distance. Then, something would happen. She would slip and turn her ankle, or cut her foot on a sharp stone, and I'd be forced to rush over, and then... But this was not a story of two young lovers meeting by the river. So I splashed some water on my face and changed into my clean shirt behind a tree. Denna dipped her head in the water to cool off. Her glistening hair was dark as ink until she wrung it out with her hands. Then we sat on a stone, dandling our feet in the water and enjoying each other's company as we rested. We shared an apple, passing it back and forth between bites, which is close to kissing if you've never kissed before. And after some gentle goading, Denna sang for me. One verse of Come Wash, a verse I had never heard before, which I suspect she made up on the spot. I will not repeat it here, as she sang it to me, not to you. And since this is not the story of two young lovers meeting by the river, it has no particular place here, and I will keep it to myself. Chapter 73 Pegs Not long after the apple was gone, Denna and I pulled our feet out of the water and gathered ourselves to leave. I considered leaving off my boots, as feet that can run bare over Tarbian's rooftops are in no danger of being hurt by the roughest forest floor. But I didn't want to appear uncivilized, so I pulled on my socks despite the fact that they were damp and clammy with sweat. I was lacing up my boot when I heard a faint noise off in the forest, out of sight behind a stand of thick pine trees. Quietly, I reached out to Denna, touched her shoulder lightly to get her attention, and held my finger to my lips. What? she mouthed silently. I moved closer, stepping carefully to make as little sound as possible. I think I hear something, I said, my head close to hers. I'm going to go have a look. Like hell you are, she whispered, her face pale in the shadow of the pines. That's exactly what Ash said before he left last night. I'll be damned if you're going to disappear on me too. Before I could reply, I heard more movement through the trees, brush rustling, the sharp snap of a dry pine branch. As the noise got louder, I could pick out the sound of something big breathing heavily, then a low animal grunt. Not human, not the Chandrian. My relief was short-lived as I heard another grunt and some snuffling. A wild boar, probably heading for the river. Get behind me, I said to Denna. Most people don't realize how dangerous wild boars are, especially in the fall, when the males are fighting for dominance. Sympathy wouldn't be any good. I had no source, no link. I didn't have so much as a stout stick. Would it be distracted by the few apples I had left? The boar shouldered aside the low-hanging boughs of the nearby pine, snuffling and huffing. It probably weighed twice as much as me. It gave a great guttural grunt as it looked up and saw us. It lifted its head, nose wriggling, trying to catch our scent. Don't run, or it'll chase you, I said softly, stepping slowly in front of Denna. At a loss for anything better, I brought out my folding knife and worked it open with my thumb. Just back up and get into the river, 
They aren't good swimmers. I don't think she's dangerous, Dennis said in a normal tone behind me. She looks more curious than angry. She paused. Not that I don't appreciate your noble urges and all. At second glance, I saw Denna was right. It was a sow, not a boar, and under a patina of mud, it was the pink of a domestic pig, not the brown bristle of a wild one. Bored, it lowered its head and began to root around among the shrubbery below the pines. Only then did I realize I was poised in a sort of half-crouch, one hand out like a wrestler. In the other hand, I held my pitiful folding knife, so small it needed several runs at having a good-sized apple. Worst of all, I was only wearing one boot. I looked ridiculous, crazy as Elodin on his worst day. My face flushed hot and I knew I must be red as a beet. Merciful Taylor, I feel like an idiot. It's rather flattering, actually, Dennis said. With the exception of some rather irritating posturing in bars, I don't know if I've ever had anyone actually leap to my defense before. Yes, of course. I kept my eyes down as I tugged on my other sock and boot, too embarrassed to look her in the eye. It's every girl's dream to be rescued from someone's pet pig. I'm serious. I looked up and saw some gentle amusement in her face, but no mocking. You looked fierce, like a wolf with all its hackles up. She stopped, looking up at my head. Or a fox, I suppose. You're too red for a wolf. I relaxed a bit. A bristling fox is better than a deranged, half-shod idiot. You're holding your knife wrong, though, she said matter-of-factly, nodding toward my hand. If you actually stabbed anyone, your grip would slip and you'd cut your own thumb. Reaching out, she took hold of my fingers and moved them slightly. If you hold it like this, your thumb is safe. The downside is that you lose a lot of the mobility in your wrist. Been in a lot of knife fights, have you? I asked, bemused. Not as many as you might think, she said with a sly smile. It's another page out of that worn book you men are so fond of using to court us. She rolled her eyes, exasperated. I can't count the men who have tried to seduce me away from my virtue by teaching me how to defend it. I've never seen you wearing a knife, I pointed out. Why is that? Why would I wear a knife? Denna asked. I am a delicate blossom and all that. A woman who goes around wearing a knife is obviously looking for trouble. She reached deep into her pocket and brought out a long, slender piece of metal, glittering all along one edge. However, a woman who carries a knife is ready for trouble. Generally speaking, it's easier to appear harmless. It's less trouble all around. Only the fact that she was so matter-of-fact kept me from being startled. Her knife wasn't much larger than mine, but hers wasn't a folding knife. It was a straight piece of metal, with thin leather wrapping the grip. It clearly wasn't designed for eating or performing odd jobs around the campfire. It looked more like one of the razor-sharp surgical knives from the Medica. How do you keep that in your pocket without cutting yourself to shreds? I asked. Denna turned sideways to show me. My pocket is slit all along the inside. It straps to my leg. That's why it's so flat. So you can't see I'm wearing it. She gripped the leather handle and held her knife in front of her for me to see. Like this. You want to keep your thumb along the flat.
Are you trying to seduce me away from my virtue by teaching me how to defend it? I asked. Like you have any virtue, she laughed. I'm trying to keep you from cutting up your pretty hands the next time you have to save a girl from a pig. She cocked her head to the side. Speaking of, did you know that when you're angry, your eyes... No, pigs! A voice came through the trees, accompanied by the dull clank of a bell. Pig, 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 pig! The great sow perked up and trotted back through the brush toward the sound of the voice. Denna took a moment to replace her knife while I picked up my travel sack. Following the pig through the trees, we spotted a man downstream with a half dozen large sows milling around him. There was an old bristling boar, too, and a score of assorted piglets scampering underfoot. The swineherd eyed us suspiciously. Hello! he shouted. Don't be afeard! Tell on, bait! He was lean and leathery from the sun, with a scraggling beard. His long stick had a crude bronze bell hanging from it, and he wore a tattered bag over one shoulder. He smelled better than you'd probably expect, as ranging pigs keep themselves cleaner than those kept penned. Even if he had smelled like a penned pig, I couldn't really hold it against him, as I had no doubt smelled worse at various points in my life. I thought I heard some of Dan did a water ice, he said, his accent so thick and oily you could almost taste it. My mother referred to it as a deep valley accent, since you only found them in towns that didn't have much contact with the outside world. Even in small rural towns like Traben, folk didn't have much of an accent these days. Living in Tarbian and Imre for so long, I hadn't heard a dialect this thick in years. The fellow must have grown up in a truly remote location, probably tucked far back into the mountains. He came up to where we stood, his weathered face grim as he squinted at us. What are the tired doing out here? he said suspiciously. I thought I heard singing. I tore me cousin, I said, making a nod toward Denna. She had to have a lovely voice for screlling, don't she? I held out my hand. I'm me great glad to meet you, sir. You clap me quoth. He looked taken aback when he heard me speak, and a good portion of the grim suspicion faded from his expression. Please, I'm certain, Master Quoth he said, shaking my hand. It's a rare trite to meet a fellow who speaks proper. Gummers round ears, poor son like to call a mouthful of wool. I laughed. My father used to say, wool in the mouth and wool in the head. He grinned and shook my hand. My name is Skyvan Schimmelfennig. You've got the name enough for a king, I said. Would you be terrible offended if I purred it down to Shim? All my friends there. He grinned at me, clapping me on the back. Shimmer do fine for lovely young folk likes yourselves. He looked back and forth between Denna and myself. Denna, much to her credit, hadn't so much as batted an eye at my sudden change in dialect. Forgive me, I said, making a gesture in her direction. Shim, this is my most favorite cousin. Denna, Denna said. I dropped my voice to a stage whisper. Ah, sweet lass, but she is terribly shy. You won't be hearing Mechelo to hear, I'm afeard. Denna picked up her part without the least hesitation, looking down at her feet and twining her fingers together nervously. She glanced up long enough to smile at the swineherd, then dropped her eyes again, making such a picture of awkward bashfulness that I was almost fooled myself. Shim touched his forehead politely and nodded. Pleased to meet you, Denna. I ain't never heard a voice so lovely in all me life, he said, pushing his shapeless hat back onto his head a bit. 
When Denna still wouldn't meet his eye, he turned back to me. Boy ain't looking hard. I nodded in the direction of the scattered pigs that were meandering through the trees. He shook his head, chuckling. Nay, hard. Shaps and coals make a hard. Pegs is a sounder. Is that so? I said. Is there a chance, friend Shim, that I might buy a fine way peg from you? My cousin I missed our dinner today. My do, he said cautiously, his eyes flickering to my purse. If you dress it for us, I'll give you four jots, I said, knowing it to be a generous price. But that's only if you'll do us a favor of sitting down and sharing a wee bit with us. It was a casual testing of the waters. People in solitary jobs like shepherds or swineherds tend to either enjoy their own company or be starved for conversation. I hoped Shim was the latter. I needed information about the wedding, and none of the people in town seemed likely to talk. I gave him a sly grin and dipped my hand into my travel sack, bringing out the bottle of brand I'd bought from the tinker. We've even got a drama something to say, isn't it? If you're not opposed to taking a drop with a couple of strangers early in the day. Denna caught her cue and glanced up in time to catch Shem's eye, smile shyly, then look down again. Well, may mother raise me proper, the swineherd said piously, laying a hand flat on his chest. I don't drink, but when I'm thirsty, I when the wind's blowing. He tipped his shapeless hat dramatically off his head and made a half bow to us. You seem to be a good folk. I'd love to share a bit of dinner with you. Shem collared a young pig and carried it off a ways, where he killed and dressed it using a long knife from his bag. I cleared away leaves and stacked some rocks to make a quick fire pit. After a minute, Denna came back over with an armload of dry wood. I assume we're pumping this fellow for every scrap of information we can get, she said quietly over my shoulder. I nodded. Sorry about the shy cousin bit, but no, it was good thinking. I don't speak fluent bumpkin, and he'll be more likely to open up to someone who does. Her eyes flickered behind me. He's almost done. She wandered away toward the river. I covertly used some sympathy to start the fire, while Denna cobbled together a couple cooking skewers out of forked willow branches. Shem returned with the piglet, neatly quartered. I passed around the bottle of brand while the pig cooked over the fire, smoking and dripping fat onto the coals. I made a show of drinking, just raising the bottle and wetting my mouth. Denna tipped it when it passed her by as well, and there was some rosy color in her cheeks afterward. Shem was as good as his word, and since the wind was blowing, it wasn't too long before his nose was comfortably red. Shem and I chatted about nothing in particular until the pig was crispy and crackling on the outside. The more I listened, the more Shem's accent faded into the back of my awareness, and I didn't need to concentrate so much on maintaining my own. By the time the pig was done, I was hardly aware of it at all. You're right handy with a knife, I complimented Shem. But I'm surprised you'd got the little fella right here with the pigs close by. He shook his head. Pegs is vicious bastards. He pointed to one of the sows trotting over to the patch of ground where he dressed the pig. See? She's after this little one's lights. Pegs is clever, but to hain a touch sentimental. Declaring the pig nearly done, Shem brought out a round farmer's loaf and shared it three ways. Mutton, he grumbled to himself. Who wants mutton? when you can have a nice piece of bacon. He got to his feet and began to carve the pig with his long knife. 
What would you like, little lady? Jim said to Denna. I'm Naparsha myself, she said. I'll take whatever you have handy there. I was glad Shem wasn't looking at me when she spoke. Her accent wasn't perfect, a little too long on the O's and too tight in the back of the throat, but it was really quite good. Nay, need to be shy about it, Shem said. There'll be plenty and to spare. I've always had a liking for to hinder parts myself, Denna said, then flushed in embarrassment and looked down. Her O's were better this time. Shem showed his true gentlemanly nature by refraining from any crude comments as he lay a thick slice of steaming meat atop her piece of bread. Mind your fingers. Give it a minute to cool. Everyone set to. Shem served up seconds, then thirds. Before too long, we were licking the grease from our fingers and filling in the corners. I decided to get to business. If Shem wasn't ready for some gossip now, he never would be. I'm surprised to see you out and about with all the bad business lately. What business is that? he asked. He didn't know about the wedding massacre yet. Perfect. While he couldn't give me particulars about the attack itself, it meant he would be more willing to talk about the events leading up to the wedding, even if everyone in town wasn't scared to death. I doubted I'd be able to find anyone willing to speak with frank honesty about the dead. I heard they had some trouble up on the Muffin Farm, I said, keeping my information as vague and inoffensive as possible. He snorted. Can't say as I find that startling in the least. How's that? Shem spat to the side. Mothins are a right lot of bastards. I know better than they should be. He shook his head again. I keep off Barrowell cause I got one lick of good sense me mum beat into me. Mothin didn't even have that. It wasn't until I heard Shem say the name of the place in his thick accent that I heard it properly. It wasn't Boro Rill. It had nothing to do with a rill. It was Barrow Hill. I don't even graze me pegs up there. But that daft bastard built a house. He shook his head, disgusted. Didn't folk try and stop him? Denna prompted. The swineherd made a rude noise. Muffin ain't much for listening. Nothing plugs a man's ears like money. Still, it's just a house, I said dismissively. Ain't much harm in that. Man wants his daughter to have a fine house with a view. That's all the good, Shem conceded. But when you're digging a foundation and you find bones and such and you done stop, that's a whole new type of stupid. He didn't, Dennis said aghast. Shem nodded, leaning forward. And that weren't the worst of it. He keeps digging, and he hits stones. Then does he stop? He sniffed. He starts pulling them up. Looking for more so he can use them for the house. Why wouldn't he want to use the stones he found? I asked. Shem looked at me like I was daft. Would you build a house with bar of stones? Would you dig something out of the barrow and give it to your daughter as a wedding present? He found something. What was it? I passed him the bottle. Well, that's the great damn secret, ain't it? Shem said bitterly, taking another drink. From what I hear... He was out there, digging the house foundation and pulling up stones. Then he finds a little stone room all sailed up tight. But he makes everybody keep mum about what he finds her on account of he wants it to be his great surprise at the wedding. Some sort of treasure? I ask. 
Nah, money. He shook his head. Martin's never been quite about that. It were probably some sort of... His mouth opened and closed a bit, searching for a word. What do you call something more the rich folk put on a shelf to impress all their grummer friends? I gave a helpless shrug. An heirloom, Denna said. Shem laid his finger alongside his nose, then pointed to her, smiling. That's it. Some flash thing to impress folk. He's a shy bastard, Martin is. So nobody knew what it was? I asked. Shem nodded. There was only the handful that know. Martin and his brother. Two of the sons. And maybe his wife. The lot of them been lording a big secret over folk for half a year, smug as pontiffs. This cast everything in a new light. I needed to get back up to the farm and look at things again. Have you seen anyone round these parts today? Denna asked. We're looking for my uncle. Shem shook his head. Can't say as I've had the pleasure. I'm really worried about him, she pressed. I won't lie to you, dearie, he said. You've got reason to be worried if he's alone in these woods. Are there bad folk around? I asked. Nay, like you're a-thinking, he said. I didn't get down here but once a year in the fall. Forage for the hogs make it worth me while, but only just. There's strange things in these woods, special after the art. He looked at Denna, then down at his feet, obviously unsure as to whether or not he should continue. This is exactly the sort of thing I wanted to know about, so I waved his comment away, hoping to provoke him. Don got telling us fairy stories, Shem. Shem frowned. Two nights ago, when I got up to... He hesitated, glancing at Denna. Attend to my personals. I saw lights off to the north. A big wash of blue flame, big as a bonfire. But all of a sudden, he snapped his fingers. Then nothing. Happened three times. Sent a chill right down the middle of me back. Two nights ago, I asked. The wedding had only been last night. Oi, I said two nights, didn't I? Shem said. We've been making me way south ever since. I want nae part of whatever is making blue fire in the night up there. Shem, really? Blue fire? I'm not some lying row, spinning stories to scare you to pennies, boy, he said, plainly irritated. I spend me all life on these hills. Everyone knows that there's something out in art bluffs. There's a reason folks stay away from there. Aren't there any farms out there? I asked. There's no place to farm in the bluffs unless you're growing rocks, he said hotly. You think I don't know a candle or a campfire when I see one? I was blue, I tell you. Great billows of it. He made an expansive gesture with his arms. Like when you pour liquor on a fire. I let it go and turned the conversation elsewhere. Before too long, Shem gave a deep sigh and got to his feet. The pegs will have picked this place clean by now, he said, picking up his walking stick and shaking it so the crude bell clanked loudly. Pigs came trotting up obediently from all directions. Yo, pigs! he shouted. Pigs, pigs, pigs! Come on, you coons! I wrapped up the remains of the cooked pig in a piece of sackcloth, and Denna made a few trips with the water bottle and doused the fire. By the time we were finished, Shem had his sounder in order. It was larger than I'd thought. 
more than two dozen full-grown sows, plus the young pigs and the boar with the gray, bristling back. He gave a brief wave and, without any further word, headed off, the bell on his walking stick clanking as he walked and his pigs trailing in a loose mob behind him. Well, that wasn't terribly subtle, Denna said. I had to push him a bit, I said. Superstitious folk don't like to talk about things they're afraid of. He was about to clam up, and I needed to know what he'd seen in the forest. I could have gotten it out of him, she said. More flies with honey and all that. You probably could have, I admitted as I shouldered my travel sack and began to walk. I thought you said you didn't speak, Bumpkin. I've got a mimic's ear, she said with an indifferent shrug. I pick up things like that pretty quickly. Surprise the hell out of Moit, I spat. Damn! I'm going to be a whole span of days getting rid of that accent, like a piece of gristle in my teeth. Denna was eyeing the surrounding landscape despondently. I guess we should get back to beating the bushes, then. Find my patron and find you some answers. No point, really, I said. I know, but I can't give up without at least trying. That's not what I mean. Look. I pointed to where the pigs had rooted around in the dirt and leaves, going after some choice morsel. He's been letting his pigs graze all over. Even if there is a trail, we'd never find it. She drew a long breath and let it out in a tired sigh. Is there anything left in that bottle? She asked wearily. My head still aches. I'm an idiot, I said looking around. I wish you'd mention it was bothering you sooner. I walked over to a young birch tree, cut off several long strips of bark, and brought them back to her. The inside of the bark is a good painkiller. You're a handy fellow to have around. She peeled some off with a fingernail and put it in her mouth. She wrinkled her nose. Bitter. That's how you know it's real medicine, I said. If it tasted good, it would be candy. Isn't that the way of the world, she said. We want the sweet things, but we need the unpleasant ones. She smiled when she said it, but only with her mouth. Speaking of, she said, how am I going to find my patron? I'm open to suggestions. I have an idea, I said, shouldering my travel sack. But first, we need to head back up to the farm. There's something I need to take a second look at. We made our way back to the top of Barrow Hill, and I saw how it had come by its name. Odd, irregular lumps rose and fell despite the fact that there weren't any other rocks nearby. Now that I was looking for them, they were impossible to miss. What is it you needed to look at? Dennis said. Realize that if you attempt to go inside the house, I might be forced to physically restrain you. Look at the house, I said. Now look at the bluff that's sticking out of the trees behind it. I pointed. The rock around here is dark, and the stones of the house are gray, she finished. I nodded. She continued to look at me expectantly. And that means what, exactly? Like he said, they found barrow stones. There aren't any barrows around here, I said. People build barrows in Vintas, where it's traditional, or in low, marshy places where you can't dig a grave. We're probably five hundred miles away from a real barrow. I walked closer to the farmhouse. Besides, you don't use stones to build barrows. Even if you did, 
you wouldn't use quarried finish stone like this. This was brought from a long ways off. I ran a hand over the smooth gray stones of the wall. Because someone wanted to build something that would last. Something solid. I turned back to face Denna. I think there's an old hill fort buried here. Denna thought about it for a moment. Why would they call it Barrow Hill if there weren't real barrows? Probably because folk around here haven't ever seen a real barrow, just heard about them in stories. When they find a hill with big mounds on it, I pointed out the oddly shaped hillocks, Barrow Hill. But this is nowhere, she looked around aimlessly. This is the outside edge of nowhere. Now it is, I agreed. But back when this was built, I gestured to a break in the trees to the north of the burned farmhouse. Come over here for a second. I want to look at something else. Walking past the trees on the northern ridge of the hill gave a gorgeous view of the surrounding countryside. The red and yellow of autumn leaves were breathtaking. I could see a few houses and barns scattered about, surrounded by golden fields or pale green pieces of pasture with dots of white sheep. I could see the stream where Denna and I had dandled our feet. Looking north, I could see the bluffs Shem had mentioned. The land looked rougher there. I nodded mostly to myself. You can see thirty miles in every direction here. The only hill with a better view is that one. I pointed to a tall hill obscuring my view of the northern bluffs. And that one practically comes to a point. It's too narrow on top for any decent-sized fortification. She looked around thoroughly, then nodded. Fair enough, you've sold me. There was a hill fort here. What now? Well, I'd like to make it to the top of that hill before we set camp tonight. I pointed at the tall, narrow hill that was currently hiding part of the bluffs from our sight. It's only a mile or two, and if there's anything strange going on in the north bluffs, we'll have a clear view of it from there. I thought for a moment. Plus, if Ash is anywhere within twenty miles, he could see our fire and come to us. If he's trying to keep a low profile and doesn't want to go into town, he might still approach a campfire. Denna nodded. That certainly beats the hell out of stumbling around in the brush. I have my moments, I said, making a grand gesture down the hill. Please, ladies first. Chapter 74 Waystone Despite our general weariness, Denna and I made good time and came to the top of the northern hill just as the sun was setting behind the mountains. Though trees ringed the hill on all sides, its peak was bald as a priest's head. The unrestricted view in all directions was breathtaking. My only regret is that the clouds had blown in while we walked, leaving the sky flat and gray as slate. To the south I could see a handful of small farms. A few streams and narrow roads cut meandering paths through the trees. The western mountains were like a distant wall. To the south and east I could see smoke rising into the sky and the low, brown buildings of Traban. Turning north, I saw that what the swineherd had said was true. There were no signs of human habitation in that direction. No roads or farms or chimney smoke. Just increasingly rough ground, exposed rock, and trees clinging to the bluffs. The only thing on the top of the hill was a handful of gray stones. Three of the massive stones were stacked together to form a huge arch, like a massive doorway.
The other two lay on their sides, as if lounging in the thick grass. I found their presence comforting, like the unexpected company of old friends. Denna sat on one of the fallen gray stones as I stood looking out over the countryside. I felt a slight prickle of rain against my face and muttered a curse, flipping the hood of my cloak up. It won't last long, Denna said. It's done this the last couple nights. Clouds up, soaks for about half an hour, then blows over. Good, I said. I hate sleeping in the rain. I set my travel sack on the leeward side of one of the graystones, and the two of us began to set up camp. We each went about our business, as if we'd done this a hundred times before. Denna cleared a space for a fire and gathered stones. I brought back an armload of wood and got the fire going quickly. On my next trip, I gathered some sage and dug up a few wild onions I'd noticed on the way up the hill. The rain came down hard, then tapered off as I started to make supper. I used my small cookpot to make a stew with the leftover pork from lunch, some carrots and potatoes, and the onions I'd found. I seasoned it with salt, pepper, and sage, then warmed a loaf of flatbread near the fire and broke open the wax on the cheese. Last of all, I tucked two apples in among the hot rocks of the fire. They'd be baked in time for dessert. By the time dinner was ready, Denna had amassed a small mountain of firewood. I spread out my blanket for her to sit on, and she made appreciative noises over the food as we set about eating. A girl could get used to this sort of treatment, Denna said after we'd finished. She leaned contentedly back against one of the gray stones. If you had your lute here, you could sing me to sleep and everything would be perfect. I met a tinker on the road this morning and he tried to sell me a bottle of fruit wine, I said. I wish I'd taken him up on his offer. I love fruit wine, she said. Was it strawberry? I think it was, I admitted. Well, that's what you get for not listening to a tinker on the road, she chided, her eyes drowsy. Clever boy like you has heard enough stories to know better. She sat up suddenly, pointing over my shoulder. Look! I turned. What am I looking for? I asked. The sky was still thick with clouds, so the surrounding countryside was just a sea of black. Just keep looking. Maybe it will... There! I saw it. A flicker of blue light off in the distance. I got to my feet and put the fire behind me so it wouldn't dull my vision. Denna came to stand beside me, and we waited breathlessly for a moment. Another swell of blue light, stronger. What do you think that is? I asked. I'm pretty sure all the iron mines are off to the west, Denna mused. It can't be that. There was another flare. It did seem to be coming from the bluffs, which meant that if it was a flame, it was a big one, at least several times larger than our own fire. You said your patron had a way of signaling you, I said slowly. I don't mean to pry, but it's not, no, it's nothing to do with blue fire, she said with a low chuckle at my discomfiture. That would be altogether too sinister, even for him. We watched for a while longer, but it didn't happen again. I took a branch about as big around as my thumb, broke it in half, then used a rock to pound both halves into the earth like tent stakes. Denna raised a questioning eyebrow. It points toward where we saw the light, I said. I can't see any landmarks in this dark, but in the morning, this will show us what direction it was in. We reclaimed our previous seats 
and I threw more wood on the fire, sending sparks twinkling up into the air. One of us should probably stay up with the fire, I said, in case anyone shows up. I don't tend to sleep through the night anyway, Dennis said, so that shouldn't be a problem. You have trouble sleeping? I have dreams, she said in a tone of voice that made it clear that was all she had to say on the subject. I picked at some brown burr that clung to the edge of my cloak, pulling it out and tossing it into the fire. I think I've got an idea about what happened at the Mothin farm. She perked up. Do tell. The question is, why would the Chandrian attack at that specific place and time? The wedding, obviously. But why this particular wedding? Why this night? Why don't you just tell me? Dennis said, rubbing her forehead. Don't try to tease me into some sort of sudden burst of understanding like you're my schoolmaster. I felt myself flush hot with embarrassment again. I'm sorry. Don't be. Normally, I'd love nothing more than some witty back and forth with you, but I've had a long day and my headaches. Just skip to the end. It's whatever Mothin found while he was digging up the old hill fort, looking for stones, I said. He dug something out of the ruins and gossiped about it for months. The Chandrian heard and showed up to steal it. I finished with a bit of a flourish. Denna frowned. It doesn't hold together. If all they wanted was the item, they could have waited until after the wedding and just killed the newlyweds. Much easier. That took some of the wind out of my sails. You're right. It would make more sense if what they really wanted was to get rid of all knowledge of the thing like old King Ceylon when he thought his regent was going to expose him for treason, killed the fellow's whole family and burned down their estate to make sure no word got out or evidence was left for anyone to find. Denna gestured off to the south. Since everyone who knew the secret would be at the wedding, the Chandrian can come in, kill everyone who knows anything, and either destroy or steal whatever it is. She made a motion with the flat of her hand. Clean sweep. I sat stunned. Not so much by what Denna had said, which was, of course, better than my own guess. I was remembering what had happened to my own troop. Someone's parents have been singing entirely the wrong sort of songs. But they hadn't just killed my parents. They killed everyone who had been close enough to hear even a part of the song. Denna rolled herself into my blanket and curled up with her back to the fire. I will allow you to ponder my vast cleverness while I sleep. Wake me when you need anything else figured out. I stayed awake mostly through an effort of will. I'd had a long, grueling day, riding sixty miles and walking a half dozen more. But Denna was hurt and needed her sleep more. Besides, I wanted to keep an eye out for any more signs of the blue light to the north. There weren't any. I fed the fire and wondered vaguely if Will and Sim were worried about my sudden disappearance back at the university. What of Arwill and Elksadal and Kilvin? Would they wonder what happened to me? I should have left a note. I had no way to track the time, as the clouds still hid the stars. But I had fed the fire at least six or seven times when I saw Denna stiffen and come suddenly awake. She didn't bolt upright, but her breathing stopped, and I saw her dark eyes dart about wildly as if she didn't know where she was. Sorry, I said mostly to give her something familiar to focus on. Did I wake you? 
She relaxed and sat up. No, I... No. Not at all. I'm done sleeping for a bit. You want to turn? She rubbed at her eyes and peered at me over the fire. Silly question. You look like hell. She began to unwrap the blanket from around herself. Here. I waved it off. Keep it. My cloak is good enough for me. I put my hood up and lay down on the grass. What a gentleman, she teased gently, wrapping it across her shoulders. I pillowed my head with my arm, and while I was trying to think of a clever response, I fell asleep. I woke from a dim dream of moving through a crowded street to the sight of Denna's face above me, rosy and sharply shadowed by the firelight. All in all, a very pleasant way to wake up. I was about to say something to that effect when she put her finger over my lips, distracting me in about eighteen different ways. Quiet, she said softly. Listen. I sat up. Do you hear it? She asked after a moment. I cocked my head. Just the wind. She shook her head and cut me off with a gesture. There! I did hear it. At first, I thought it was some disturbed rock sliding down the hill, but no. This didn't fade into the distance like that would. It sounded more like something being dragged up the side of the hill. I got to my feet and looked around. While I'd slept, the clouds had blown away, and now the moon lit the surrounding countryside in pale silver light. Our wide fire pit was brim full of shimmering coals. Just then, not far down the hillside, I heard, to say I heard a branch breaking would mislead you. When a person moving through the woods breaks a branch, it makes a short, sharp snap. This is because any branch a man breaks accidentally is small and breaks quickly. What I heard was no twig snapping. It was a long, cracking sound. The sound a leg-thick branch makes when it is torn from a tree. Creak, crick, crick, crack! Then as I turned to look at Denna, I heard the other noise. How can I describe it? When I was young, my mother took me to see a menagerie in Cenarin. It was the only time I had ever seen a lion, and the only time I had heard one roar. The other children in the crowd were frightened, but I laughed, delighted. The sound was so deep and low that I could feel it rumble in my chest. I loved the feeling and remember it to this day. The sound I heard on the hill near Traben was not a lion's roar, but I felt it in my chest the same way. It was a grunt, deeper than a lion's roar, closer to the sound of thunder in the distance. Another branch broke, almost on the crest of the hill. I looked in that direction and saw a huge shape dimly lined by the firelight. I felt the ground shudder slightly under my feet. Denna turned to look at me, her eyes wide with panic. I grabbed hold of her arm and ran toward the opposite side of the hill. Denna kept up with me at first, then planted her feet when she saw where I was headed. Don't be stupid, she hissed. We'll break our necks if we run down that in the dark. She cast around wildly, then looked up at the nearby graystones. Get me up there and I'll haul you up after. I laced my fingers together to make a step. She put her foot into it and I heaved so hard I almost threw her into the air where she could catch the edge of the stone. I waited a brief moment until she swung her leg up, then I slung my travel sack over my shoulder and scrambled up the side of the massive stone. 
Rather, I should say I scrambled at the side of the massive stone. It was worn smooth by ages of weather and didn't have any handholds to speak of. I slid to the ground. My hands scrabbled ineffectually. I bolted to the other side of the arch, hopped up onto one of the lower stones, and made another leap. I hit the rock hard, all along the front of my body, knocking the wind out of me and banging my knee. My hands gripped at the top of the arch, but I couldn't find any purchase. Denna caught me. If this were some heroic ballad, I would tell you how she clasped my hand firmly and pulled me to safety. But the truth is, she got hold of my shirt with one hand, while the other hand made a tight fist in my hair. She hauled hard to keep me from falling long enough for me to catch a grip and scramble to the top of the stone with her. As we lay there panting, we peered over the edge of the stone. Down on the hilltop, the dim shape was beginning to move into the circle of our firelight. Half hidden in the shadows, it looked larger than any animal I had ever seen, as big as a loaded wagon. It was black, with a massive body like a bull's. It came closer, moving in an odd shuffle, not like a bull or a horse. The wind fanned the fire, causing it to flare up, and I saw it carried its thick body close to the ground, legs out to the side, like a lizard. When it came farther into the light, the comparison was impossible to avoid. It was a huge lizard, not long like a snake. It was squat, like a cinder brick, its thick neck blending into a head shaped like a massive flat wedge. It covered half the distance from the crest of the hill to our fire in a single spastic burst of speed. It grunted again, deep like rumbling thunder, and I felt it in my chest. As it came closer, it moved past the other gray stone that lay in the grass, and I realized my eyes weren't playing tricks on me. It was bigger than the gray stone, six feet high at the shoulder, fifteen feet long, big as a horse cart, massive as a dozen bulls tied together. It moved its thick head back and forth, working its wide mouth open and closed, tasting the air. Then there was a burst of blue flame. The sudden light of it was blinding, and I heard Denna cry out beside me. I ducked my head and felt a wash of heat roll over us. Rubbing at my eyes, I looked down again and saw the thing move closer to the fire. It was black, scaled, massive. It grunted again like thunder, then bobbed its head and breathed another great gout of billowing blue fire. It was a dragon. Chapter 75 Interlude. Obedience. In the Waystone Inn, Quoth paused expectantly. The moment stretched out until Chronicler looked up from his page. I'm giving you the opportunity to say something, Quoth said. Something along the lines of, That can't be, or There's no such thing as dragons. Chronicler wiped the nib of his pen clean. It's not really my place to comment on the story he said placidly. If you say you saw a dragon, he shrugged. Quoth gave him a profoundly disappointed look. This from the author of The Mating Habits of the Common Dracus. This from Devon Lockies, the great debunker. This from Devon Lockies, who agreed not to interrupt or change a single word of the story he is recording. Chronicler lay his pen down and massaged his hand because those were the only conditions under which he could get access to a story he very much desired. 
Quoth gave him a level look. Have you ever heard the expression white mutiny? I have, Chronicler said with a thin smile. I could say it, Reshi, Bass said brightly. I haven't agreed to anything. Quoth looked back and forth between them, then sighed. There are few things as nauseating as pure obedience, he said. Both of you would do well to remember that. He gestured for Chronicler to pick up his pen again. Very well. It was a dragon. Chapter 76 The Mating Habits of the Common Dracus It's a dragon, Denna whispered. Telu Holden overrule us. It's a dragon. It's not a dragon, I said. There's no such thing as dragons. Look at it, she hissed at me. It's right there. Look at the huge goddamn dragon. It's a dracus, I said. It's goddamn huge, Denna said with a tinge of hysteria in her voice. It's a goddamn huge dragon. It's going to come over here and eat us. It doesn't eat meat, I said. It's a herbivore. It's like a big cow. Denna looked at me and started to laugh. Not hysterical laughter, but the helpless laughter of someone who's just heard something so funny they can't help but bubble over with it. She put her hands over her mouth and shook with it. The only sound was a low huffing that escaped through her fingers. There was another flash of blue fire from below. Denna froze mid-laugh, then took her hands away from her mouth. She looked at me, her eyes wide, and spoke softly with a slight quaver in her voice. We had both gone from terrified to safe so quickly that we were close to laughing from sheer relief anyway. So when she convulsed with laughter again, muffling it with her hands, I started to laugh too, my belly shaking as I tried not to make any noise. We lay there like two giggling children while below us the great beast grunted and snuffed around our fire, occasionally sending up gouts of flame. After a long several minutes, we regained control of ourselves. Denna wiped tears away from her eyes and drew a deep, shaky breath. She slid closer to me until the left side of her body was pressed close up against my right. Listen, she said softly as we both looked over the edge of the stone. That thing does not graze, she said. It's huge. It could never get enough food. And look at its mouth. Look at those teeth. Exactly. They're flat, not pointed. It eats trees. Whole trees. Look at how big it is. Where could it possibly find enough meat? It would have to eat ten deer every day. There's no way it could survive. She turned her head to look at me. How the hell do you know this? I read about it at the university, I said. A book called The Mating Habits of the Common Dragus. It uses the fire in a mating display. It's like a bird's plumage. You mean that that thing down there... She groped for words, her mouth working silently for a moment. Is going to try and tup our campfire? She looked for a moment as if she was going to burst into laughter again. But she drew a deep, shuddering breath instead, regaining her composure. Now that's something I have to see. We both felt a shudder in the stone underneath us, coming up from the ground below. At the same time, things grew noticeably darker. Looking down, we saw the Dracus rolling in the fire like a hog in a wallow. 
The ground shook as it wriggled around, crushing the fire underneath itself. That thing must weigh... Denna stalled out, shaking her head. Maybe five tons, I guessed. Five at least. It could come get us. It could push over these stones. I don't know about that, I said, slapping the stone under my hand, trying to sound more certain than I really was. These have been here for a long time. We're safe. While rolling in our overlarge campfire, the Dracus had scattered burning branches around the top of the hill. It now wandered to where a half-charred log lay smoldering in the grass. The Dracus snuffed, then rolled, crushing the log into the earth. Then it came back to its feet, snuffed the log again, and ate it. It didn't chew. It bolted the log whole, like a frog getting a cricket down into its gullet. It did this several times, moving in a circle around the now largely extinguished fire. It snuffed, rolled on the burning pieces, then ate them after they were extinguished. That makes sense, I suppose, Denna said, watching it. It starts fires and lives in the woods. If it didn't have something in its head that made it want to put out fires, it wouldn't survive very long. That's probably why it came here, I said. It saw our fire. After several minutes of snuffing and rolling, the Dracus came back to the flat bed of coals that was all that remained of our fire. It circled it a few times, then walked over it and lay down. I cringed, but it just shifted back and forth like a hen settling into a nest. The hilltop below was now entirely dark except for the pale moonlight. How can I never have heard of these things? Denna asked. They're very rare, I said. People tend to kill them because they don't understand they're relatively harmless, and they don't reproduce very quickly. That one down there is probably two hundred years old, about as big as they get. I marveled at it. I bet there aren't more than a couple hundred Dracus that size in the whole world. We watched for another couple minutes, but there was no movement from below. Denna gave a jaw-popping yawn. Gods, I'm exhausted. There's nothing like the certain knowledge of your own death to tucker you out. She rolled over onto her back, then onto her side, then back facing toward me, trying to get comfortable. Lord, it's cold up here, she shivered visibly. I can see why it's cuddled up on our fire. We could go down and get the blanket, I suggested. She snorted. Not likely. She shivered visibly, wrapping her arms around her chest. Here, I stood up and took off my cloak. Wrap up in this. It's not much, but it's better than the bare stone. I held it out to her. I'll watch you while you sleep, and make sure you don't fall off. She stared at me for a long moment, and I half expected her to beg off. But after a moment, she took it and wrapped it around herself. You, Master Quoth, certainly know how to show a girl a good time. Wait until tomorrow, I said. I'm just getting started. I sat there quietly, trying not to shiver, and eventually Denna's breathing leveled off. I watched her sleep with the calm contentment of a boy who has no idea of how foolish he is or what unexpected tragedies the following day will bring. Chapter 77 Bluffs I woke without remembering when I had fallen asleep. Denna was shaking me gently. Don't move too quickly, she said. It's a long way down. 
I slowly uncurled, nearly every muscle in my body complaining at how it had been treated yesterday. My thighs and calves were tight, hard knots of pain. Only then did I realize I was wearing my cloak again. Did I wake you up? I asked Denna. I don't remember. In a way you did, she said. You nodded off and tipped right on to me. You didn't even flicker a lid when I cussed you out. Denna trailed off as she watched me slowly come to my feet. Good Lord, you look like someone's arthritic grandfather. You know how it is, I said. You're always stiffest when you wake up. She smirked. We women folk don't have that problem as a rule. Her expression grew serious as she watched me. You're serious, aren't you? I rode about sixty miles yesterday before I met up with you, I said. I'm not really used to that, and when I jumped last night, I hit the rock pretty hard. Are you hurt? Absolutely, I said, especially in my everywhere. Oh, she gasped, her hands going to her mouth. Your beautiful hands! I looked down and saw what she meant. I must have hurt them rather badly in my wild attempt to climb the graystone last night. My musician's calluses had saved my fingertips for the most part, but my knuckles were scraped badly and crusted with blood. Other parts of me hurt so much that I hadn't even noticed. My stomach clenched at the sight of them, but when I opened and closed my hands, I could tell they were just painfully skinned, not seriously injured. As a musician, I always worried that something might happen to my hands, and my work as an artificer had doubled that anxiety. It looks worse than it is, I said. How long has the Dracus been gone? I asked. At least a couple hours. It wandered away a little after the sun came up. I looked down from my high vantage on the gray stone arch. Last evening, the hilltop had been a uniform expanse of green grass. This morning, it looked like a battlefield. The grass was crushed in places, burned to stubble in others. There were deep furrows dug in the earth where the lizard had rolled or dragged its heavy body across the turf. Getting down from the graystone was harder than getting up had been. The top of the arch was about twelve feet off the ground, higher than was convenient for jumping. Normally, I wouldn't have worried about it, but in my stiff, bruised condition, I worried I'd land awkwardly and turn my ankle. Eventually, we managed it by using the strap of my travel sack as a makeshift rope. While Denna braced herself and held one end, I lowered myself down. The sack ripped wide open, of course, scattering my belongings, but I made it to the ground with nothing more serious than a grass stain. Then, Denna hung from the lip of the rock and I grabbed her legs, letting her slide down slowly. Despite the fact that I was bruised all down my front side, the experience did a lot to improve my mood. I gathered up my things and sat down with needle and thread to sew my travel sack back together. After a moment, Denna returned from her brief trip into the trees, pausing briefly to pick up the blanket we'd left below. It had several large claw rents from when the Dracus had walked over it. Have you ever seen one of these before? I asked, holding out my hand. She raised an eyebrow at me. How many times have I heard that one? Grinning. I handed her the lump of black iron I'd got from the tinker. She looked it over curiously. Is this a lodenstone? I'm surprised you recognize it. I knew a fellow who used one as a paperweight, she sighed disparagingly. 
he made a special point of how, despite the fact it was so valuable and exceedingly rare, he used it as a paperweight. She sniffed. He was a prat. Do you have any iron? Fish around in there. I pointed to my jumbled possessions. There's bound to be something. Dennis sat on one of the low gray stones and played with the loden stone and a piece of broken iron buckle. I slowly sewed up my travel sack, then reattached the strap, stitching it several times so it wouldn't come loose. Denna was thoroughly engrossed by the loden stone. How does it work? she asked, pulling the buckle away and letting it snap back. Where does the pulling come from? It's a type of galvanic force, I said, then hesitated, which is a fancy way of saying that I have no idea at all. I wonder if it only likes iron because it's made of iron, she mused, touching her silver ring to it with no effect. If someone found a loden stone made of brass, would it like other brass? Maybe it would like copper and zinc, I said. That's what brass is made of. I turned the bag right side out and began packing up my things. Denna handed me back the loden stone and wandered off toward the destroyed remains of the fire pit. It ate all the wood before it left, she said. I went over to look, too. The area around the fire pit was a churned-up mess. It looked like an entire legion of cavalry had ridden across it. I prodded a great piece of overturned sod turf with the toe of my boot, then bent to pick something up. Look at this. Denna came closer, and I held something up for her to see. It was one of the Dracus's scales, smooth and black, roughly as big as my palm, and shaped like a teardrop. It was a quarter inch thick in the middle, tapering to the edges. I held it out to Denna. For you, milady, a memento. She hefted it in her hand. It's heavy, she said. I'll go find one for you. She skipped back to prod through the remains of the fire pit. I think it ate some of the rocks along with the wood. I know I gathered more than this to line the fire last night. Lizards eat rocks all the time, I said. It's how they digest their food. The rocks grind up the food in their guts. Denna eyed me skeptically. It's true. Chickens do it too. She shook her head, looked away as she prodded in the churned-up earth. You know... At first, I was kind of hoping you would turn this encounter into a song, but the more you talk about this thing, I'm not so sure. Cows and chickens, where's your flair for the dramatic? It does well enough without exaggeration, I said. That scale is mostly iron, unless I miss my guess. How can I make that more dramatic than it already is? She held up the scale, looking at it closely. You're kidding. I grinned at her. The rocks around here are full of iron, I said. The Dracus eats the rocks, and slowly they get ground down in its gizzard. The metal slowly filters into the bones and scales. I took the scale and walked over to one of the gray stones. Year after year it sheds its skin, then eats it, keeping the iron in its system. After two hundred years, I tapped the scale against the stone. It made a sharp ringing sound somewhere between a bell and a piece of glazed ceramic. I handed it back to her. Back before modern mining, people probably hunted them for their iron. Even nowadays, I'm guessing an alchemist would pay a pretty penny for the scale or bones. Organic iron is a real rarity. They could probably do all sorts of things with it. 
Denna looked down at the scale in her hand. You win. You can write the song. Her eyes lit with an idea. Let me see the lodenstone. I dug it out of my bag and handed it to her. She brought the scale close to it, and they snapped sharply together, making the same odd ceramic ring again. She grinned and walked back over to the fire pit and started pushing the lodenstone through the debris, hunting for more scales. I looked out toward the northern bluffs. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, I said, pointing off to a faint smudge of smoke rising from the trees. But something's smoldering down there. The marker stakes I planted are gone, but I think that's the direction we saw the blue fire last night. Denna moved the lodenstone back and forth over the ruins of the fire pit. The Dracus couldn't have been responsible for what happened at the Mothin farm. She gestured at the churned-up earth and sod. There wasn't any of this sort of wreckage there. I'm not thinking about the farm, I said. I'm thinking someone's patron might have been roughing it last night with a cheery little campfire. Denna's face fell. And the Dracus saw it. I wouldn't worry, I said quickly. If he's as clever as you say, he's probably safe as houses. Show me a house that's safe from that thing, she said grimly, handing me back my loading stone. Let's go have a look. It was only a few miles to where the faint line of smoke rose from the forest, but we made bad time. We were sore and tired, and neither of us was hopeful about what we would find when we reached our destination. While we walked, we shared my last apple and half of my remaining loaf of flatbread. I cut strips of birch bark, and Denna and I both picked at them and chewed. After an hour or so, the muscles in my legs relaxed to the point where walking was no longer painful. As we got closer, our progress slowed. Rolling hills were replaced with sharp bluffs and scree-covered slopes. We had to climb or go the long way around, sometimes doubling back before we found a way through. And there were distractions. We stumbled onto a patch of ripe ashberry that slowed us down for almost a full hour. Not long after that, we found a stream and stopped to drink and rest and wash. Again, my hope for a storybook dalliance was thwarted by the fact that the stream was only about six inches deep. Not ideal for proper bathing. It was early afternoon before we finally came to the source of the smoke and what we found was not at all what we expected. It was a secluded valley tucked into the bluffs. I say valley, but in truth it was more like a gigantic step among the foothills. On one side was a high cliff wall of dark rock, and on the other was a sheer drop-off. Denna and I came at it from two different, unapproachable angles before we finally found a way in. Luckily, the day was windless, and the smoke rose straight as an arrow into the clear blue sky. If not for that to guide us, we probably never would have found the place. Once it had probably been a pleasant little piece of forest, but now it looked like it had been struck by a tornado. Trees were broken, uprooted, charred, and smashed. Huge furrows of exposed earth and rock were dug everywhere, as if some giant farmer had gone raving mad while plowing his field. Two days ago, I wouldn't have been able to guess what would cause such destruction. But after what I had seen last night... I thought you said they were harmless, Denna said, turning to me. 
It went on a rampage here. Denna and I began to pick our way through the wreckage. The white smoke rose from the deep hole left by a large maple tree that had been tipped over. The fire was nothing more than a few coals smoldering in the bottom of the hole where the roots had been. I idly kicked a few more clods of dirt into the hole with the toe of my boot. Well, the good news is, is that your patron isn't here. The bad news is... I broke off, drawing a deeper breath. Do you smell that? Denna took a deep breath and nodded, wrinkling her nose. I climbed up onto the side of the fallen maple and looked around. The wind shifted and the smell grew stronger. Something dead and rotten. I thought you said they don't eat meat, Denna said, looking around nervously. I hopped down from the tree and made my way back to the cliff wall. There was a small log cabin there, smashed to flinders. The rotting smell was stronger. Okay, Denna said, looking over the wreckage. This does not look harmless at all. We don't know if the Dracus was responsible for this, I said. If the Chandrian attacked here, the Dracus could have been lured by the fire and caused the destruction while putting it out. You think the Chandrian did this? she asked. That doesn't fit with anything I've ever heard of them. They're supposed to strike like lightning, then disappear. They don't visit, set some fires, then come back later to run a few errands. I don't know what to think, but two destroyed houses. I began to sift through the wreckage. It seems reasonable that they're related. Denna drew in a sharp breath. I followed her line of sight and saw the arm protruding from under several heavy logs. I moved closer. Flies buzzed up, and I covered my mouth a bit in a futile attempt to stave off the smell. He's been dead for about two span. I bent and picked up a tangle of shattered wood and metal. Look at this. Bring it here and I'll look at it. I brought it back to where she stood. The thing was broken almost beyond recognition. Crossbow. Didn't do him much good, she said. The question is, why did he have it in the first place? I looked at the thick piece of blue steel that made the crossbar. This wasn't some hunting bow. This is what you use to kill a man in armor from across a field. They're illegal. Denna snorted. Those sorts of laws don't get enforced out here. You know that. I shrugged. The fact remains that this was an expensive piece of machinery. Why would someone living in a tiny cabin with a dirt floor own a crossbow worth ten talents? Maybe he knew about the Dracus, Denna said, looking around nervously. I wouldn't mind a crossbow right about now. I shook my head. Dracus are shy. They stay away from people. Denna gave me a frank look, gesturing sarcastically at the wreckage of the cabin. Think about every wild creature in the forest, I said. All wild creatures avoid contact with people. Like you said, you've never even heard of the Dracus. There's a reason for that. Maybe it's rabid. That brought me up short. That's a terrifying thought. I looked around at the ruined landscape. How on earth would you put something like that down? Can a lizard even catch the froth? Denna shifted uncomfortably from one foot to the other, looking around nervously. Is there anything else you'd like to look at here? Because I'm done with this place. I don't want to be here when that thing gets back. 
Part of me feels like we should give this fellow a decent burial. Denna shook her head. I'm not staying here that long. We can tell someone in town and they can take care of it. It could come back at any minute. But why? I asked. Why does it keep coming back here? I pointed. That tree's been dead for a span of days, but that one just got torn up a couple days ago. Why do you care? Denna asked. The Chandrian, I said firmly. I want to know why they were here. Do they control the Dracus? I don't think they were here, Denna said. At the Mothin Farm, maybe, but this is just the work of a rabid cow lizard. She gave me a long look, searching my face. I don't know what you came here looking for, but I don't think you're going to find it. I shook my head, looking around. I feel like this has to be connected to the farm. I think you want it to be connected, she said gently. But this fellow's been dead a long while. You've said so yourself. And remember the door frame and the water trough at the farm? She bent down and wrapped a knuckle against one of the logs from the ruined cabin. It made a solid sound. And look at the crossbow. The metal isn't rusted away. They weren't here. I felt my heart sink in my chest. I knew she was right. Deep down, I knew I'd been grasping at straws. Still, it felt wrong giving up without trying everything possible. Denna took hold of my hand. Come on, let's go. She smiled and tugged on me. Her hand was cool and smooth in my own. There's more interesting things to do than hunt. There was a loud splintering noise off in the trees. <coughs> Denna dropped my hand and turned to face the way we'd come. No, she said. No, no, no. The sudden threat of the Dracus brought me back into focus. We're fine, I said, looking around. It can't climb. It's too heavy. Climb what, a tree? It's been knocking those down for fun. The bluffs. I pointed to the cliff wall that bordered this little section of forest. Come on. We scrambled to the base of the cliff, stumbling through furrows and jumping over fallen trees. Behind us, I heard the rumbling, thunder-like grunt. I darted a glance over my shoulder, but the Dracus was still nowhere among the trees. We got to the base of the cliff, and I started searching for a section both of us could climb. After a long, frantic minute, we emerged from a thick patch of sumac to find a swath of wildly churned-up dirt. The Dracus had been digging there. Look! Denna pointed to a break in the cliff, a deep crack about two feet across. It was wide enough for a person to squeeze through, but too narrow for the huge lizard. There were sharp claw marks on the cliff wall and broken rocks scattered around the churned-up earth. Denna and I squeezed into the narrow gap. It was dark, the only light coming from the narrow strip of blue sky high overhead. As I crept along, I was forced to turn sideways in places to make it through. When I brought my hands away from the walls, my palms were covered in black soot. Unable to dig its way in, apparently the Dracus had breathed fire down into the narrow passage. After only a dozen feet, the crevasse widened slightly. There's a ladder, Denna said. I'm going up. If that thing breathes fire at us, it will be like rainwater down a gully. She climbed, and I followed her. The ladder was crude but sturdy, and after twenty feet, it opened out onto a piece of level ground. 
Dark stones surrounded us on three sides, but there was a clear view of the ruined cabin and the destroyed trees below. A wooden box was set against the cliff wall. Can you see it? Denna asked, peering down. Tell me I didn't just skin my knees running from nothing. I heard a dull whump, and I felt a wave of hot air rise up against my back. The Dracus grunted again, and another wash of fire ran through the narrow gap below. Then there came a sudden, furious sound like nails on a slate as the Dracus clawed madly against the base of the cliff. Denna gave me a frank look. Harmless. It's not after us, I said. You saw. It was digging at that wall long before we ever got here. Denna sat down. What is this place? Some sort of lookout, I said. You can see the whole valley from here. Obviously, it's a lookout, she sighed. I'm talking about the whole place. I opened the wooden box that was up against the cliff wall. Inside was a rough wool blanket, a full water skin, some dried meat, and a dozen wickedly sharp crossbow bolts. I don't know either, I admitted. Maybe the fellow was a fugitive. The noise stopped below. Denna and I peered out over the ruined valley. Eventually, the Dracus moved away from the cliff. It walked slowly, its huge body digging an irregular rut into the ground. It's not moving as quickly as it did last night, I said. Maybe it is sick. Maybe it's tired from a hard day's trying to track us down and kill us, she looked up at me. Sit down, you're making me nervous. We're not going anywhere for a while. I sat down and we watched the Dracus make its plodding way to the middle of the valley. It went up to a tree about thirty feet tall and pushed it over without any noticeable effort. Then it began to eat it, leaves first. Next it crunched up branches thick as my wrist as easily as a sheep would tear up a mouthful of grass. When the trunk was finally stripped bare, I assumed it would have to stop but it simply clamped its huge, flat mouth down on one end of the trunk and twisted its massive neck. The trunk splintered and broke, leaving the Dracus with a large but manageable mouthful that it bolted down more or less whole. Denna and I took the opportunity to eat some lunch of our own, just some flatbread, sausage, and the rest of my carrots. I was hesitant to trust the food in the box, as there was the distinct possibility that the fellow living here had been some manner of crazy. It still amazes me that no one around here has ever seen it, Denna said. People have probably caught glimpses, I said. The swineherd said everyone knows there's something dangerous in these woods. They probably just assumed it was a demon or some nonsense like that. Denna glanced back at me, an amused curl to her mouth says the fellow who came to town looking for the Chandrian. That's different, I protested hotly. I don't go around spouting fairy stories and touching iron. I'm here so I can learn the truth, so I can have information that comes from somewhere more reliable than third-hand stories. I didn't mean to touch a nerve, Denna said, taken aback. She looked back down below. It really is an incredible animal. When I read about it, I didn't really believe about the fire, I admitted. It seemed a little far-fetched to me. More far-fetched than a lizard big as a horse cart? 
That's just a matter of size. But fire isn't a natural thing. If nothing else, where does it keep the fire? It's obviously not burning inside. Didn't they explain it in that book you read? Denna asked. The author had some guesses, but that's all. He couldn't catch one to dissect it. Understandable, Denna said as she watched the Dracus casually nudge over another tree and begin eating that one as well. What sort of a net or cage would hold it? He had some interesting theories, though, I said. You know how cow manure gives off a gas that burns? Denna turned to look at me and laughed. No. Really? I nodded, grinning. Farm kids will strike sparks onto a fresh cow pat and watch it burn. That's why farmers have to be careful about storing manure. The gas can build up and explode. I'm a city girl, she said, chuckling. We didn't play those sorts of games. You missed some big fun, I said. The author suggested that the Dracus just stores that gas in a bladder of some kind. The real question is how it lights the gas. The author has a clever idea about arsenic, which makes sense chemically. Arsenic and coal gas will explode if you put them together. That's how you get marsh lights in swamps. But I think that's a little unreasonable. If it had that much arsenic in its body, it would poison itself. Mm-hmm, Denna said, still watching the Dracus below. But if you think about it, all it needs is a tiny spark to ignite the gas, I said. And there are plenty of animals that can create enough galvanic force for a spark. Clip eels, for example, can generate enough to kill a man, and they're only a couple of feet long. I gestured toward the Dracus. Something that big could certainly generate enough for a spark. I was hoping that Denna would be impressed by my ingenuity, but she seemed distracted by the scene below. You're not really listening to me, are you? Not so much she said, turning to me and giving a smile. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. It eats wood. Wood burns. Why wouldn't it breathe fire? While I tried to think of a response to that, she pointed down into the valley. Look at the trees down there. Do they look odd to you? Aside from being destroyed and mostly eaten? I asked. Not particularly. Look how they're arranged. It's hard to see because the place is in a shambles, but it looks like they were growing in rows, like someone planted them. Now that she pointed it out, it did look like a large section of the trees had been in rows before the Dracus came, a dozen rows with a score of trees each. Most of them were now only stumps or empty holes. Why would someone plant trees in the middle of a forest, she mused. It's not an orchard. Did you see any fruit? I shook my head. And those trees are the only ones the Dracus has been eating, she said. There's the big clear spot in the middle. The others he knocks down, but those he knocks down and eats. She squinted. What kind of tree is it eating right now? I can't tell from here, I said. Maple? Does it have a sweet tooth? We looked for a while longer. Then Denna got to her feet. Well, the important thing is that it's not going to run over and breathe fire down our backs. 
Let's go see what's at the other end of that narrow path. I'm guessing it's a way out of here. We headed down the ladder and made our slow, winding way along the bottom of the tiny crevasse. It twisted and turned for another twenty feet before opening up into a tiny box canyon with steep walls rising away on every side. There was no way out, but it was obviously being put to some use. The place had been cleared of plants, leaving a packed dirt floor. Two long fire pits had been dug, and resting over the pits on brick platforms were large metal pans. They almost resembled the rendering vats that knackers used for tallow. But these were wide, flat, and shallow, like baking pans for enormous pies. It does have a sweet tooth, Denna laughed. This fellow was making maple candy here, or syrup. I moved closer to look. There were buckets laying around, of the sort that could carry maple sap so it could be boiled down. I opened the door of a tiny ramshackle shed and saw more buckets, long wooden paddles for stirring the sap, scrapers for getting it out of the pans. But it didn't feel right. There were plenty of maple trees in the forest. It didn't make sense to cultivate them. And why pick such an out-of-the-way place? Maybe the fellow was simply crazy. Idly, I picked up one of the scrapers and looked at it. The edge was smeared dark, like it had been scraping tar. Ich, Dennis said behind me. Bitter! I think they burned it. I turned around and saw Denna standing by one of the fire pits. She had pried a large disk of sticky material out of the bottom of one of the pans and taken a bite out of it. It was black, not the deep amber color of maple candy. I suddenly realized what was really going on here. Don't! She looked at me, puzzled. It's not that bad, she said, her words muffled through her sticky mouthful. It's strange, but not really unpleasant. I stepped over to her and knocked it out of her hand. Her eyes flashed angrily at me. Spit it out! I snapped. Now! It's poison! Her expression went from angry to terrified in a flash. She opened her mouth and let the wad of dark stuff fall to the ground. Then she spat, her saliva thick and black. I pressed my water bottle into her hands. Rinse your mouth out, I said. Rinse and spit it out! She took the bottle and then I remembered it was empty. We'd finished it during lunch. I took off running, scrambling through the narrow passage. I darted up the ladder, grabbed the water skin, then down and back to the small canyon. Denna was sitting on the canyon floor, looking very pale and wide-eyed. I thrust the water skin into her hands and she gulped so quickly that she choked, then gagged a bit as she spat it out. I reached into the fire pit, pushing my hand deep into the ashes until I found the unburned coals underneath. I brought up a handful of unburned charcoal. I shook my hand, scattering most of the ashes away, then thrust the handful of black coals at her. Eat this, I said. She looked at me blankly. Do it! I shook the handful of coals at her. If you don't chew this up and swallow it, I'll knock you out and force it down your throat. I put some in my own mouth. Look, it's fine. Just do it. My tone softened, became more pleading than commanding. Denna, trust me. She took some coals and put them in her mouth. Face pale and eyes beginning to brim with tears, she gritted up a mouthful and took a drink of water to wash it down, grimacing. 
They're harvesting goddamn ophalum here, I said. I'm an idiot for not seeing it sooner. Dennis started to say something, but I cut her off. Don't talk. Keep eating. As much as you can stomach. She nodded solemnly, her eyes wide. She chewed, choked a little, and swallowed the charcoal with another mouthful of water. She ate a dozen mouthfuls in quick succession, then rinsed her mouth out again. What's ophalum? she asked softly. A drug. Those are dinner trees. You just had a whole mouthful of dinner resin. I sat down next to her. My hands were shaking. I lay them flat against my legs to hide it. She was quiet at that. Everyone knew about dinner resin. In Tarbian, the knackers had to come for the stiff bodies of sweet-eaters that overdosed in the dockside alleys and doorways. How much did you swallow? I asked. I was just chewing it like toffee. Her face went pale again. There's still some stuck in my teeth. I touched the water skin. Keep rinsing. She swished the water from cheek to cheek before spitting and repeating the process. I tried to guess at how much of the drug she'd gotten into her system, but there were too many variables. I didn't know how much she had swallowed, how refined this resin was, if the farmers had taken any steps to filter or purify it. Her mouth worked as her tongue felt around her teeth. Okay, I'm clean. I forced a laugh. You're anything but clean, I said. Your mouth is all black. You look like a kid that's been playing in the coal bin. You aren't much better, she said. You look like a chimney sweep. She reached out to touch my bare shoulder. I must have torn my shirt against the rocks in my rush to get the water skin. She gave a wan smile that didn't touch her frightened eyes at all. Why do I have a belly full of coals? Charcoal is like a chemical sponge, I said. It soaks up drugs and poisons. She brightened a little. All of them? I considered lying, then thought better of it. Most. You got it into you pretty quickly. It will soak up a lot of what you swallowed. How much? About six parts in ten, I said. Hopefully a little more. How do you feel? Scared, she said. Shaky, but other than that, no different. She shifted nervously where she sat and put her hand on the sticky disk of resin I'd knocked away from her earlier. She flicked it away and wiped her hand nervously on her pants. How long will it be before we know? I don't know how much they refined it, I said. If it's still raw, it will take longer to work its way into your system, which is good as the effects will be spread out over a longer period of time. I felt for her pulse in her neck. It was racing, which didn't tell me anything. Mine was racing, too. Look up here. I gestured with my raised hand and watched her eyes. Her pupils were sluggish, responding to the light. I lay my hand on her head, and under the pretext of lifting her eyelid a little, I pressed my finger against the bruise on her temple, hard. She didn't flinch or show the least hint that it pained her. I thought I was imagining it before, Dennis said, looking up at me. But your eyes really do change color. Normally they're bright green with a ring of gold around the inside. I got them from my mother, I said. But I've been watching. When you broke the pump handle yesterday, they went dull green, muddy. 
and when the swineherd made that comment about the rue, it went dark for just a moment. I thought it was just the light, but now I can see it's not. I'm surprised you noticed, I said. The only other person to ever point it out was an old teacher of mine. And he was an arcanist, which means it's pretty much his job to notice things. Well, it's my job to notice things about you. She cocked her head a bit. People probably are distracted by your hair. It's so bright. It's pretty, pretty distracting. And your face is really expressive. You're always in control of it, even the way your eyes behave. But not the color. She gave a faint smile. They're pale now, like green frost. You must be terribly afraid. I'm guessing it's old-fashioned lust, I said in my roughest tones. It's not often a beautiful girl lets me get this close to her. You always tell me the most beautiful lies, she said, looking away from me and down to her hands. Am I going to die? No, I said firmly. Absolutely not. Could... She looked up at me and smiled again, her eyes wet but not overflowing. Could you just say it out loud for me? You aren't going to die, I said, getting to my feet. Come on, let's see if our lizard friend is gone yet. I wanted to keep her moving around and distracted, so we each had another little drink and headed back to the lookout. The Dracus lay sleeping in the sun. I took the opportunity to stuff the blanket and the dried meat into my travel sack. I felt guilty about stealing from the dead before, I said, but now... At least now we know why he was hiding in the middle of nowhere with a crossbow and a lookout and all that, Dennis said. A minor mystery solved. I started to fasten up my travel sack, then as an afterthought, packed the crossbow bolts as well. What are those for? she asked. They're worth something, I said. I'm in debt to a dangerous person. I could use every penny. I trailed off, my mind working. Denna looked at me, and I could see her mind jumping to the same conclusion. Do you know how much that resin would be worth? she asked. Not really, I said, thinking about the thirty pans, each with a wafer of black, sticky resin congealed in the bottom, big as a dinner plate. I'm guessing a lot. An awful lot. Denna shifted back and forth on her feet. Quoth. I don't know how I feel about this. I've seen girls get hooked on this stuff. I need money. She gave a bitter laugh. I don't even have a second set of clothes right now. She looked worried. But I don't know if I need it this badly. I'm thinking of apothecaries, I said quickly. They'd refine it into medicine. It's a powerful painkiller. The price won't be nearly as good as if we went to the other sort of people. But still, half a loaf... Denna smiled broadly. I'd love half a loaf, especially since my cryptic prick of a patron seems to have disappeared. We headed back down into the canyon. This time, as I emerged from the narrow passageway, I saw the evaporating pans in a different light. Now each of them was the equivalent of a heavy coin in my pocket. Next term's tuition, new clothes, freedom from my debt with Devi. 
I saw Denna looking at the trays with the same fascination, though hers was somewhat more glassy-eyed than mine. I could live comfortably for a year off this, she said, and not be beholden to anyone. I went to the tool shed and grabbed a scraper for each of us. At the end of a few minutes' work, we had combined all of the black sticky pieces into a single wad the size of a sweet melon. She shivered a bit, then looked at me, smiling. Her cheeks were flushed. I suddenly feel really good. She crossed her arms across her chest, rubbing her hands up and down. Really, really good. I don't think it's just the thought of all that money. It's the resin, I said. It's a good sign that it's taken this long to hit you. I'd have been worried if it happened sooner. I gave her a serious look. Now listen. You need to let me know if you feel any heaviness in your chest or have any trouble breathing. So long as neither of those things happen, you should be fine. Denna nodded, then drew a deep breath and let it out again. Sweet angel ordal above, I feel great. She gave me an anxious expression, but the wide grin kept spilling out. Am I going to get addicted from this? I shook my head, and she sighed with relief. You know the damnedest thing? I'm scared about getting addicted, but I don't care that I'm scared. I've never felt like this before. No wonder our big scaly friend keeps coming back for more. Merciful Telu, I said. I didn't even think of that. That's why it was trying to claw its way in here. It can smell the resin. It's been eating the trees for two span, three or four a day. The biggest sweet-eater of them all coming back to get his fix, Denna laughed. Then her expression went horrified. How many trees were left? Two or three, I said, thinking of the rows of empty holes and broken stumps. But it may have eaten another since we've been back here. Have you ever seen a sweet-eater when they've got the hunger on them? Denna said, her face stricken. They go crazy. I know, I said, thinking of the girl I'd seen in Tarbian, dancing naked in the snow. What do you think it's going to do when the trees run out? I thought for a long moment. It's going to go looking for more, and it's going to be desperate, and it knows the last place where it found the trees had a little house that smelled like people. We're going to have to kill it. Kill it? She laughed, then pressed her hands against her mouth again. With nothing but my good singing voice and your manly bravado? She started to giggle uncontrollably, despite the fact that she was holding both her hands in front of her mouth. God, I'm sorry, Quoth. How long am I going to be like this? I don't know. The effects of Ophalum are euphoria. Check. She winked at me, grinning. Followed by mania. Some delirium if your dose was high enough. Then exhaustion. Maybe I'll sleep through the night for once, she said. You can't seriously expect to kill this thing. What are you going to use, a pointy stick? I can't just let it run wild. Traben's only about five miles from here, and there's smaller farms closer than that. Think of the damage it would do. But how, she repeated, how do you kill a thing like that? I turned to the tiny shed. If we're lucky... This fellow had the good sense to buy a spare crossbow. I began to dig around, 
throwing stuff out of the door. Stirring paddles, buckets, scrapers, spade, more buckets, a barrel. The barrel was about the size of a small keg of ale. I carried it outside the shed and pried off the lid. In the bottom was an oilcloth sack containing a large, gummy mass of black denna resin, at least four times as much as denna and I had already scraped together. I pulled out the sack and rested it on the ground, holding it open for denna to look. She peered in, gasped, then jumped up and down a little bit. Now I can buy a pony, she said, laughing. I don't know about a pony, I said, doing some calculations in my head. But I think before we split up the money, we should buy you a good half-harp out of this, I said. Not some sad liar. Yes, Denna said. Then she threw her arms around me in a wild, delighted hug. And we'll get you... She looked at me curiously, her sooty face inches away from my own. What do you want? Before I could say anything, do anything, the Dracus roared. Chapter 78 Poison The roar of the Dracus was like a trumpet, if you can imagine a trumpet as big as a house, and made of stone, and thunder, and molten lead. I didn't feel it in my chest. I felt it in my feet as the earth shook with it. The roar made us jump nearly out of our skins. The top of Denna's head banged into my nose, and I staggered, blinded with pain. Denna didn't notice as she was busy tripping and falling over into a loose, laughing tangle of arms and legs. As I helped Denna to her feet, I heard a distant crashing, and we made our way carefully back up to the lookout. The Dracus was cavorting, bounding around like a drunken dog, knocking over trees like a boy would topple cornstalks in a field. I watched breathlessly as it came to an ancient oak tree, a hundred years old, and massive as a graystone. The Dracus reared up and brought its front legs down on one of the lower branches as if it wanted to climb. The branch, big as a tree itself, practically exploded. The Dracus reared again, coming down hard on the tree. I watched, certain that it was about to impale itself on the broken limb, but the jagged spear of hard wood barely dimpled its chest before splintering. The Dracus crashed into the trunk, and though it didn't snap, it fractured with a sound like a crack of lightning. The Dracus threw itself around, hopped and fell, rolling over jagged spurs of rock. It belched a huge gout of flame and charged the fractured oak tree again, striking with its great blunt wedge of a head. This time, it knocked the tree over, causing an explosion of earth and rock as the tree's roots tore out of the ground. All I could think of was the futility of trying to hurt this creature. It was bringing more force to bear against itself than I could ever hope to muster. There's no way we can kill that, I said. It would be like trying to attack a thunderstorm. How could we possibly hurt it? We lure her over the side of a cliff, Denna said matter-of-factly. She? I asked. Why do you think it's a she? Why do you think it's a he? She replied, then shook her head as if to clear it. Never mind. It doesn't matter. We know it's drawn to fires. We just build one and hang it from a branch. She pointed to a few trees overhanging the cliff below. Then, when it rushes over to put it out, 
she made a pantomime with both hands of something falling. Do you think even that would hurt it? I asked dubiously. Well, Dennis said, when you flick an ant off a table, it doesn't get hurt, even though for an ant that has to be like dropping off a cliff. But if one of us jumped off a roof, we'd get hurt because we're heavier. It makes sense that bigger things fall even harder. She gave a pointed look down at the Dracus. You don't get much bigger than that. She was right, of course. She was talking about the square-cube ratio, though she didn't know what to call it. It should at least injure it, Denna continued. Then, I don't know, we could roll rocks down onto it or something. She looked at me. What? Is there something wrong with my idea? It's not very heroic, I said dismissively. I was expecting something with a little more flair. Well, I left my armor and war horse at home, she said. You're just upset because your big university brain couldn't think of a way, and my plan is brilliant. She pointed behind us to the box canyon. We'll build the fire in one of those metal pans. They're wide and shallow, and they'll take the heat. Was there any rope in that shed? I... I felt the familiar sinking feeling in my gut. No, I don't think so. Denna patted me on the arm. Don't look like that. When it leaves, we'll check on the wreckage of the house. I'll bet there's some rope in there. She looked at the Dracus. Honestly, I know how she feels. I feel a little like running around and jumping on things, too. That's the mania I was talking about, I said. After a quarter hour, the Dracus left the valley. Only then did Denna and I emerge from our hiding place, me carrying my travel sack, she with the heavy oilskin bag that held all the resin we'd found nearly a full bushel of it. Give me your lodenstone, she said, setting down the sack. I handed it over. You find some rope. I'm going to go get you a present. She skipped away lightly, her dark hair flying behind her. I made a quick search of the house, holding my breath as much as possible. I found a hatchet, broken crockery, a barrel of wormy flour, a mildewy straw tick, and a ball of twine, but no rope. Denna gave a delighted shout from the trees, ran up to me, and pressed a black scale into my hand. It was warm with the sun, slightly larger than hers, but more oval than tear-shaped. Thank you kindly, milady. She bobbed a charming curtsy, grinning. Rope? I held up a ball of rough twine. This is as close as I could find. Sorry. Denna frowned, then shrugged it off. Oh, well. Your turn for a plan. You have any strange, wonderful magics from the university? Any dark powers better left alone? I turned the scale over in my hands and thought about it. I had wax, and this scale would make as good a link as any hair. I could make a simulacrum of the Dracus, but then what? A hot foot wasn't going to bother a creature that was perfectly comfortable lying on a bed of coals. But there are more sinister things you can do with a mommet. Things no good arcanist was ever supposed to consider. Things with pins and knives that would leave a man bleeding even though he was miles away. True malfeasance. I looked at the scale in my hand, considering it. The thing was mostly iron and thicker than my palm in the middle. Even with a mommet and a hot fire for energy, 
I didn't know if I could make it through the scales to hurt the thing. Worst of all, if I tried, I wouldn't know if it had worked. I couldn't bear the thought of sitting idly by some fire, sticking pins into a wax doll, while miles away a drug-crazed Dracus rolled in the flaming wreckage of some innocent family's farm. No, I said. No magic I can think of. We can go tell the constable that he needs to deputize about a dozen men with bows to come and kill a drug-crazed big-as-a-house dragon chicken. It came to me in a flash. Poison, I said. We'll have to poison it. You've got two quarts of arsenic on you? She asked skeptically. Would that even be enough for something big as that? Not arsenic. I nudged the oilskin sack with my foot. She looked down. Oh, she said crestfallen. What about my pony? You'll probably have to skip your pony, I said. But we'll still have enough to buy you a half-harp. In fact, I bet we'll be able to make even more money from the Dracus's body. The scales will be worth a lot. And the naturalists at the university will love to be able... You don't need to sell me, she said. I know it's the right thing to do. She looked up at me and grinned. Besides... We get to be heroes and kill the dragon. Its treasure is just a perk. I laughed. Right then, I said. I think we should head back to the Greystone Hill and build a fire there to lure it in. Denna looked puzzled. Why? We know it's going to come back here. Why don't we just camp here and wait? I shook my head. Look at how many Denner trees are left. She looked around. It ate all of them? I nodded. If we kill it this evening, we can be back in Traben by tonight, I said. I'm tired of sleeping outdoors. I want to get a bath, a hot meal, and a real bed. You're lying again, she said cheerfully. Your delivery's getting better, but to me, you're clear as a shallow stream. She prodded my chest with a finger. Tell me the truth. I want to get you back to Traben, I said, just in case you ate more resin than is good for you. I wouldn't trust any doctor living there, but they probably have some medicines I could use, just in case. My hero, Denna smiled. You're sweet, but I feel fine. I reached out and flicked her ear with the tip of my finger, hard. Her hand went to the side of her head, her expression outraged. Ow! Oh. She looked confused. Doesn't hurt at all, does it? No she said. Here is the truth, I said seriously. I think you're going to be fine, but I don't know for certain. I don't know how much of that stuff you have left working its way into your system. In an hour, I'll have a better idea, but if something goes wrong, I'd rather be an hour closer to Traben. It means I won't have to carry you as far. I looked her square in the eye. I don't gamble with the lives of people I care for. She listened to me, her expression somber. Then the grin blossomed back onto her face. I like your manly bravado, she said. Do it some more. Chapter 79 Sweet Talk It took us about two hours to get back to the Greystone Hill. It would have been faster, but Denna's mania was growing stronger, and all her extra energy was more of a hindrance than a help. 
She was highly distractible and prone to larking off in her own direction if she saw something interesting. We crossed the same small stream that we had before, and despite the fact that it wasn't much more than ankle-deep, Denna insisted on bathing. I washed up a little, then moved a discreet distance away and listened to her sing several rather racy songs. She also made several none-too-subtle invitations that I could join her in the water. Needless to say, I kept my distance. There are names for people who take advantage of women who are not in full control of themselves, and none of those names will ever rightfully be applied to me. Once we reached the peak of the Greystone Hill, I put Denna's surplus of energy to use and sent her to gather firewood while I made an even larger fire pit than our previous one. The bigger the fire, the quicker it would draw the Dracus close. I sat down next to the oilskin bag and opened it. The resin gave off an earthy smell, like sweet, smoky mulch. Denna returned to the top of the hill and dropped an armload of wood. How much of that are you going to use? she asked. I still have to figure that out, I said. It's going to require some guesswork. Just give him all of it, Denna said. Better safe than sorry. I shook my head. There's no reason to go that far. It would just be wasteful. Besides, the resin makes a powerful painkiller when properly refined. People could use the medicine, and you could use the money, Denna said. I could, I admitted. But honestly, I was thinking more about your harp. You lost your lyre in that fire. I know what it's like to be without an instrument. Did you ever hear the story about the boy with the golden arrows? Denna asked. That always bothered me when I was young. You must want to kill someone really badly to shoot a gold arrow at him. Why not just keep the gold and go home? It certainly shines a new light on that story, I said, looking down at the sack. I guess this much Denna resin would be worth at least fifty talents to an apothecary. Maybe as much as a hundred, depending on how refined it was. Denna shrugged and headed back into the trees for more firewood, and I began the elaborate guesswork of how much Denner it would take to poison a five-ton lizard. It was a nightmare of educated guessery, complicated by the fact that I had no way to make accurate measurements. I started with a bead the size of the last digit of my little finger. My guess as to how much resin Denna had actually swallowed. However, Denna had been liberally dosed with charcoal, which effectively reduced that by half. I was left with a ball of black resin slightly larger than a pea. But that was just the amount required to make a human girl euphoric and energetic. I wanted to kill the Dracus. For that, I tripled the dose, then tripled it again to be sure. The end result was a ball the size of a large, ripe grape. I guessed the Dracus weighed five tons. 800 stone. I guessed Denna at 8 or 9 stone. 8 to be on the safe side. That meant I needed a 100 times that grape-sized dose to kill the Dracus. I made 10 grape-sized pellets, then mashed them together. It was the size of an apricot. I made 9 more apricot-sized balls and set them in the wooden bucket we had brought from the Denner plantation. Denna dropped another load of wood and peered down into the bucket. 
That's it? she asked. It doesn't look like very much. She was right. It didn't look like much at all compared to the Dracus's huge bulk. I explained how I'd come up with my estimate. She nodded. That seems about right, I guess. But don't forget that it's been eating trees for the better part of a month. It probably has a tolerance. I nodded and added five more apricot-sized balls to the bucket. And it might be tougher than you think. The resin might work different on lizards. I nodded again and added another five balls to the bucket. Then, after a moment's consideration, I added one more. That brings us up to twenty-one, I explained. A good number. Three sevens. Nothing wrong with having luck on your side, Denna agreed. We want it to die quickly, too, I said. It will be more humane for the Dracus and safer for us. Denna looked at me. So we double it. I nodded, and she headed back into the trees while I made another twenty-one balls and dropped them into the bucket. She came back with more wood just as I was rolling up the last ball. I packed the resin down into the bottom of the bucket. That should be more than enough, I said. That much O'Fallon would kill the entire population of Traben twice over. Denna and I looked at the bucket. It contained about a third of all the resin we'd found. What was left in the oilskin sack would be enough to buy Denna a half-harp, pay off my debt to Debbie, and still have enough left over so that we could live comfortably for months. I thought of buying new clothes, a full set of new strings for my lute, a bottle of Avenish fruit wine. I thought of the Dracus brushing aside trees as if they were sheaves of wheat, shattering them casually with its weight. We should double it again, Denna said, echoing my own thoughts. Just to be sure. I doubled it yet again, rolling out another forty-two balls of the resin while Denna fetched armload after armload of wood. I got the fire blazing just as the rain started to come down. We built it larger than our last one with the hope that a brighter fire would attract the Dracus more quickly. I wanted to get Denna back to the relative safety of Traben as soon as possible. Lastly, I cobbled together a rough ladder using the hatchet and twine I'd found. It was ugly, but serviceable, and I leaned it up against the side of the greystone arch. This time, Denna and I would have an easy route to safety. Our dinner was nowhere near as grand as last night's. We made do with the last of my now-stale flatbread, dried meat, and the last potatoes baked on the edge of the fire. While we ate, I told Denna the full story of the fire in the fishery, partly because I was young and male and desperately wanted to impress her, but I also wanted to make it clear that I had missed our lunch due to circumstances completely outside my control. She was the perfect audience, attentive and gasping at all the right moments. I was no longer worried about her overdosing. After gathering a small mountain of firewood, her mania was fading, leaving her in a content, almost dreamy lethargy. Still, I knew the after-effects of the drug would leave her exhausted and weak. I wanted her safely in bed in Traben for her recovery. After we finished eating, I made my way over to where she sat with her back against one of the greystones. I cuffed up my shirt sleeves. All right, I need to check you over, I said pompously. 
She smiled lazily at me, her eyes half-closed. You really do know how to sweet-talk a girl, don't you? I felt for her pulse in the hollow of her slender throat. It was slow, but steady. She shied away a little from my touch. You tickle. How do you feel? I asked. Tired, she said, her voice slightly slurred. Good and tired and a little cold. While this wasn't unexpected, it was still a little surprising considering the fact that we were only feet away from a blazing bonfire. I fetched the extra blanket from my bag and brought it back to her. She snuggled into it. I leaned close so that I could look into her eyes. Her pupils were still wide and sluggish, but no more than before. She reached up and lay her hand on my cheek. You have the sweetest face, she said, looking at me dreamily. It's like the perfect kitchen. I fought not to smile. This was the delirium. She'd fade in and out of it before the profound exhaustion dragged her down into unconsciousness. If you see someone spouting nonsense to themselves in an alley in Tarbian, odds are they're not actually crazy, just a sweet eater deranged by too much dinner. A kitchen? Yes, she said. Everything matches and the sugar bowl is right where it should be. How does it feel when you breathe? I asked. Normal, she said easily. Tight, but normal. My heart beat a little faster at that. What do you mean by that? I have trouble breathing, she said. My chest gets tight sometimes, and it's like breathing through pudding. She laughed. Did I say pudding? I meant molasses. Like a sweet molasses pudding. I fought off the urge to point out angrily that I'd asked her to tell me if she felt anything wrong with her breathing. Is it hard to breathe now? She shrugged indifferently. I need to listen to your breathing, I said. But I don't have any tools here, so if you could unbutton your shirt a little, I'll need to press my ear against your chest. Denna rolled her eyes and unbuttoned more of her shirt than was altogether necessary. Now that one is entirely new, she said archly, sounding for a moment like her normal self. I've never had anyone try that before. I turned and pressed my ear up against her breastbone. What does my heart sound like? she asked. It's slow but strong, I said. It's a good heart. Is it saying anything? Nothing I can hear, I said. Listen harder. Take a few deep breaths and don't talk, I said. I need to listen to your breathing. I listened. The air rushed in, and I felt one of her breasts pressing against my arm. She exhaled, and I felt her breath warm against the back of my neck. Goose flesh broke out over my whole body. I could picture Arwell's disapproving stare. I closed my eyes and tried to concentrate on what I was doing. In and out. It was like listening to the wind through the trees. In and out. I could hear a faint crackling, like paper crumpling. Like a faint sigh. But there was no wetness. No bubbling. Your hair smells really nice, she said. I sat up. You're fine, 
I said. Make sure to let me know if it gets any worse or feels different. She nodded amiably, smiling dreamily. Irritated that the Dracus seemed to be taking its sweet time making an appearance, I heaped more wood on the fire. I looked out at the northern bluffs, but there was nothing to see in the dim light but the outlines of trees and rocks. Denna laughed suddenly. Did I call your face a sugar bowl or something? She asked, peering at me. Am I even making any sense right now? It's just a little delirium, I reassured her. You'll fade in and out of it before you go to sleep. I hope it's as much fun for you as it is for me, she said, pulling the blanket closer around herself. It's like a cottony dream, but not as warm. I climbed the ladder to the top of the graystone, where we had stashed our possessions. I took a handful of the dinner resin out of the oilskin sack, carried it down, and threw it on the edge of the fire. It burned sullenly, giving off an acrid smoke that the wind brushed away to the north and west, toward the unseen bluffs. Hopefully, the Dracus would smell it and come running. I had pneumonia when I was just a tiny baby, Dennis said with no particular inflection. That's why my lungs aren't good. It's horrible not being able to breathe sometimes. Denna's eyes were half-closed as she continued, almost as if she were talking to herself. I stopped breathing for two minutes and died. Sometimes I wonder if this all isn't some sort of mistake, if I should be dead. But if it isn't a mistake, I have to be here for a reason. But if there is a reason, I don't know what that reason is. There was the distinct possibility that she didn't even realize that she was talking, and an even greater possibility that most of the important parts of her brain were already asleep and she wouldn't remember any of what was happening now in the morning. Since I didn't know how to respond, I simply nodded. That's the first thing you said to me. I was just wondering why you're here. My seven words. I've been wondering the same thing for so long. The sun, already hidden by the clouds, finally set behind the western mountains. As the landscape faded into darkness, the top of this small hill felt like an island in a great ocean of night. Denna was beginning to nod where she sat, her head slowly sinking to her chest, then bobbing back up. I walked over and held out my hand. Come on, the Dracus will be here soon. We should get up onto the stones. She nodded and came to her feet blankets still wrapped around her. I followed her to the ladder, and she made her slow, stumbling way up to the top of the gray stone. It was chilly up on the stone, away from the fire. The wind brushed past, making the slight chill worse. I spread one blanket across the stone, and she sat down, huddled in the other blanket. The cold seemed to rouse her a little, and she looked around peevishly, shivering. Damn chicken! Come eat your dinner, I'm cold. I was hoping to have you tucked into a warm bed in Traben by now, I admitted. So much for my brilliant plan. You always know where you're doing, she said muzzily. You're important with your green eyes looking at me like I mean something. It's okay that you have better things to do. It's enough that I get you sometimes, once in a while. I know I'm lucky for that. 
to get you just a little. I nodded agreeably as I watched the hillside for signs of the Dracus. We sat for a while longer, staring off into the dark. Denna nodded a little, then pulled herself upright again and fought off another violent shiver. I know you don't think of me, she trailed off. It's best to humor people in delirium, lest they turn violent. I think about you all the time, Denna, I said. Don't patronize me, she said crossly, then her tone softened again. You don't think of me like that. That's fine. But if you're cold, too, you could come over here and put your arms around me, just a little. My heart in my mouth, I moved closer and sat behind her, wrapping my arms around her. That's nice, she said, relaxing. I feel like I've always been cold. We sat looking to the north. She leaned against me, delightful in my arms. I drew shallow breaths, not wanting to disturb her. Denna stirred slightly, murmuring, You're so gentle. You never push. She trailed off again, resting more heavily against my chest. Then she roused herself. You could, you know, push more. Just a little. I sat there in the dark, holding her sleeping body in my arms. She was soft and warm, indescribably precious. I had never held a woman before. After a few moments, my back began to ache with the pressure of supporting her weight and my own. My legs started to go numb. Her hair tickled my nose. Still, I didn't move for fear of ruining this, the most wonderful moment of my life. Denna shifted in her sleep, then started to slide sideways and jerked awake. Lie down, she said, her voice clear again. She fumbled with the blanket, pulling it away so it was no longer between us. Come on, you've got to be cold too. You're not a priest, so you're not going to get in trouble for it. We'll be fine, just a little fine in the cold. I put my arms around her, and she draped the blanket over both of us. We lay on our sides, like spoons nesting in a drawer. My arm ended up under her head like a pillow. She curled snugly along the inside of my body, so easy and natural, as if she had been designed to fit there. As I lay there, I realized I had been wrong before. This was the most wonderful moment of my life. Denna stirred in her sleep. I know you didn't mean it, she said clearly. Mean what? I asked softly. Her voice was different, no longer dreamy and tired. I wondered if she was talking in her sleep. Before, you said you'd knock me down and make me eat coals. You'd never hit me. She turned her head a little. You wouldn't, would you? Not even if it was for my own good. I felt a chill go through me. What do you mean? There was a long pause, and I was beginning to think she'd fallen asleep when she spoke up again. I didn't tell you everything. I know Ash didn't die at the farm. When I was heading toward the fire, he found me. He came back and said that everyone was dead, 
He said that people would be suspicious if I was the only one who survived. I felt a hard, dark anger rise up in me. I knew what came next, but I let her talk. I didn't want to hear it, but I knew she needed to tell someone. He didn't just do it out of the blue, she said. He made sure it was what I really wanted. I knew it wouldn't look convincing if I did it to myself. He made sure I really wanted him to. He made me ask him to hit me, just to be sure. And he was right. She didn't move at all as she spoke. Even this way, they thought I had something to do with it. If he hadn't done it, I might be in jail right now. They would have hanged me. My stomach churned acid. Denna, I said. A man who could do that to you. He's not worth your time. Not one moment of it. It's not a matter of him being only half a loaf. He's rotten through. You deserve better. Who knows what I deserve, she said. He's not my best loaf. He's it. Him or hungry. You have other options, I said, then stalled, thinking of my conversation with Diak. You've... You've got... I've got you, she said dreamily. I could hear the warm, sleepy smile in her voice, like a child tucked into bed. Will you be my dark-eyed prince gallant and protect me from pigs, sing to me, whisk me away to tall trees? She trailed off to nothing. I will, I said, but I could tell by the heavy weight of her against my arm that she had finally fallen asleep. Chapter 80 Touching Iron I lay awake, feeling Denna's gentle breath against my arm. I couldn't have slept even if I'd wanted to. The closeness of her filled me with a crackling energy, a low warmth, a gentle thrumming hum. I lay awake savoring it, every moment precious as a jewel. Then I heard the distant crack of a breaking branch, then another. Earlier I wanted nothing more than the Dracus to hurry to our fire. Now I would have traded my right hand to have it go on its merry way for another five minutes. Still, it came. I began gently untangling myself from Denna. She barely stirred in her sleep. Denna? I shook her gently, then harder. Nothing. I wasn't surprised. There are few things deeper than a sweet eater's sleep. I covered her in the blanket then set my travel sack on one side, the oilskin bag on the other, like bookends. If she rolled in her sleep, she would butt into those before getting close to the edge of the graystone. I moved to the other side of the stone and looked out to the north. The clouds were still thick overhead, so I couldn't see anything outside the circle of firelight. Feeling carefully with my fingers, I located the piece of twine I had laid across the top of the graystone. The other end was tied to the rope handle of the wooden bucket below, midway between the fire and the graystones. My main fear was that the Dracus might accidentally crush the bucket before it smelled it. I planned to haul the bucket to safety if that happened, then cast it out again. 
Denna had laughed at my plan, referring to it as chicken fishing. The dracus came to the top of the hill, moving noisily through the brush. It stopped just inside the circle of firelight. Its dark eyes shone red, and there was red on its scales. It made a deep huffing sound and began to circle the fire, slowly rocking its head back and forth. It blew a wide plume of fire in what I was coming to recognize as either some sort of greeting or a challenge. It darted toward our fire. Despite the fact that I'd watched it at some length, I was still surprised by how quickly the huge animal could move. It pulled up short of the fire, huffed again, then advanced on the bucket. Despite the fact that the bucket was sturdy wood and built to hold at least two gallons, it looked tiny as a teacup next to the dracus's massive head. It sniffed again, then butted the bucket with its nose, tipping it over. The bucket rolled in a half circle, but I'd packed the sticky resin in tightly. The dracus took another step, huffed again, then took the whole thing into its mouth. I was so relieved that I almost forgot to let go of the twine. It was jerked out of my hands as the dracus chewed the bucket a little, crushing it in its massive jaws. Then it worked its head up and down, forcing the sticky mass down its gullet. I breathed a huge sigh of relief and sat down to watch as the dracus circled the fire. It gushed out a billow of blue flame, then another, then turned and rolled in the fire, wriggling and crushing it into the dirt. Once the fire was flattened, the dracus began to follow the same pattern as before. It sought out the scattered pieces of the fire, rolled in them until they were extinguished, then ate the wood. I could almost imagine each new stick and stump it swallowed, forcing the denner resin deeper into its gizzard, mixing it around, breaking it up, forcing it to dissolve. A quarter hour passed as I watched it complete its circuit of the fire. I'd hoped it would have showed the effects of the resin by now. By my best guess, it had eaten six times a lethal dose. It should rush quickly past the initial stages of euphoria and mania. Then would follow delirium, paralysis, coma, and death. By all my calculations, it should be over within an hour, hopefully sooner. I felt a pang of regret as I watched it go about the business of crushing out the scattered fires. It was a magnificent animal. I hated to kill it even more than I hated to waste upwards of sixty talents worth of ophalum. But there was no denying what would happen if events were left to run their course. I didn't want the deaths of innocence on my conscience. Soon it stopped eating. It merely rolled on the scattered branches, extinguishing them. It was moving more vigorously now, a sign that the dinner was beginning to take effect. It started to grunt low and deep. Grunt, grunt. A wash of blue fire. Roll. Grunt. Roll. Finally, there was nothing left but the bed of glimmering coals. As before, the dracus positioned itself on top of them and laid down, extinguishing all the light on the top of the hill. It lay there quietly for a moment, then grunted again. Grunt, grunt. Wash of fire. It wriggled its belly further into the coals, almost like it was fidgeting. If this was the onset of mania, it was coming too slowly for my liking. I'd hoped that it would be well on its way to delirium by now. Had I underestimated the dosage? 
As my eyes slowly adjusted to the dark, I realized there was another source of light. At first, I thought the clouds had blown over and the moon was peering in from the horizon. But when I turned away from the dragus to look behind me, I saw the truth. Off to the southwest, barely two miles away, Traben was full of firelight. Not just dim candlelight from windows, there were tall flames leaping everywhere. For a moment, I thought the city was ablaze. Then I realized what was happening. The Harvest Festival. There was a tall bonfire in the middle of town, and smaller ones outside the houses where people would be giving cider to the weary workers. They would drink and throw their shamblemen into the fires. Dummies made of wheat sheaves, of barley shocks, of straw, of chaff. Dummies built to flare up bright and sudden, a ritual to celebrate the end of the year, something that was supposed to keep demons away. Behind me, I heard the Dracus grunt. I looked down at it. Just as I had been, it was facing away from Traben, toward the dark cliffs to the north. I am not a religious person, but I will admit that I prayed then. I prayed earnestly to Telu and all his angels, asking for the Dracus to die, just slide quietly asleep and pass on without turning around to see the city's fires. I waited for several long minutes. At first, I thought the Dracus was asleep, but as my eyes sharpened, I could see its head weaving steadily back and forth, back and forth. As my eyes grew more accustomed to the dark, the fires of Traben seemed to grow brighter. It had been half an hour since it had eaten the resin. Why wasn't it dead yet? I wanted to throw down the rest of the resin, but I didn't dare. If the Dracus turned toward me, it would be facing south, toward the town. Even if I threw the sack of resin directly in front of it, it might turn around and resettle itself on the fire. Perhaps if... The Dracus roared then, deep and powerful as before. I had no doubt they heard it in Traben. I wouldn't have been surprised to learn that they heard it in Imre. I glanced at Denna. She shifted in her sleep, but didn't wake. The Dracus bounded off the bed of coals, looking for all the world like a frisking puppy. The coals still glimmered in places, giving me enough light to see the great beast roll around, flip, bite at the air, turn. No, I said. No, no, no. It looked out toward Traben. I could see the leaping flames of the town's fires reflected in its huge eyes. It breathed another gout of blue fire in a high arc, the same gesture it had made before, a greeting or a challenge. Then it was running, tearing down the hillside with demented abandon. I heard it crashing and snapping through the trees. Another roar. I thumbed on my sympathy lamp and went to Denna, shaking her roughly. Denna! Denna! You have to get up! She barely stirred. I lifted her eyelids and checked her pupils. They showed none of their earlier sluggishness and shrank quickly in response to the light. That meant the dinner resin had finally worked its way out of her system. This was simple exhaustion, nothing else. Just to be sure, I lifted both lids and brought the light back around again. Yes, her pupils were fine. She was fine. As if to confirm my opinion, Denna scowled fiercely and squirmed away from the light, 
muttering something indistinct and decidedly unladylike. I couldn't make out all of it, but the words whoremonger and sod off were used more than once. I scooped her up, blankets and all, and carefully made my way down to the ground. I bundled her up again between the arch of the gray stones. She seemed to rouse herself slightly as I jostled her around. Denna? Motev? She muttered around a mouthful of sleep, her eyes barely moving under her lids. Denna! The Dracus is going down to Traben. I have to... I stopped, partly because it was obvious she had dropped back into unconsciousness, but also because I wasn't entirely sure what it was I had to do. I had to do something. Normally, the Dracus would avoid a town, but drug-crazed and manic, I had no idea what its reaction to the harvest fires would be. If it rampaged through the town, it would be my fault. I had to do something. I dashed to the top of the graystone, grabbed both bags, and came back down. I upended the travel sack, emptying everything onto the ground. I grabbed the crossbow bolts, wrapped them in my torn shirt, and stuffed them into my travel sack. I threw in the hard iron scale, too, then stuffed the bottle of brand into the oilskin sack for padding, and put that in my travel sack as well. My mouth was dry, so I took a quick swallow of water from the water skin, recapped it, and left it for Denna. She would be terribly thirsty when she woke up. I slung the travel sack over my shoulder and cinched it tight across my back. Then I thumbed on my sympathy lamp, picked up the hatchet, and began to run. I had a dragon to kill. I ran madly through the woods, the light from my sympathy lamp bobbing wildly, revealing obstacles ahead of me bare moments before I was on top of them. Small wonder that I fell, tumbling down the hill, ass over tea kettle. When I got up, I easily found my lamp, but I abandoned the hatchet, knowing deep in my heart that it wouldn't be of any use against the Dracus. I fell twice more before I made it to the road. Then I tucked my head like a sprinter and ran toward the distant light of the city. I knew the Dracus could move faster than me, but I hoped it would be slowed by the trees or disoriented. If I made it to the town first, I could warn them, get them ready. But as the road emerged from the trees, I could see the fires were brighter, wilder. Houses were burning. I could hear the Dracus's near-constant bellowing punctuated by shouts and high-pitched screams. I slowed to a trot as I came into town, catching my breath. Then I scampered up the side of a house to one of the few two-story rooftops so I could see what was really happening. In the town square, the bonfire had been scattered everywhere. Several nearby houses and shops were staved in like rotten barrels, most of them burning fitfully. Fire flickered on the wooden shingles of a handful of roofs. If not for the evening's earlier rain, the town would already be ablaze instead of just a few scattered buildings. Still, it was just a matter of time. I couldn't see the Dracus, but I could hear the great crunching it made as it rolled in the wreckage of a burning house. I saw a gush of blue flame rise high above the rooftops and heard it roar again. The sound made me sweat. Who knew what was going through its drug-addled mind right now? There were people everywhere. Some were simply standing, confused. Others panicked and ran to the church, hoping to find shelter in the tall stone building or the huge iron wheel that hung there, promising them safety from demons. But the church doors were locked, 
and they were forced to find shelter elsewhere. Some people watched, horrified and weeping, from their windows, but a surprising number kept their heads and were forming a bucket line from the town's cistern atop the city hall to a nearby burning building. And just like that, I knew what I had to do. It was like I had suddenly stepped onto a stage. Fear and hesitation left me. All that remained was for me to play my part. I jumped to a nearby roof, then made my way across several others until I came to a house near the town square where a scattered piece of bonfire had set the roof burning. I pried up a thick shingle burning along one edge and took off running for the roof of the town hall. I was only two roofs away when I slipped. Too late. I realized I jumped to the inn's roof. No wood shingles here, but clay tiles slippery with rain. I held tight to the burning shingle as I fell, unwilling to let it go to brace my fall. I slid nearly to the edge of the roof before I came to a stop, heart pounding. Breathless, I kicked off my boots as I lay there. Then, with the familiar feel of rooftop under my calloused feet, I ran, jumped, ran, slid and jumped again. Finally, I swung myself one-handed by an eave pipe onto the flat stone roof of the town hall. Still clutching the burning shingle, I made my way up the ladder to the top of the cistern, whispering a breathless thanks to whoever had left it open to the sky. As I sprinted across the rooftops, the flame on the shingle had gone out, leaving a thin line of red ember along the edge. I puffed it carefully back to life, and soon it was blazing merrily again. I broke it down the middle and dropped half to the flat roof below. Turning to survey the town, I made note of the biggest fires. There were six especially bad ones, blazing up into the dark sky. Elksadal had always said that all fires are one fire, and all fires are the sympathists to command. Very well, then. All fires were one fire. This fire. This piece of burning shingle. I murmured a binding and focused my ailer. I used my thumbnail to scratch a hasty ool rune into the wood, then dock, then pessin. In the brief moment it took to do that, the entire shingle was smoldering and smoking, hot in my hand. I hooked my foot around the ladder rung and leaned deep into the cistern, quenching the shingle in the water. For a brief moment, I felt the cool water surround my hand, then it quickly warmed. Even though the shingle was underwater, I could see the faint line of red ember still smoldering along its edge. I pulled out my pocket knife with my other hand and drove it through the shingle into the wooden wall of the cistern, pinning my makeshift piece of sigildry under the water. I have no doubt it was the quickest, most slapdash heat-eater ever created. Pulling myself back onto the ladder, I looked around to a town blessedly dark. The flames had dimmed and in most places had subsided to sullen coals. I hadn't doused the fires, merely slowed them down enough to give the townsfolk and their buckets a fighting chance. But my job was only half done. I dropped to the roof and picked up the other half of the still-burning shingle I dropped. Then I slid down a drainpipe and legged it away through the dark streets, across the town square to the front of the Talin Church. I stopped under the huge oak that stood before the front door, still holding its full array of autumn leaves. Kneeling, I opened my travel sack and brought out the oilskin bag with all the remaining resin. 
I poured the bottle of brand onto it and set it afire with a burning shingle. It flared up quickly, billowing acrid, sweet-smelling smoke. Then I put the blunt end of the shingle between my teeth, jumped to catch a low branch, then began to climb the tree. It was easier than making my way up the side of a building and took me high enough to where I could jump to the wide stone window ledge on the church's second floor. I broke off a twig from the oak tree and stuffed it into my pocket. I edged along the window ledge to where the huge iron wheel hung, bolted to the stone of the wall. Climbing that was quicker than a ladder, though the iron spokes were startlingly cold against my still wet hands. I made my way to the top of the wheel, and from there pulled myself onto the flat peak of the highest roof in town. The fires were still dark for the most part, and most of the shouting had died down to sobs and low murmur of urgent, hurried talk. I took the piece of shingle out of my mouth and blew on it until it was flaming again. Then I concentrated, muttered another binding, and held the oak twig above the flame. I looked out over the town and saw the glimmering coals dim even further. A moment passed. The oak tree below burst into sudden brilliant flame. It flared brighter than a thousand torches as all its leaves caught fire at the same time. In the sudden light, I saw the Dracus raise its head two streets away. It bellowed and blew a cloud of blue flame even as it started to run toward the fire. It turned a corner too quickly and caromed wildly into the wall of a shop, smashing through with little resistance. It slowed as it approached the tree, blowing flame again and again. The leaves flared and faded quickly, leaving nothing but a thousand embers making the tree look like an immense extinguished candelabrum. In the dim red light, the Dracus was hardly more than a shadow, but I could still see the beast's attention wander now that the bright flames were gone. The massive wedge of a head swayed back and forth, back and forth. I cursed under my breath. It wasn't close enough. Then the Dracus huffed loud enough for me to hear from where I stood a hundred feet above. The head snapped around as it smelled the sweet smoke of the burning resin. It snuffed, grunted, and took another step toward the smoking bag of resin. It didn't show nearly the restraint it had earlier, and practically pounced on it snapping up the smoldering sack in its great wide mouth. I took a deep breath and shook my head, trying to clear away some of the sluggishness I felt. I had performed two rather substantial pieces of sympathy in quick succession and was feeling rather thick-headed because of it. But as they say, third time pays for all. I broke my mind into two pieces, then, with some difficulty, into a third. Nothing less than a triple binding would do for this. As the Dracus worked its jaw, trying to swallow the sticky mass of resin, I fumbled in my travel sack for the heavy black scale, then brought the lodenstone out from my cloak. I spoke my bindings clearly and focused my ailer. I brought the scale and stone up in front of me until I could feel them tugging at each other. I concentrated, focused. I let go of the lodenstone. It shot toward the iron scale. Below my feet was an explosion of stone as the great iron wheel tore free from the church wall. A ton of wrought iron fell. If anyone had been watching, they would have noticed that the wheel fell faster than gravity could account for. They would have noticed that it fell at an angle, almost as if it were drawn to the Dracus.
almost as if Telu himself steered it toward the beast with a vengeful hand. But there was no one there to see the truth of things, and there was no God guiding it, only me. Chapter 81 Pride Looking down, I saw the Dracus pinned beneath the great wrought-iron wheel. It lay motionless and dark in front of the church, and despite the necessity of it, I felt a pang of regret for killing the poor beast. I had one long moment of exhausted, pure relief. The autumn air was fresh and sweet despite the wood smoke, and the stone roof of the church was cool under my feet. Feeling rather smug, I tucked the scale and the loden stone back into my travel sack. I drew a deep breath and looked out over the town I had saved. Then I heard a grating noise and felt the roof shift beneath me. The front of the building sagged, crumbled, and I staggered as the world fell out from underneath me. I looked for a safe roof to leap to, but there were none close enough. I scrambled backward as the roof disintegrated into a mass of falling rubble. Desperate, I leaped for the charred branches of the oak tree. I grabbed one, but it snapped under my weight. I tumbled through the branches, struck my head, and fell into darkness. Chapter 82 Ash and Elm I awoke in a bed, in a room, in an inn. More than that was not immediately clear to me. I felt exactly like someone had hit me in the head with a church. I had been cleaned and bandaged, very thoroughly bandaged. Someone had seen fit to treat all my recent injuries, no matter how minor. I had white linen around my head, my chest, my knee, and one of my feet. Someone had even cleaned and wrapped the mild abrasion on my hands and the knife wound from three days ago when Ambrose's thugs had tried to kill me. The lump on my head had seemed to be the worst of the lot. It throbbed and left me dizzy when I lifted my head. Moving was a lesson in punitive anatomy. I swung my feet off the edge of the bed and grimaced. Deep tissue trauma to the medial polenoid in the right leg. I sat up. Oblique strain to the cartilage between the lower ribs. I got to my feet. Minor spraining in the sub... Trans... Damn, what was that called? I pictured Arwell's face frowning behind his round spectacles. My clothes had been washed and mended. I put them on, moving slowly to savor all the exciting messages my body was sending me. I was glad there wasn't a mirror in the room, knowing I must look completely battered. The bandage around my head was rather irritating, but I decided to leave it on. From the way things felt, it might be the only thing keeping my head from falling into several different pieces. I went to the window. It was overcast, and in the gray light the town looked awful, soot and ash everywhere. The shop across the street had been smashed like a dollhouse under a soldier's boot. People moved about slowly, sifting through the wreckage. The clouds were thick enough that I couldn't tell what time it was. I heard a faint rush of air as the door opened, and I turned to see a young woman standing in the doorway. Young, pretty, unassuming, the sort of girl that always worked at little inns like this. A Nellie. Nell. The sort of girl who spent her life in a perpetual flinch because the innkeeper had a temper and a sharp tongue and wasn't afraid to show her the back of his hand. She gaped at me, 
obviously surprised that I was out of bed. Was anyone killed? I asked. She shook her head. The Lyran boy got his arm broke pretty bad, and some folk got burned and such. I felt my whole body relax. You shouldn't be up, sir. Doctor said you weren't likely to wake up at all. You should rest. Is... Has my cousin come back to town? I asked. The girl who was out at the Mothin farm. Is she here too? The young woman shook her head. It's just you, sir. What time is it? Supper's not quite ready, sir, but I can bring you something if you like. My travel sack had been left by the side of the bed. I lifted it up onto my shoulder. It felt odd with nothing inside except the scale and lodenstone. I looked around for my boots until I remembered I'd kicked them off to get better traction running around the rooftops last night. I left the room with the girl trailing behind me and headed down to the common room. It was the same fellow behind the bar as before, still wearing his scowl. I walked up to him. My cousin, I said. Is she in town? The barman turned the scowl toward the doorway behind me as the young girl emerged. Nell! What in God's hell are you doing letting him up? I swear you haven't got the sense God gave a dog. So her name really was Nell. I would have found that amusing under different circumstances. He turned to me and gave a smile that was really just a different sort of scowl. Lord, boy, does your face hurt? It's killing me. He chortled at his own joke. I glared at him. I asked about my cousin. He shook his head. She hasn't come back. Good riddance to bad luck, I say. Bring me bread, fruit, and whatever meat you have ready in the back, I said, and a bottle of a Venice fruit wine, strawberry, if you have it. He leaned up against the bar and raised an eyebrow at me. His scowl reshaped itself into a small, patronizing smile. No sense rushing about, son. The constable will be wanting to talk to you now that you're up. I clenched my teeth against my first choice of words and took a deep breath. Listen, I've had an exceptionally irritating couple of days. My head hurts in ways you don't have the full wit to understand, and I have a friend who might be in trouble. I stared at him, icy in my calm. I have no desire to have things turn unpleasant, so I'm asking you, kindly, to get me what I asked for. I brought out my purse. Please. He looked at me, anger slowly bubbling up onto his face. You mouthy little swagger cock. If you don't show me a little respect, I'll sit you down and tie you to a chair until the constable comes. I tossed an iron drab onto the bar, keeping another clenched tight in my fist. He scowled at it. What's that? I concentrated and felt a chill begin to bleed up my arm. That is your tip, I said, as a thin curl of smoke began to curl up from the drab, for your quick and courteous service. The varnish around the drab began to bubble and char in a black ring around the piece of iron. The man stared at it, mute and horrified. Now fetch me what I asked for, I said, looking him in the eye, and a skin of water, too or I will burn this place down around your ears and dance among the ashes and your charred sticky bones. I came to the top of the graystone hill with my travel sack full. 
I was barefoot, out of breath, and my head was throbbing. Denna was nowhere to be seen. Making a quick search of the area, I found all my scattered possessions where I'd left them. Both blankets. The water skin was mostly empty, but other than that, everything was here. Denna might have just stepped away for a call of nature. I waited. I waited for longer than was entirely sensible. Then I called for her, softly at first, then louder, though my head throbbed when I shouted. Finally, I just sat. All I could think about was Denna waking alone, aching, thirsty, and disoriented. What must she have thought? I ate a little then, trying to think of what I could do next. I considered opening the bottle of wine, but knew it was a bad idea as I undoubtedly had a mild concussion. I fought off the irrational worry that Denna might have wandered into the woods in a delirium and that I should go look for her. I considered lighting a fire so she would see it and come back. But no. I knew she was simply gone. She woke, saw that I wasn't there, and left. She had said it herself when we left the inn in Traben. I leave where I'm not wanted. The rest I can make up as I go. Did she think I had abandoned her? Regardless, I knew in my bones that she was long gone from here. I packed up my travel sack. Then, just in case I was wrong, I wrote a note explaining what had happened and that I would wait for her in Traben for a day. I used a piece of coal to write her name on one of the graystones, then drew an arrow down to where I left all the food I had brought, a bottle of water, and one of the blankets. Then I left. My mood was not a pleasant one. My thoughts were not gentle or kind. When I came back to Traben, dusk was closing over the city. I made my way onto the rooftops with a little more care than usual. I wouldn't be able to trust my balance until my head had a few days to mend itself. Still, it was no great feat to make it to the roof of the inn where I collected my boots. From this vantage, in the dim light, the town looked grim. The front half of the church had completely collapsed and nearly a third of the town had been scarred by fire. Some buildings were merely singed, but others were little more than ash and cinders. Despite my best efforts, the fire must have raged out of control after I was knocked unconscious. I looked to the north and saw the peak of the Greystone Hill. I hoped to see the flicker of a fire, but there was nothing, of course. I made my way over to the flat roof of the town hall and climbed the ladder to the cistern. It was almost empty. A few feet of water rippled near the bottom, far below where my knife pinned a charred shingle to the wall. That explained the state the town was in. When the water level had dropped below my makeshift sigildry, the fire had flared up again. Still, it had slowed things down. If not for that, there might not be any town left at all. Back at the inn, a great many somber, sooty people were gathering to drink and gossip. My scowling friend was nowhere to be seen, but a cluster of folk were gathered around the bar, excitedly discussing something they saw there. The mayor and the constable were there, too. As soon as they spotted me, they rushed me into a private room to talk. I was tight-lipped and grim, and after the events of the last several days, not terribly intimidated by the authority of two paunchy old men. They could tell, and that made them nervous. I had a headache and didn't feel like explaining myself and was quite comfortable tolerating an uncomfortable silence. Because of this, 
they talked quite a bit, and in asking their own questions, they told me most of what I wanted to know. The town's injuries were blessedly minor. Because it had been the harvest festival, no one had been caught sleeping. There were a lot of bruises, singed hair, and folk that had breathed more smoke than was good for them, but aside from a few bad burns and the fellow whose arm had been crushed by a falling timber, I looked to have gotten the worst of it. They knew beyond all certainty that the Dracus was a demon, a huge black demon breathing fire and poison. If there had been any slim sliver of doubt as to that fact, it had been laid to rest when the beast had been struck down by Telu's own iron. It was also agreed upon that the demon beast had been responsible for the destruction of the Mothen farm, a reasonable conclusion despite the fact that it was dead wrong. Trying to convince them of anything else would be a pointless waste of my time. I had been found unconscious atop the iron wheel that had killed the demon. The local sawbone doctor had patched me up as best he could, and unfamiliar with the remarkable thickness of my skull, expressed serious doubts as to whether or not I would ever wake. At first, the general opinion was that I was merely an unlucky bystander, or that I had somehow pried the wheel off the church. However, my miraculous recovery, combined with the fact that I had charred a hole into the bar downstairs, encouraged people to finally take notice of what a young boy and an old widow had been saying all day, that when the old oak had gone up like a torch, they had seen someone standing on the roof of the church. He was lit by the fire below. His arms were raised in front of him, almost as if he were praying. Eventually, the mayor and constable ran out of things to say to fill the silence, and merely sat there, looking anxiously back and forth from me to each other. It occurred to me they didn't see a penniless, ragged boy sitting across from them. They saw a mysterious, battered figure who had killed a demon. I saw no reason to dissuade them. In fact, it was high time I caught a piece of luck in this business. If they considered me some sort of hero or holy man, it gave me useful leverage. What did you do with the demon's body? I asked, and watched them relax. Until this point, I had barely spoken a dozen words responding to most of their tentative questions with grim silence. No worry about that, sir, the constable said. We knew what to do with it. My stomach nodded and I knew before they told me. They'd burned and buried it. The creature was a scientific marvel, and they had burned and buried it like trash. I knew naturalist scribs in the archives who would have cut off their hands to study such a rare creature. I had even hoped, deep in my heart, that bringing such an opportunity to their attention might win me my way back into the archives. And the scales and bones hundreds of pounds of denatured iron that alchemists would have fought over. The mayor nodded eagerly and sing-songed, Dig a pit that's ten by two, ash and elm and rowan too, he cleared his throat. Though it had to be a bigger hole than that, of course. Everyone took a turn to get it done as quickly as possible. He held up his hand, proudly displaying a set of fresh blisters. I closed my eyes and fought down the urge to throw things around the room and curse them in eight languages. That explained why the town was still in such a sorry state. Everyone had been busy burning and burying a creature worth a king's ransom. Still, there was nothing to be done about it. I doubted my new reputation would be enough to protect me if they caught me trying to dig it up.
The girl that survived the Moffin wedding, I said. Has anyone seen her today? The mayor looked at the constable questioningly. Not that I've heard. Do you think she was connected to the beast in some way? What? The question was so absurd, I didn't understand it at first. No! Don't be ridiculous! I scowled at them. The last thing I needed was to somehow implicate Denna in all this. She was helping me in my work, I said, careful to keep things ambiguous. The mayor glared at the constable, then looked back to me. Is your work finished here? he asked carefully, as if afraid of giving offense. I certainly don't mean to pry into your affairs, but... He licked his lips nervously. Why did this happen? Are we safe? You're as safe as I can make you, I said ambiguously. It sounded like a heroic thing to say. If all I was going to gain from this was a bit of reputation, I might as well make sure it was the right sort. Then I had an idea. To be certain of your safety, I need one thing. I leaned forward in my chair, lacing my fingers together. I need to know what Mothin dug up on Barrow Hill. I saw them look at each other, thinking, How does he know about that? I leaned back in the chair, fighting the urge to smile like a tomcat in a dovecote. If I know what Mothin found up there, I can take steps to make sure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. I know it was a secret, but someone in town is bound to know more. Spread the word, and have anyone who knows anything come talk to me. I came to my feet smoothly. It took a conscious effort not to wince at the various twinges and aches. But have them come quickly. I leave tomorrow evening. I have pressing business to the south. Then I swept out the door, my cloak trailing rather dramatically behind me. I am a trooper to my bones, and when the scene is set, I know how to make an exit. I spent the next day eating good food and dozing in my soft bed. I took a bath, tended to my various wounds, and generally took a well-deserved rest. A few people stopped by to tell me what I already knew. Mothin had dug up barrow stones and found something buried there. What was it? Just something. No one knew more than that. I was sitting beside my bed, toying with the idea of writing a song about the Dracus, when I heard a timid tapping at my door, so faint I almost missed it. Come in! The door opened a crack then wider. A young girl of thirteen or so looked around nervously and scurried inside, closing the door softly behind her. She had curling, mousy brown hair and a pale face with two spots of color high on each cheek. Her eyes were hollow and dark, as if she had been crying or missing sleep, or both. You wanted to know what Moffin dug up? She looked at me, then away. What's your name? I asked gently. Verania Greyflock, she said dutifully, then dropped a hurried curtsy, looking at the floor. That's a lovely name, I said. A Verain is a tiny red flower. I smiled, trying to set her at ease. Have you ever seen one? She shook her head, eyes still on the floor. I'm guessing no one calls you Verania, though. Are you a Nina? She looked up at that. A faint smile showed itself on her stricken face. That's what my gran calls me, 
Come sit, Nina. I nodded to the bed, as it was the only other place to sit in the room. She sat, her hands twisting nervously in her lap. I seen it. The thing they got out of the barrow? She looked up at me, then down at her hands again. Jimmy, Mothin's youngest boy, he showed me. My heart beat faster. What was it? It was a big, fancy pot, she said softly, about this high. She held her hand about three feet off the ground. It was shaking. It had all sorts of writings and pictures on it, really fancy. I haven't ever seen colors like that, and some of the paints were shiny like silver and gold. Pictures of what? I asked, fighting to keep my voice calm. People, she said. Mostly people. There was a woman holding a broken sword, and a man next to a dead tree, and another man with a dog biting his leg. She trailed off. Was there one with white hair and black eyes? She looked at me wide-eyed, nodded. Gave me the all-overs, she shivered. The Chandrian. It was a vase showing the Chandrian and their signs. Can you remember anything else about the pictures? I asked. Take your time. Think hard. She thought about it. There was one with no face, just a hood with nothing inside. There was a mirror by his feet, and there was a bunch of moons over him. You know, full moon, half moon, sliver moon. She looked down, thinking. And there was a woman, she blushed, with some of her clothes off. Can you remember anything else? I asked. She shook her head. What about the writing? Nina shook her head. This was all foreign writing. It didn't say anything. Do you think you could draw any of the writing you saw on it? She shook her head again. I only saw it for half a moment, she said. Me and Jimmy knew we'd catch a beating if his dad caught us. Her eyes welled up with sudden tears. Are demons going to be coming for me, too? Because I seen it? I shook my head reassuringly, but she burst into tears anyway. I've been so scared since what happened out at Mothin's, she sobbed. I keep having dreams. I know they're going to come and get me. I moved to sit next to her on the bed and put my arm around her, making comforting noises. Her sobbing slowly wound down. Nothing is going to come and get you. She looked up at me. She was no longer crying, but I could see the truth of things in her eyes. Underneath it all, she was still terrified. No amount of gentle words would be enough to reassure her. I stood and went over to my cloak. Let me give you something, I said, reaching into one of the pockets. I brought a piece of the sympathy lamp I was working on in the fishery. It was a disc of bright metal, covered with intricate sigildry on one side. I brought it back to her. I got this charm when I was in Veloran, far away across the Stormwall Mountains. It is a most excellent charm against demons. I took her hand and pressed it into her palm. Nina looked down at it, then up at me. Don't you need it? I shook my head. I have other ways of keeping safe. She clutched it, tears spilling down her cheeks again. 
Oh, thank you. I'll keep it with me all the time. Her hands were white-knuckled around it. She would lose it. Not soon, but in a year, or two, or ten. It was human nature, and when that happened, she would be even worse off than before. There's no need for that, I said quickly. Here's how it works. I took her hand that clutched the piece of metal and wrapped it in my own. Close your eyes. Nina closed her eyes, and I slowly recited the first ten lines of Ve Valora Sartane. Not very appropriate, really, but it was all I could think of at the time. Tema is an impressive-sounding language, especially if you have a good dramatic baritone, which I did. I finished, and she opened her eyes. They were full of wonder, not tears. Now it's tuned to you, I said. No matter what, no matter where it is, it will protect you and keep you safe. You could even break it and melt it down, and the charm would still hold. She threw her arms around me and kissed my cheek, then stood suddenly, blushing. No longer pale and stricken, her eyes were bright. I hadn't noticed it before, but she was beautiful. She left soon after that, and I sat for a while on my bed, thinking. Over the last month, I had pulled a woman from a blazing inferno. I had called fire and lightning down on assassins and escaped to safety. I had even killed something that could have been either a dragon or a demon, depending on your point of view. But there in that room was the first time I actually felt like any sort of hero. If you are looking for a reason for the man I would eventually become, if you are looking for a beginning, look there. Chapter 83 Return that evening, I gathered up my things and made my way down to the common room. The townsfolk eyed me and murmured excitedly among themselves. I overheard a few comments as I walked to the bar and realized that yesterday most of them had seen me wrapped in bandages, presumably with terrible wounds underneath. Today, the bandages were gone, and all they saw were some minor bruises. Another miracle. I fought to keep from smiling. The sullen innkeeper told me that he couldn't possibly dream of charging me, seeing as how the entire town was in my debt and all that. I insisted. No, no, absolutely not. He wouldn't hear of it. If only there was something else he could do to show his gratitude. I put on a thoughtful expression. Now that he mentioned it, I said, if he happened to have another bottle of that lovely strawberry wine... I made my way to Evesdown Docks and got a seat on a barge heading downriver. Then, while I was waiting, I asked if any of the dock workers had seen a young woman come through here in the last couple days. Dark-haired. Pretty. They had. She had been by yesterday afternoon and shipped downriver. I felt a certain amount of relief knowing that she was safe and relatively sound. But other than that, I didn't know what to think. Why hadn't she come to Traben? Did she think I'd abandon her? Did she remember anything we had talked about that night as we lay on the graystone together? We docked in Imre a few hours after dawn, and I went straight away to Debbie's. After some spirited bargaining, I gave her the Lodenstone and a single talent in order to wipe out my extremely short-term loan of twenty talents. I still owed my original debt, but after all I'd been through... A four-talent debt no longer seemed terribly ominous, 
despite the fact that my purse was largely empty again. It took a while to put my life back together. I'd only been gone four days, but I needed to make apologies and give explanations to all manner of people. I'd missed an appointment with Count Threp, and two meetings with Manette, and a lunch with Fella. Anchors had gone without a musician for two nights. Even Ari reproached me gently for not coming to visit her. I'd missed classes with Kilvin, Elksadal, and Arwell. They all accepted my apologies with gracious disapproval. I knew that when next term's tuitions were set, I would end up paying for my sudden, largely unexplained absence. Most important were Will and Sim. They had heard rumors of a student attacked in an alley. Given Ambrose's smugger-than-usual expression of late, they expected I had been run out of town, or, at worst, that I was weighted down with rocks at the bottom of the Omephi. They were the only ones that got a real explanation of what had happened. Though I didn't tell them the entire truth about why I was interested in the Chandrian, I did tell them the whole story, and showed them the scale. They were appropriately amazed, though they did tell me in plain terms that next time I would leave a note for them, or they would be hell to pay. And I looked for Denna, hoping to make my most important explanation of all, but, as always, looking did no good. Chapter 84 A Sudden Storm In the end, I found Denna, as I always do, through pure accident. I was walking hurriedly along, my mind full of other things, when I turned a corner and had to pull up short to keep from running headlong into her. We both stood there for a half-second, startled and speechless. Despite the fact that I'd been searching out her face in every shadow and carriage window for days, the sight of her stunned me. I'd remembered the shape of her eyes, but not the weight of them, their darkness, but not their depth. Her closeness pressed the breath out of my chest, as if I'd suddenly been thrust deep underwater. I'd spent long hours thinking about how this meeting might go. I had played the scene a thousand times in my mind. I feared she would be distant, aloof, that she would spurn me for leaving her alone in the woods, that she would be silent and sullenly hurt. I worried that she might cry, or curse me, or simply turn and leave. Denna gave me a delighted smile. Quoth! She caught up my hand and pressed it between her own. I've missed you! Where have you been? I felt myself go weak with relief. Oh, you know, here and there. I made a nonchalant gesture. Around. You left me dry in the dock the other day she said with a mock serious glare. I waited, but the tide never came. I was about to explain things to her when Denna gestured to the man standing beside her. Forgive my rudeness. Quoth, this is Lantaran. I hadn't even noticed him. Lantaran, quoth. Lantaran was tall and lean, well-muscled, well-dressed, and well-bred. He had a jawline a mason would have been proud of, and straight, white teeth. He looked like Prince Gallant out of a storybook. He reeked of money. He smiled at me, his manner easy, friendly. Nice to meet you, Quoth, he said with a graceful half-bow. I returned the bow on pure reflex, smiling my most charming smile. 
at your service, Lentarin. I turned back to Denna. We should have lunch one of these days, I said blithely, arching one eyebrow ever so slightly, asking, Is this Master Ash? I have some interesting stories for you. Absolutely. She shook her head slightly, telling me no. You left before you could finish your last one. I was terribly disappointed that I missed the end. Distraught, in fact. Oh, it's just the same thing you've heard before, a hundred times before, I said. Prince Gallant kills the dragon but loses the treasure and the girl. Ah, a tragedy. Denna looked down. Not the ending I'd hoped for, but no more than I expected, I suppose. It would be something of a tragedy if it stopped there, I admitted. But it depends on how you look at it, really. I prefer to think of it as a story that's waiting for an appropriately uplifting sequel. A carriage trundled by on the road, and Lentaren stepped out of the way, incidentally brushing up against Denna as he moved. She took hold of his arm absent-mindedly. I don't generally go in for serial stories, she said, her expression momentarily serious and unreadable. Then she shrugged and gave me a hint of a wry smile. But I've certainly changed my mind about these things before. Maybe you'll convince me otherwise. I gestured to the loot case I carried slung over my shoulder. I still play at anchors most nights, if you'd like to stop in. I will. Denna sighed and looked up at Lentaren. We're already late, aren't we? He squinted up at the sun and nodded. We are, but we can still catch them if we hurry. She turned back to me. I'm sorry, we have a riding appointment. I would never dream of keeping you, I said, graciously stepping to one side, out of their way. Lentarin and I nodded politely to each other. I'll come find you before too long, she said, turning to face me as they walked past. Go on, I nodded in the direction they'd been heading. Don't let me keep you. They turned to go. I watched them walk through the cobbled streets of Imre, together. Will and Sim were waiting for me by the time I arrived. They had already claimed a bench with a good view of the fountain in front of the Aeolian. Water flared up around statuary nymphs being chased by a satyr. I laid my loot case down beside the bench and absent-mindedly flipped open the lid, thinking my loot might enjoy the feel of a little sun on its strings. If you aren't a musician, I don't expect you to understand. Will handed me an apple as I took a seat next to them. The wind brushed through the square, and I watched the spray from the fountain move like gauzy curtains in the wind. A few red maple leaves danced circles on the cobblestones. I watched them as they skipped and twirled, tracing strange, complicated patterns in the empty air. I'm guessing you finally found Dana, Willem asked after a while. I nodded without looking away from the leaves. I didn't really feel like explaining. I can tell because you're quiet, he said. Didn't go well? Sim asked gently. Didn't turn out the way I'd hoped, I said. They nodded sagely, and there was another moment of silence. I was thinking about what you told us, Will said. What your Dana said. There is a hole in her story. Sim and I looked at him, curious. She said she was looking for her patron, Willem pointed out. 
she was traveling with you to look for him. But later, she said she knew he was safe because he... Will hesitated significantly. Met with her as she was heading back to the burning farm. It does not fit. Why would she hunt for him if she knew he was safe? I hadn't considered that. Before I could think of a response, Simmons shook his head. She was just making an excuse to spend time with him, he said, as if it were plain as day. Willem frowned a little. Sim looked back and forth between us, plainly surprised he had to explain himself. It's obvious she has a thing for you, he said, and began counting on his finger. She found you at Anchors. She comes to get you that night at Aeolian when we're drinking. She makes up an excuse to wander around the middle of nowhere with you for a couple of days. Sim, I said exasperated, if she was interested, I'd be able to find her more than once in a month of searching. That's a logical fallacy, Sim pointed out eagerly. False cause. All that proves is that you're lousy at finding her, or that she's hard to find, not that she's not interested. In fact, Willem pointed out, taking up Simmons' side, since she finds you more often, it seems likely that she must spend a fair amount of time looking for you. You are not easy to track down. That indicates interest. I thought about the note she had left me, and for a moment I entertained the thought that Sim might be right. I felt a faint hope flicker in my chest, remembering that night we lay atop the greystone. Then I remembered that Denna had been delirious out of her mind that night, and I remembered Denna on Lentarin's arm. I thought of tall, handsome, wealthy Lentarin and all the other countless men who had something worthwhile to offer her something more than a good singing voice and manly bravado. You know I'm right. Simmon pushed his hair out of his eyes, laughing boyishly. You can't argue your way out of this one. She's obviously stupid for you, and you're just plain stupid, so it's a great match. I sighed. Sim, I'm happy to have her as a friend. She's a delightful person, and I'm glad to spend time with her. That's all there is. I forced the proper amount of jovial unconcern into my voice so Sim would take me at my word and drop the subject for the time being. Sim looked at me for a moment and shrugged it off. If that's the case, he said gesturing with his piece of chicken, Fella talks about you all the time. Thinks you're a hell of a guy, plus the whole saving her life thing. I'm pretty sure you have a chance there. I shrugged watching the patterns the wind made in the fountain spray. You know what we should... Sim stopped mid-thought, staring past me, his expression going suddenly blank. I turned to see what he was looking at, and saw my loot case, empty. My loot was gone. I looked around wildly, ready to spring to my feet and dash off searching for it, but there was no need. A few feet away stood Ambrose and a few of his friends. He held my loot loosely in one hand. Oh, merciful Taylu, Simon muttered behind me. Then at a normal volume, he said, Give it back, Ambrose. Quiet, Elir, Ambrose snapped. This is none of your concern. I got to my feet, keeping my eyes on him, on my loot. I had come to think of Ambrose as taller than me, but when I stood, I saw that we were eye-level with each other. Ambrose seemed a bit surprised as well. 
Give it to me, I said, and stretched out my hand. I was surprised to see that it wasn't shaking. I was shaking inside, half fear, half fury. Two parts of me tried to speak at the same time. The first cried, Please don't do anything to it, not again. Don't break it, please give it back. Don't hold it by the neck like that. The other half of me was chanting, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, like spitting out mouthfuls of blood. I took a step forward. Give it to me. My voice sounded odd to my own ears, emotionless and flat, flat as my outstretched palm. I had stopped shaking inside. He paused for a moment, caught unaware by something in my tone. I could sense his unease. I wasn't acting the way he had expected. Behind me, I could hear Willem and Simmon hold their breath. Behind Ambrose, his friends paused, suddenly unsure. Ambrose smiled and cocked an eyebrow. But I've written a song for you, and it needs to be accompanied. He gripped the lute roughly and dragged his fingers across the strings with no thought for rhythm or tune. People stopped to watch as he sang. There once was a rabble named Quoth, whose tongue was quick as quipping. The masters thought him clever and rewarded him with whipping. A few passers-by had stopped to watch by this point, smiling and laughing at Ambrose's little show. Encouraged, Ambrose made a sweeping bow. Everyone sing, he shouted, raising his hands like an orchestra conductor, gesturing with my lute like a baton. I took another step forward. Give it back, or I will kill you. At that moment, I meant it in perfect earnest. Everything grew quiet again. Seeing he wasn't going to get the rise he had expected from me, Ambrose affected nonchalance. Some people have no sense of humor, he said with a sigh. Catch! He tossed it to me, but lutes are not meant to be tossed. It twisted awkwardly in the air, and when I grabbed, there was nothing in my hands. Whether he was clumsy or cruel makes not the slightest difference to me. My lute hit the cobblestones bowl first and made a splintering noise. The sound reminded me of the terrible noise my father's lute had made, crushed beneath my body in a soot-streaked alley in Tarbian. I bent to pick it up, and it made a noise like a wounded animal. Ambrose half-turned to look back at me, and I saw flickers of amusement play across his face. I opened my mouth to howl, to cry, to curse him, but something other tore from my throat, a word I did not know and could not remember. Then all I could hear was the sound of the wind. It roared into the courtyard like a sudden storm. A nearby carriage slid sideways across the cobblestones, its horses rearing up in panic. Sheet music was torn from someone's hands to streak around us like strange lightning. I was pushed forward a step. Everyone was pushed by the wind. Everyone but Ambrose, who pinwheeled to the ground as if struck by the hand of God. Then everything was still again. Papers fell, twisting like autumn leaves. People looked around, dazed, their hair tousled and clothes in disarray. Several people staggered as they braced against a storm that was no longer there. My throat hurt. My lute was broken. Ambrose staggered to his feet. He held his arm awkwardly at his side, and blood was running down from his scalp. 
The look of wild, confused fear he gave me was a brief, sweet pleasure. I considered shouting at him again, wondering what would happen. Would the wind come again? Would the ground swallow him up? I heard a horse whinnying in panic. People began to pour from the Aeolian and the other buildings around the courtyard. Musicians looked around wildly, and everyone was talking at once. Was that? Notes are all over. Help me before they get... Did it? Him over there with the red. Demon, a demon of wind and... I looked around in mute confusion until Willem and Simon hurried me away. We didn't know where to take him, Simon said to Kilvin. Say it all to me again, Kilvin said calmly. But this time, only one talks. He pointed at Willem. Try to put the words all in a tidy row. We were in Kilvin's office. The door was closed and the curtains drawn. Willem began to explain what had happened. As he gained speed, he switched to Siaru. Kilvin kept nodding along, his face thoughtful. Simon listened intently, occasionally interjecting a word or two. I sat on a stool nearby. My mind was a whirl of confusion and half-formed questions. My throat was sore. My body was weary and full of sour adrenaline. In the middle of it all, deep in the center of my chest, a piece of me burned in anger like a forge coal fanned red and hot. All around me there was a great numbness, as if I were sealed in wax ten inches thick. There was no quoth, only the confusion, the anger, and the numbness wrapping them. I was like a sparrow in a storm, unable to find a safe branch to cling to, unable to control the tumbling motion of my flight. Willem was reaching the end of his explanation when he lowed in and entered the room without knocking or announcing himself. Willem fell silent. I spared the master namer half a glance, then looked back toward the shattered lute in my hands. As I turned it over in my hands, one of its sharp edges cut my finger. I blankly watched the blood well up and fall to the floor. Elodin came to stand directly in front of me, not bothering to speak to anyone else. Quoth? He's not right, master, Simmons said, his voice shrill with worry. He's gone all dumb. He won't say a thing. While I heard the words, knew they had meaning, even knew the meanings that belonged to them, I couldn't pull any sense from them. I think he struck his head, Willem said. He looks at you, but nothing is there. His eyes are like a dog's eyes. Quoth? Elodin repeated. When I didn't respond or look up from my lute, he reached forward and gently tipped my chin up until I met his eye. Quoth? I blinked. He looked at me. His dark eyes steadied me somewhat, slowed the storm inside me. Earl of Sedi, he said. Say it. What? Simmon said somewhere in the distant background. Wind? Earl of Sedi. Elodin repeated patiently, his dark eyes intent upon my face. Earl of Sedi, I said numbly. Elodin closed his eyes briefly, peacefully, as if he were trying to catch a faint strain of music wafting gently on a breeze. Unable to see his eyes, I began to drift. I looked back down toward the broken lute in my hands. 
but before my gaze wandered too far, he caught my chin again, tilting my face up. His eyes caught mine. The numbness faded, but the storm still turned inside my head. Then Elodin's eyes changed. He stopped looking toward me and looked into me. That is the only way I can describe it. He looked deep into me, not into my eyes, but through my eyes. His gaze went into me and settled solidly in my chest, as if he had both his hands inside me, feeling the shape of my lungs, the movement of my heart, the heat of my anger, and the pattern of the storm that thundered inside me. He leaned forward, and his lips brushed my ear. I felt his breath. He spoke, and the storm stilled. I found a place to land. There is a game all children try at some time or another. You fling out your arms and spin round and round, watching as the world blurs. First, you are disoriented, but if you continue to spin long enough, the world resolves itself, and you are no longer dizzy as you spin with the world blurring around you. Then you stop, and the world lurches into regular shape. The dizziness strikes you like a thunderclap. Everything lurches, moves. The world tilts around you. That is what happened when Elodin stilled the storm in my head. Suddenly, violently dizzy, I cried out and raised my hands to keep myself from falling sideways, falling upward, falling inward. I felt arms catch me as my feet tangled in the stool, and I began to topple to the floor. It was terrifying, but it faded. By the time I recovered, Elodin was gone. Chapter 85 Hands Against Me Simon and Willem took me to my room at Anchors, where I fell into bed and spent eighteen hours behind the doors of sleep. When I woke the next day, I felt surprisingly good, considering I had slept in my clothes and my bladder felt stretched to the size of a sweet melon. Fortune smiled on me, giving me enough time for a meal and a bath before one of Jameson's errand boys tracked me down. I was needed in the master's hall. I was due to be on the horns in half an hour. Ambrose and I stood before the master's table. He had accused me of malfeasance. In retaliation, I had accused him of theft, destruction of property, and conduct unbecoming a member of the Arcanum. After my previous experience on the horns, I had familiarized myself with the Rerum Codex, the university's official rules. I had read them twice to be certain of how things were done around here. I knew them like the backs of my hands. Unfortunately, this meant I knew exactly how much trouble I was in. The charge of malfeasance was a serious one. If they found me guilty of intentionally harming Ambrose, I would be whipped and expelled from the university. There was little doubt that I had hurt Ambrose. He was bruised and limping. A garish red abrasion colored his forehead. He wore a sling as well, but I was fairly certain that was merely a piece of drama he had added on his own. The trouble was, I didn't have the slightest idea what had really happened. I hadn't had the opportunity to speak with anyone, not even to thank Elodin for helping me yesterday in Kilvin's shop. The masters allowed each of us to speak our piece. Ambrose was on his best behavior, which meant he was very polite when he spoke at all. After a while, 
I began to suspect that his sluggishness might be from a too liberal dose of painkiller. By the glaze in his eyes, my guess was laudanum. Let's deal with the grievances in order of their severity, the Chancellor said after we had related our sides of the story. Master Hem made a gesture, and the Chancellor nodded for him to speak. We should pare the charges down before we vote, Hem said. Ilirkvold's complaints are redundant. You cannot charge a student with both theft and destruction of the same property. It's either one or the other. Why do you say that, Master? I asked politely. Theft implies the possession of another's property, Hem said in reasonable tones. How can you possess something that you have destroyed? One charge or the other should be set aside. The Chancellor looked at me. Elirk both? Do you wish to set aside one of your complaints? No, sir. Then I call for a vote to set aside the charge of theft, Hem said. The Chancellor glared at Hem, chastising him silently for speaking out of turn, then turned back to me. Stubbornness in the face of reason is hardly laudable, Elir, and Master Hem makes a convincing argument. Master Hem makes a flawed argument, I said evenly. Theft implies acquisition of another's property. It is ridiculous to imply that you cannot destroy what you have stolen. I saw a few of the masters nod at this, but Hem persisted. Master Lauren, what is the punishment for theft? The student may be given no more than two single lashes across the back, Lauren recited, and must return the property or the price of the property plus a fine of one silver talent. And the punishment for destruction of property? The student must pay for the replacement or repair of the property. You see, Hem said, there is the possibility that he would have to pay twice for the same loot. There is no justice in that. It would be punishing him twice for the same thing. No, Master Hem, I interjected. It would be punishing him for theft and for destruction of property. The Chancellor gave me the same look Hem had earned before for speaking out of turn, but I bowled ahead. If I had lent him my loot and he had broken it, that would be one matter. If he had stolen it and left it intact, that would be another. But it is not one or the other. It's both. The Chancellor rapped his knuckles on the table to quiet us. I take it then that you will not set aside one of the charges. I will not. Hem raised a hand and was recognized. I call for a vote to strike the charge of theft. All in favor, the Chancellor said wearily. Hem raised his hand, as did Brandur, Mandrag, and Lauren. Five and a half to four, grievance stands. The Chancellor pressed on before anyone could slow things down. Who finds Rilar Ambrose guilty of destruction of property? Everyone raised their hands but Ham and Brandur. The Chancellor looked at me. How much did you pay for your loot? Nine talents and six, I lied, knowing it to be a reasonable price. Ambrose roused himself at this. Come now! You've never held ten talents in your life! Annoyed, the Chancellor rapped his knuckles at the interruption, but Brandur raised a hand to speak. Rilar Ambrose does raise an interesting point. How does a student who came to us destitute come by such money? A few of the masters looked at me speculatively. I looked down as if embarrassed. 
I won it playing corners, sir. There was an amused mutter. Elodin laughed out loud. The Chancellor rapped the table. Relar Ambrose to be fined nine talents and six. Does any master oppose this action? Hem raised his hand and was voted down. On the grievance of theft, number of lashes sought? None, I said, raising a few eyebrows. Who finds Relar Ambrose guilty of theft? The Chancellor called out. Hem, Brander, and Lorin kept their hands down. Relar Ambrose to be fined ten talents and six. Does any master oppose this action? Hem kept his hand down this time, looking sullen. The Chancellor took a deep breath and let it out in a rush. Master Archivist, what is the punishment for conduct unbecoming a member of the Arcanum? Student may be fined, lashed, suspended from the Arcanum, or expelled from the university depending on the severity of grievance, Lauren said calmly. Punishment sought? Suspension from the Arcanum, I said, as if it were the most sensible thing in the world. Ambrose's composure broke. What? he said incredulously, turning to face me. Hem chimed in. Herma, this is growing ridiculous. The Chancellor looked at me with a tinge of reproach. I am afraid I must agree with Master Hem, Ilir Quoth. I hardly think that this is grounds for suspension. I disagree, I said, attempting to bring all my powers of persuasion to bear. Think on what you've heard. For no other reason than his personal distaste for me, Ambrose chose to publicly mock me, then steal and destroy the only thing I owned of any value. Is this the sort of behavior that a member of the Arcanum should exhibit? Is this the attitude you wish to cultivate in the rest of the Relar? Are petty meanness and spite characteristics you approve of in students who seek to become Arcanists? It has been two hundred years since we have seen an Arcanist burned. If you succeed in giving guilders to petty children such as this, I gestured to Ambrose, that long-standing peace and safety will be over in a scant handful of years. It swayed them. I could see it on their faces. Ambrose moved nervously beside me, his eyes darting from face to face. After a moment of silence, the Chancellor called for the vote. Those in favor of suspension for Rilar Ambrose? Arwell's hand went up, followed by Lauren's, Elodin's, Elksa Dahl's. There was a tense moment. I looked from Kilvin to the Chancellor, hoping to see one of their hands join the others. The moment passed. Grievance failed. Ambrose let out a breath. I was only slightly disappointed. In fact, I was rather surprised I had managed to carry it as far as I had. Now, the Chancellor said, as if preparing himself for a great effort. The grievance of malfeasance against Elir Kvoth. From four to fifteen single lashes and mandatory expulsion from the university, Lauren recited. Lashes sought? Ambrose turned to look at me. I could see the wheels in his mind turning, trying to calculate how heavy a price he could make me pay and still have the master's vote in his favor. Six! I felt a leaden fear settle into the pit of my stomach. I didn't care one whit about the lashes. I would take two dozen if it would keep me from being expelled. If I were thrown from the university, my life was over. Chancellor, 
I said. He gave me a tired, kindly look. His eyes said he understood, but that he had no choice but to see things through to their natural end. The general pity in his look frightened me. He knew what was going to happen. Yes, Ilirkvoth? Might I say a few things? You have already given your defense, he said firmly. But I don't even know what I did! I burst out, panic overwhelming my composure. Six lashes and expulsion, the Chancellor carried on in an official voice, ignoring my outburst. All those in favor? Hem raised his hand. Brandur and Arwil followed. My heart sank as I saw the Chancellor raise his hand, and Lauren, and Kilvin, and Alxadal. Last of all was Elodin, who smiled lazily and waggled the fingers of his upraised hand as if waving. All nine hands against me. I was to be expelled from the university. My life was over. Chapter 86 The Fire Itself Six lashes and expulsion, the Chancellor said heavily. Expulsion, I thought numbly, as if I had never heard the word before. To expel, to cast violently away. I could feel Ambrose's satisfaction radiating outward. For a second, I was afraid that I was going to be violently ill right there in front of everyone. Does any master oppose this action? The Chancellor asked ritualistically as I looked down at my feet. I do. The stirring voice could only be Elodin's. All in favor of suspending expulsion? I looked up again in time to see Elodin's hand. Elksadal's. Kilvin. Lauren, the Chancellor, all hands save Hems. I almost laughed out of shock and sheer disbelief. Elodin gave me his boyish smile again. Expulsion repealed, the Chancellor said firmly, and I felt Ambrose's satisfaction flicker and wane beside me. Are there any further issues? I caught an odd note in the Chancellor's voice. He was expecting something. It was Elodin who spoke. I move that Quoth be raised to the rank of Relar. All in favor? All hands save Hems were raised in a single motion. Quoth is raised to Relar with Elodin as sponsor on the 5th of Fallow. Meeting adjourned. He pushed himself up from the table and made his way to the door. What? Ambrose yelled, looking around as if he couldn't decide who he was asking. Finally, he scampered off after Hem who was making a quick exit behind the Chancellor and the majority of the other Masters. I noticed he wasn't limping nearly as much as he had before the trial began. Bewildered, I stood stupidly until Elodin came over and shook my unresponsive hand. Confused? he asked. Come walk with me. I'll explain. The bright afternoon sunlight was a shock after the shadowy cool of hollows. Elodin awkwardly pulled his master's robes up over his head. Underneath, he was wearing a simple white shirt and a pair of rather disreputable-looking pants held up by a piece of frayed rope. I saw for the first time that he was barefoot. The tops of his feet showed the same healthy tan as his arms and face. Do you know what Relar means? He asked me conversationally. It translates as speaker, I said. Do you know what it means? 
He stressed the word. Not really, I admitted. Elodin drew a deep breath. Once upon a time, there was a university. It was built in the dead ruins of an older university. It wasn't very big, perhaps fifty people in all, but it was the best university for miles and miles, so people came and learned and left. There was a small group of people who gathered there, people whose knowledge went beyond mathematics and grammar and rhetoric. They started a smaller group inside the university. They called it the Arcanum, and it was a very small, very secret thing. They had a ranking system among themselves, and your rise through those ranks was due to prowess and nothing else. One entered this group by proving they could see things for what they really were. They became Elir, which means seer. How do you think they became Relar? He looked at me expectantly. By speaking? He laughed. Right! He stopped and turned to face me. But speaking what? His eyes were bright and sharp. Words? Names, he said excitedly. Names are the shape of the world, and a man who can speak them is on the road to power. Back in the beginning, the Arcanum was a small collection of men who understood things, men who knew powerful names. They taught a few students, slowly, carefully encouraging them toward power and wisdom, and magic, real magic. He looked around at the buildings and milling students. In those days, the Arcanum was a strong brandy. Now, it is well-watered wine. I waited until I was sure he was finished. Master Elodin, what happened yesterday? I held my breath and hoped beyond hope for an intelligible answer. He gave me a quizzical look. You called the name of the wind, he said, as if the answer were obvious. But what does that mean? And what do you mean by name? Is it just a name like Quoth or Elodin? Or is it more like Taberlin knew the names of many things? Like both, he said, waving to a pretty girl leaning out a second-story window. But how can a name do something like that? Quoth and Elodin are just sounds we make. They don't have any power by themselves. Elodin raised his eyebrows at this. Really? Watch. He looked down the street. Nathan! He shouted. A boy turned to look in our direction. I recognized him as one of Jameson's errand boys. Nathan, come here! The boy trotted over and looked up at Elodin. Yes, sir. Elodin handed the boy his master's robe. Nathan, would you take this to my rooms for me? Certainly, sir. The boy took the robe and hurried away. Elodin looked at me. Do you see? The names we call each other are not names, but they have some power nonetheless. That's not magic, I protested. He had to listen to you. You're a master. And you're a Relar, he said implacably. You called the wind, and the wind listened. I struggled with the concept. You're saying the wind is alive? He made a vague gesture. In a way. Most things are alive in one way or another. I decided to take a different tack. How did I call the wind if I didn't know how? Elodin clapped his hands together sharply. That is an excellent question. 
The answer is that each of us has two minds, a waking mind and a sleeping mind. Our waking mind is what thinks and talks and reasons, but the sleeping mind is more powerful. It sees deeply to the heart of things. It is the part of us that dreams. It remembers everything. It gives us intuition. Your waking mind does not understand the nature of names. Your sleeping mind does. It already knows many things that your waking mind does not. Elodin looked at me. Remember how you felt after you called the name of the wind? I nodded, not enjoying the memory. When Ambrose broke your lute, it roused your sleeping mind. Like a great hibernating bear jabbed with a burning stick, it reared up and roared the name of the wind. He swung his arms around wildly, attracting odd looks from passing students. Afterward, your waking mind did not know what to do. It was left with an angry bear. What did you do? I can't remember what you whispered to me. It was a name. It was a name that settled the angry bear, eased it back to sleep. But it is not sleeping so soundly now. We need to rouse it slowly and bring it under your control. Is that why you moved to suspend my expulsion? He made a dismissive gesture. You were in no real danger of being expelled. You were not the first student to call the name of the wind in anger, though you are the first in several years. Some strong emotion usually wakes the sleeping mind for the first time. He smiled. The name of the wind came to me when I was arguing with Alxadal. When I shouted it, his braziers exploded in a cloud of burning ash and cinder. He chuckled. What did he do to make you so angry? He refused to teach me the advanced bindings. I was only fourteen and an Illyr. He told me I would have to wait until I was a Relar. There are advanced bindings? He grinned at me. Secrets, Relar quoth. That is what being an arcanist is all about. Now that you are Relar, you are entitled to certain things that were withheld before. The advanced sympathetic bindings, the nature of names, some smattering of dubious runes if Kilvin thinks you are ready. Hope rose in my chest. Does this mean I'm allowed access to the archives now? Ah, Elodin said. No, not in the least. You see, the archives are Loren's domain, his kingdom. Those secrets are not mine to give away. At his mention of secrets, my mind settled on one that had been bothering me for months. The secret at the heart of the archives. What about the stone door in the archives? I asked. The four-plate door. Now that I'm a Relar, can you tell me what's behind it? Elodin laughed. Oh, no! No, no! You don't aim for small secrets, do you? He clapped me on the back as if I'd just made an especially good joke. Velaritas! God! I can still remember what it was like standing down there looking at the door, wondering. He laughed again. Merciful Taylor, it almost killed me. He shook his head. No. You don't get to go behind the four-plate door. But, he gave me a conspiratorial look, since you are a Raylar, he looked from side to side, as if afraid that someone might overhear us. I leaned closer. Since you are a Raylar, I will admit that it exists. He gave me a solemn wink. Disappointed as I was, I couldn't help but smile.
We walked for a while in silence, past mains, past anchors. Master Elodin? Yes? His eyes followed a squirrel across the road and up a tree. I still don't understand about names. I will teach you to understand, he said easily. The nature of names cannot be described, only experienced and understood. Why can't it be described, I asked. If you understand a thing, you can describe it. Can you describe all the things you understand? He looked sideways at me. Of course. He loaded and pointed down the street. What color is that boy's shirt? Blue. What do you mean by blue? Describe it. I struggled for a moment. It failed. So blue is a name? It is a word. Words are pale shadows of forgotten names. As names have power, words have power. Words can light fires in the mind of men. Words can wring tears from the hardest hearts. There are seven words that will make a person love you. There are ten words that will break a strong man's will. But a word is nothing but a painting of a fire. A name is the fire itself. My head was swimming by this point. I still don't understand. He laid a hand on my shoulder. Using words to talk of words is like using a pencil to draw a picture of itself, on itself. Impossible. Confusing. Frustrating. He lifted his hands high above his head as if stretching for the sky. But there are other ways to understanding, he shouted, laughing like a child. He threw both arms to the cloudless arch of sky above us, still laughing. Look, he shouted, tilting his head back. Blue, blue, blue! Chapter 87 Winter He's quite, quite mad, I said to Simon and Willem later that afternoon at Anchors. He's a master, Sim responded tactfully, and your sponsor. And from what you've told us, he's the reason you weren't expelled. I'm not saying that he isn't intelligent, and I've seen him do things that I can't begin to explain. But the fact remains that he is completely off his nut. He talks in circles about names and words and power. It sounds good while he's saying it, but it doesn't really mean anything. Quit complaining, Simmons said. You beat both of us to Relar, even if your sponsor is cracked. And you got paid two span of silver for breaking Ambrose's arm. You got away free as a bird. I wish I had half your luck. Not quite free as a bird, I said. I'm still going to be whipped. What? Sim said. I thought you said that they suspended it. They suspended my expulsion, I said. Not the whipping. Simon gaped. My God, why not? Malfeasance, Willem said in a low voice. They can't let a student get off bird-free after they've voted him guilty of malfeasance. That's what Elodin said. I took a drink. Took another. I don't care, Simon said hotly. It's barbaric. He hammered out his last word on the table with his fist, upsetting his glass and spilling a dark pool of scutton across the table. Shit! He scrambled to his feet and tried to keep it from spilling on the floor with his hands. I laughed helplessly until there was water in my eyes and my stomach ached. 
I felt a weight lift off my chest as I finally regained my breath. I love you, Sim, I said earnestly. Sometimes I think you're the only honest person I know. He looked me over. You're drunk. No, it's the truth. You're a good person, better than I'll ever be. He gave me a look that said he couldn't tell if he was being made fun of or not. A serving girl came over with wet rags, wiped the table clean, and made a few barbed comments. Sim had the decency to look embarrassed enough for all of us. By the time I made it back to the university, it was fully dark. I stopped briefly at anchors to pick up a few things, then made my way onto the roof of Maine's. I was surprised to find Ari waiting for me on the roof despite the clear sky. She sat on a short brick chimney, swinging her bare feet idly. Her hair made a gauzy cloud around her tiny form. She hopped down when I came closer and gave a little half-step sideways that was almost like a curtsy. Good evening, both. Good evening, Ari, I said. How are you? I am lovely, she said firmly, and it is a lovely night. She held both her hands behind her back and shifted from foot to foot. What have you brought me tonight? I asked. She gave her sunny smile. What have you brought me? I pulled a narrow bottle from underneath my cloak. I brought you some honey wine. She took hold of it with both hands. Why, this is a princely gift. She peered down at it wonderingly. Think of all the tipsy bees. She pulled the cork and sniffed it. What's in it? Sunlight, I said, and a smile, and a question. She held the mouth of the bottle up to her ear and grinned at me. The question's at the bottom, I said. A heavy question, she said, then held her hand out to me. I brought you a ring. It was made of warm, smooth wood. What does it do? I asked. It keeps secrets she said. I held it to my ear. Ari shook her head seriously, her hair swirling around her. It doesn't tell them, it keeps them. She stepped close to me and took the ring, sliding it onto my finger. It's quite enough to have a secret, she chided me gently. Anything more would be greedy. It fits, I said, somewhat surprised. They're your secrets she said, as if explaining something to a child. Who else would it fit? Ari brushed her hair away behind her and made her curious half-step to the side again, almost like a curtsy, almost like a tiny dance. I was wondering if you would join me for dinner tonight, quoth, she said, her face serious. I have brought apples and eggs. I can also offer a lovely honey wine. I'd love to share dinner with you, Ari, I said formally. I have brought bread and cheese. Ari scampered down into the courtyard and in a few minutes returned with a delicate porcelain teacup for me. She poured the honey wine for both of us, drinking hers in a series of dainty sips from a silver beggar's cup hardly bigger than a thimble. I sat down on the roof and we shared our meal. I had a large loaf of brown barley bread and a wedge of hard white Dallinier cheese. Ari had ripe apples and a half-dozen brown-spotted eggs that she had somehow managed to hard-boil. We ate them with salt I brought out from a pocket in my cloak. We shared most of the meal in silence, 
simply enjoying each other's company. Ari sat cross-legged with her back straight and her hair fanning out to all sides. As always, her careful delicacy somehow made this makeshift meal on a rooftop seem like a formal dinner in some nobleman's hall. The wind has been bringing leaves into the underthing lately, Ari said conversationally toward the end of the meal. Through the grates and tunnels, they settle in the downings, so things are all a rustle there. Is that so? She nodded. And a mother owl has moved in, made her nest right in the middle of the gray twelve, bold as brass. She's something of a rarity, then? She nodded. Absolutely! Owls are wise. They are careful and patient. Wisdom precludes boldness. She sipped from her cup, holding the handle daintily between her thumb and forefinger. That is why owls make poor heroes. Wisdom precludes boldness. After my recent adventures in Traben, I couldn't help but agree. But this one is adventurous? An explorer? Oh, yes, Ari said, her eyes wide. She is fearless. She has a face like a wicked moon. She refilled her tiny silver cup with honey wine and emptied the last of it into my teacup. After tipping the bottle all the way upside down, she pursed her lips and blew across the top of it in two sharp bursts so that it made a hooting noise. Where's my question? she demanded. I hesitated, unsure as to how she would respond to my request. I was wondering, Ari, would you mind showing me the underthing? Ari looked away, suddenly shy. Quoth, I thought you were a gentleman, she said, tugging self-consciously at her ragged shirt. Imagine asking to see a girl's underthing. She looked down, her hair hiding her face. I held my breath for a moment, choosing my next words carefully, lest I startle her back underground. While I was thinking, Ari peeked at me through the curtain of her hair. Ari, I asked slowly, are you joking with me? She looked up and grinned. Yes, I am, she said proudly. Isn't it wonderful? Ari took me through the heavy metal grate in the abandoned courtyard down into the underthing. I brought out my hand lamp to light the way. Ari had a light of her own, something she held in her cupped hands that gave off a soft blue-green glow. I was curious about what she held, but didn't want to press her for too many secrets at once. At first, the underthing was exactly what I had expected. Tunnels and pipes. Pipes for sewage, water, steam, and coal gas. Great black pig-iron pipes a man could crawl through. Small, bright brass pipes no bigger around than your thumb. There was a vast network of stone tunnels, branching and connecting at odd angles. If there were any rhyme or reason to the place, it was lost on me. Ari gave me a whirlwind tour, proud as a new mother, excited as a little girl. Her enthusiasm was infectious and I soon lost myself in the excitement of the moment, ignoring my original reasons for wanting to explore the tunnels. There is nothing quite so delightfully mysterious as a secret in your own backyard. We made our way down three spiral staircases made of black wrought iron to reach the Gray Twelve. It was like standing in the bottom of a canyon. Looking up, I could see faint moonlight filtering in through drain grates far overhead. The mother owl was gone, but Ari showed me the nest. The deeper we went, the stranger things became. 
The round tunnels for drainage and pipes disappeared and were replaced with squared-off hallways and stairways strewn with rubble. Rotting wooden doors hung off rusted hinges, and there were half-collapsed rooms filled with moldering tables and chairs. One room had a pair of bricked-up windows, despite the fact that we were, at my best guess, at least fifty feet below ground. Deeper still, we came to Through Bottom, a room like a cathedral, so big that neither Ari's blue light nor my red one reached the highest peaks of the ceiling. All around us were huge ancient machines. Some lay in pieces, broken gears taller than a man, leather straps gone brittle with age, great wooden beams that were now explosions of white fungus, huge as hedgerows. Other machines were intact, but worn by centuries of neglect. I approached an iron block as big as a farmer's cottage and broke off a single flake of rust large as a dinner plate. Underneath was nothing but more rust. Nearby there were three great pillars covered in green verdigris so thick it looked like moss. Many of the huge machines were beyond identifying, looking more melted than rusted. But I saw something that might have been a water wheel, three stories tall, lying in a dry canal that ran like a chasm through the middle of the room. I had only the vaguest of ideas as to what any of the machines might have done. I had no guess at all as to why they had lain here for uncounted centuries, deep underground. There didn't seem... Chapter 88 Interlude Looking The sound of heavy boots on the wooden landing startled the men sitting in the Waystone Inn. Quoth bolted to his feet, mid-sentence, and was halfway to the bar before the front door opened and the first of the felling night crowd made their way inside. You've got hungry men here, Coat! Cobb called out as he opened the door. Shep, Jake, and Graham followed him inside. We might have a little something in the back, Coat said. I could run and fetch it straight away, unless you'd like drinks first. There was a chorus of friendly assent as the men settled onto their stools at the bar. The exchange had a well-worn feel, comfortable as old shoes. Chronicler stared at the red-haired man behind the bar. There was nothing left of Kvoth in him. It was just an innkeeper, friendly, servile, and so unassuming as to almost be invisible. Jake took a long drink before noticing Chronicler sitting at the far end of the room. Well, look at you, Coat. A new customer. Hell, we're lucky to have gotten any seats at all. Shep chuckled. Cobb swiveled his stool around and peered at where Chronicler sat next to Bast, pen still poised over his paper. Is he a scribe or summit? He is, Coat said quickly. Came into town late last night. Cobb squinted toward them. What's he writing? Coat lowered his voice a bit drawing the attention of the customers away from the guest and back to his side of the bar. Remember that trip Bast made to Baden? They nodded attentively. Well, turns out he had a scare with the pox, and he's been feeling his years a bit since then. He thought he'd best get his will writ down while he had the chance. Sense enough in that these days, Shep said darkly. He drank off the last of his beer and knocked the empty mug down. I'll do another of those. 
Whatsoever monies I have saved at the time of my death shall go to the widow sage, Bast said loudly across the room, to help in raising and dowering her three daughters as they are soon to be of marriaging age. He gave Chronicler a troubled look. Is marriaging a word? Little Katie certainly has grown up a bit this last year, hasn't she? Graham mused. The others nodded in agreement. To my employer, I leave my best pair of boots, Bast continued magnanimously, and whatsoever of my pants he finds fit him. Boy does have a fine pair of boots, Cobb said to Coat. Always thought so. I leave to Pater Leoden to distribute the remainder of my worldly goods among the parish, as, being an immoral soul, I will have no further need of them. You mean immortal, don't you? Chronicler asked uncertainly. Bast shrugged. That's all I can think of for now. Chronicler nodded and quickly shuffled the paper, pens, and ink into his flat leather satchel. Come on over then, Cobb called to him. Don't be a stranger. Chronicler froze, then made his way slowly toward the bar. What's your name, boy? Devon, he said, then looked stricken and cleared his throat. Excuse me, Carverson, Devon Carverson. Cobb made introductions all around, then turned back to the newcomer. Which way are you from, Devon? Cobb asked. Off past Abbotsford. Any news from that way? Chronicler shifted uncomfortably in his seat while Coat eyed him darkly from the other side of the bar. Well, the roads are rather bad. This sparked a chorus of familiar complaints and Chronicler relaxed. While they were still grousing, the door opened and the smith's prentice came in, boyish and broad-shouldered with the smell of coal smoke in his hair. A long rod of iron rested on his shoulder as he held the door open for Carter. You look a fool, boy, Carter groused as he made his way slowly through the door, walking with the stiff care of the recently injured. You keep hauling that around and folk will start talking about you like they do Crazy Martin. You'll be that crazy boy from Rannish. You want to listen to that for the next fifty years? The smith's prentice shifted his grip on the iron bar self-consciously. Let him talk, he mumbled with a hint of defiance. Since I went out and took care of Nellie, I've been having dreams about that spider thing. He shook his head. Hell, I'd think you'd be carrying one in each hand. That thing could have killed you. Carter ignored him, his expression stiff as he walked gingerly toward the bar. Good to see you up and about, Carter, Shep called out, raising his mug. I thought we might not see you out of bed for another day or two. Take more than a few stitches to keep me down, Carter said. Bast made a show of offering up his stool to the injured man then quietly took a seat as far from the smith's prentice as possible. There was a warm murmur of welcome from everyone. The innkeeper ducked into the back room and emerged a few minutes later, carrying a tray loaded with hot bread and steaming bowls of stew. Everyone was listening to Chronicler. If I remember right, Quoth was off in Severin when it happened. He was walking home. It weren't Severin, old Cobb said. It was off by the university. Could have been, Chronicler conceded. Anyway, he was walking home late at night, and some bandits jumped him in an alleyway. It was broad daylight, 
Cobb said testily. In the middle of town. All manner of folk were around to see it. Chronicler shook his head stubbornly. I remember an alley. Anyway, the bandits surprised Quoth. They wanted his horse. He paused and rubbed his forehead with the tips of his fingers. Wait, that's not right. He wouldn't have his horse in an alley. Maybe he was on the road to Severin. I told you it weren't Severin! Cobb demanded, slapping his hand down on the bar, plainly irritated. Taylor, anyway, just stop! You've got it all mixed up! Chronicler flushed in embarrassment. I only heard it once, years ago. Shooting Chronicler a dark look, Coat clattered the tray down loudly onto the bar, and the story was momentarily forgotten. Old Cobb ate so quickly he almost choked himself and washed it down with a long swallow of beer. Seeing as how you're still working on your dinner there, he said none too casually to Chronicler as he wiped his mouth on his sleeve, would you mind terrible if I picked up the story, just so's the boy can hear it? If you're sure you know it, Chronicler said hesitantly. Of course I know it, Cobb said as he spun his stool around to face more of his audience. All right, way back when Quoth was just a pup, he went to the university. But he didn't live in the university proper, you see, on account of the fact that he was just ordinary folk. He couldn't afford all the fancy living that went on there. How come? the smith's prentice asked. You said before that Quoth was so smart they paid him to stay even though he was just ten years old. They gave him a purse full of gold, and a diamond big as his thumb knuckle, and a brand new horse with a new saddle and tack and new shoes and a full bag of oats and everything. Cobb gave a conciliatory nod. True, that's true. But this was a year or two after Quoth had gotten all that. And you see, he'd gave a lot of that gold to some poor folk whose houses had all burned down. Burned down during their wedding, Graham interjected. Cobb nodded. And Quoth had to eat and rent a room and buy more oats for his horse. So his gold was all used up by then. So he... What about the diamond? The boy insisted. Old Cobb gave the barest of frowns. If you've got to know, he gave that diamond to a special friend of his. A special lady friend. But that's a whole different story than the one I'm telling now. He glared at the boy, who dropped his eyes contritely and spooned up a mouthful of stew. Cobb continued. Since Quoth couldn't afford all that rich living in the university, he stayed in the town next by instead, a place called Amaray. He shot Chronicler a pointed look. Quoth had a room in an inn where he got to stay for free because the widow who owned the place took a shine to him, and he did chores to help earn his keep. He played music there, too, Jake added. He was all sorts of clever with his loot. Get your dinner into your gob and let me finish my say, Jacob, old Cobb snapped. Everyone knows Quoth was clever with a loot. That's why the widow had taken such a shine to him in the first place, and playing music every night was part of his chores. Cobb took a quick drink and continued. So one day, Quoth was out running errands for the widow, when a fellow pulls out a knife and tells Quoth if he doesn't hand over the widow's money, he'll spill Quoth's guts all over the street. Cobb pointed an imaginary knife at the boy and gave him a menacing look. Now you've got to remember, this is back when Quoth was just a pup. He ain't got no sword, and even if he did, 
He ain't learned to fight proper from the Adem yet. So what did Quoth do? The smith's prentice asked. Well, Tob leaned back. It was the middle of the day, and they were smack in the middle of Amray's town square. Quoth was about to call for the constable, but he always had his eyes wide open, you see, and so he noticed that this fellow had white, white teeth. The boy's eyes grew wide. He was a sweet eater? Cobb nodded. And even worse, the fellow was starting to sweat like a hard-run horse. His eyes were wild and his hands... Cobb widened his own eyes and held out his hands, making them tremble. So Quoth knew the fellow had the hunger something fierce, and that meant he'd stab his own mum for a bent penny. Cobb took another long drink, drawing out the tension. Whatever did he do? Bast burst out anxiously from the far end of the bar, wringing his hands dramatically. The innkeeper glared at his student. Cobb continued. Well, first he hesitates. Then the man comes closer with the knife, and Quoth can see the fellow ain't going to ask again. So Quoth uses a dark magic that he found locked away in a secret book in the university. He speaks three terrible secret words and calls up a demon. A demon? The prentice's voice was almost a yelp. Was it like the one? Cobb shook his head slowly. Oh, no. This one weren't spiderly at all. It was worse. This one was made all of shadows, and when it landed on the fellow, it bit him on the chest, right over his heart, and it drank all the blood out of him like you'd suck the juice out of a plum. Lacking hands, Cobb, Carter said, his voice thick with reproach. You're going to give the boy nightmares. He'll be carrying around that damn iron stick for a year with all your nonsense stuffed in his head. That's not how I heard it, Graham said slowly. I heard there was a woman trapped in a burning house, and Quoth called up a demon to protect him from the fire. Then he ran inside and pulled the lady out of the fire, and she wasn't burned at all. Listen to yourselves, Jake said disgusted. You're like kids at midwinter. Demons stole my doll. Demons spilled the milk. Quoth didn't meddle with demons. He was at the university learning all manner of names, right? The fellow came at him with a knife, and he called out fire and lightning, just like Taberlin the Great. It was a demon, Jake, Cobb said angrily. Otherwise, the story don't make a lick of sense. It was a demon, he called up, and it drank up the fellow's blood, and everyone who saw was powerful shook up by it. Someone told the priest. Then the priest went to the constable and the constable went and pulled him out of the widow's inn that night. Then they slapped him into jail for consorting with dark forces and such. Folk probably just saw the fire and thought it was a demon, Jake persisted. You know how folk are. No, I don't, Jacob, Cobb snapped, crossing his arms in front of his chest and leaning back against the bar. Why don't you tell me how folk are? Why don't you just go ahead and tell this whole damn story while... Cobb stopped at the sound of heavy boots clumping on the wooden landing outside. After a pause, someone fumbled with the latch. Everyone turned around to look at the door, curious, as all the regular customers were already there. Two new faces in one day, 
Graham said gently, knowing he was touching on a delicate subject. Looks like your dry spell might be over, Coat. Roads must be getting better, Shep said into his drink, a hint of relief in his voice. About time we got a touch of luck. The latch clicked and the door swung slowly open, moving in a slow arc until it struck the wall. A man stood outside in the dark, as if deciding whether or not to come in. Welcome to the Waystone, the innkeeper called out from behind the bar. What can we do for you? The man stepped into the light, and the farmer's excitement was smothered by the sight of the piecemeal leather armor and heavy sword that marked a mercenary. A lone mercenary was never reassuring, even in the best of times. Everyone knew that the difference between an unemployed mercenary and a highwayman was mostly one of timing. What's more, it was obvious this mercenary had fallen on hard times. Brownburg clung thick to the bottoms of his pants and the rough leather of his boots' laces. His shirt was fine linen dyed a deep royal blue, but mud-spattered and bramble-torn. His hair was a greasy snarl. His eyes were dark and sunken, as if he hadn't slept in days. He moved a few steps farther into the inn, leaving the door open behind him. Looks like you've been on the road a while, Quoth said cheerily. Would you like a drink or some dinner? When the mercenary made no reply, he added, None of us would blame you if you wanted to catch a bit of sleep first, either. It looks like you've had a rough couple days. Quoth glanced at Bass, who slid off his stool and went to close the inn's front door. After slowly looking over everyone sitting at the bar, the mercenary moved to the empty space between Chronicler and Old Cobb. Quoth gave his best innkeeper's smile as the mercenary leaned heavily against the bar and mumbled something. Across the room, Bast froze with his hand on the door handle. Beg your pardon? Quoth asked, leaning forward. The mercenary looked up, his eyes meeting Quoth's, then sweeping back and forth behind the bar. His eyes moved sluggishly, as if he'd been addled by a blow to the head. Ethan say, disguise Caven they. Quoth leaned forward. I'm sorry, what was that again? When nothing was forthcoming from the mercenary, he looked around at the other men at the bar. Did anyone catch that? Chronicler was looking the mercenary over eyeing the man's armor, the empty quiver of arrows, his fine blue linen shirt. The scribe's stare was intense, but the mercenary didn't seem to notice. It's Yaru, Cobb said knowingly. Funny, he don't look like a shim. Shep laughed, shaking his head. Nah, he's drunk. My uncle used to talk like that. He nudged Graham with an elbow. You remember my uncle Tam? God, I've never known a man who drank like that. Bast made a frantic, covert gesture from where he stood near the door, but Quoth was busy trying to catch the mercenary's eye. Speak a Turin? Quoth asked slowly. What do you want? The mercenary's eyes rested momentarily on the innkeeper. Avoy! He began, then closed his eyes, and tilted his head as if listening. He opened his eyes again. I want... He began, 
his voice slow and thick. I look. He trailed off, his gaze wandering aimlessly around the room, his eyes unfocused. I know him, Chronicler said. Everyone turned to look at the scribe. What? Shep asked. Chronicler's expression was angry. This fellow and four of his friends robbed me about five days ago. I didn't recognize him at first. He was clean-shaven then. But it's him! Behind the man's back, Bast made a more urgent gesture, trying to catch his master's attention. But Quoth was intent on the befuddled man. Are you sure? Chronicler gave a hard, humorless laugh. He's wearing my shirt. Ruined it, too. Cost me a whole talent. I never even got a chance to wear it. Was he like this before? Chronicler shook his head. Not at all. He was almost genteel as highwaymen go. I had him pegged as a low-ranking officer before he deserted. Bast gave up signaling. Reshi! He called out, a hint of desperation in his voice. Just a moment, Bast, Kvoth said, as he tried to catch the stupefied mercenary's attention. He waved a hand in front of the man's face, snapped his fingers. Hello? The man's eyes followed Quoth's moving hand, but seemed oblivious to everything being said around him. I am look, he said slowly. I look. What? Cobb demanded testily. What are you looking for? Looking, the mercenary echoed vaguely. I imagine he's looking to give me my horse back, Chronicler said calmly, as he took a half-step closer to the man and grabbed the hilt of his sword. With a sudden motion, he yanked it free, or rather, he tried to. Instead of sliding easily free of its scabbard, it came halfway out and stuck. No! Bast cried from across the room. The mercenary stared vaguely at Chronicler, but made no attempt to stop him. Standing awkwardly, still gripping the hilt of the man's sword, the scribe tugged harder and the sword pulled slowly free. The broad blade was mottled with dried blood and rust. Taking a step back, Chronicler regained his composure and leveled the sword at the mercenary. And my horse is just for starters. Afterward, I think he's looking to give me my money back and have a nice chat with the constable. The mercenary looked at the point of the sword where it swayed unsteadily in front of his chest. His eyes followed the gently swaying motion for a long moment. Just leave him be! Bast's voice was shrill. Please! Cobb nodded. Boy's right, Devin. Fella's not right in his head. Don't go pointing that at him. He looks likely to pass out on top of it. The mercenary absent-mindedly lifted a hand. I am looking, he said, brushing the sword aside as if it were a branch blocking his path. Chronicler sucked in a breath and jerked the sword away as the man's hand ran along the edge of the blade, drawing blood. See? Old Cobb said. what I tell you? Sod's a danger to himself. The mercenary's head tilted to the side. He held up his hand, examining it, 
A slow trickle of dark blood made its way down his thumb, where it gathered and swelled for a moment before dripping onto the floor. The mercenary drew a deep breath through his nose, and his glassy, sunken eyes came into sudden, sharp focus. He smiled wide at Chronicler, all the vagueness gone from his expression. Teverian, Aroy, Sethala Vemela, he said in a deep voice. I... I don't follow you, Chronicler said, disconcerted. The man's smile fell away. His eyes hardened, grew angry. Tetaurin Screolet, Amaun! I can't tell what you're saying, Chronicler said, but I don't care for your tone. He brought the sword back up between them, pointing at the man's chest. The mercenary looked down at the heavy notched blade, his forehead furrowing in confusion. Then, sudden understanding spread across his face, and the wide smile returned. He threw back his head and laughed. It was no human sound. It was wild and exulting, like a hawk's shrill cry. The mercenary brought up his injured hand and grabbed the tip of the sword, moving with such sudden speed that the metal rang dully with the contact. Still smiling, he tightened his grip, bowing the blade. Blood ran from his hand, down the sword's edge to patter onto the floor. Everyone in the room watched in stunned disbelief. The only sound was the faint grating of the mercenary's finger bones grinding against the bare edges of the blade. Looking Chronicler full in the face, the mercenary twisted his hand sharply, and the sword broke with a sound like a shattered bell. As Chronicler stared dumbly at the ruined weapon, the mercenary took a step forward and laid his empty hand lightly on the scribe's shoulder. Chronicler gave a choked scream and jerked away as if he had been jabbed with a hot poker. He swung the broken sword wildly, knocking the hand away and notching it deep into the meat of the mercenary's arm. The man's face showed no pain or fear or any sign of awareness that he'd been wounded at all. Still holding the broken tip of the sword in his bloody hand, the mercenary took another step toward Chronicler. Then Bast was there, barreling into the mercenary with one shoulder striking him with such force that the man's body shattered one of the heavy bar stools before slamming into the mahogany bar. Quick as a blink, Bass grabbed the mercenary's head with both hands and slammed it into the edge of the bar. Lips pulled back in a grimace, Bass drove the man's head viciously into the mahogany, once, twice. Then, as if Bass's action had startled everyone awake, chaos erupted in the room. Old Cobb pushed himself away from the bar, tipping his stool over as he backed away. Graham began shouting something about the constable. Jake tried to bolt for the door and tripped over Cobb's fallen stool, sprawling to the floor in a tangle. The smith's prentice grabbed for his iron rod and ended up knocking it to the floor, where it rolled in a wide arc and came to rest under a table. Bast gave a startled yelp and was thrown violently across the room to land on one of the heavy timber tables. It broke under his weight and he lay sprawled in the wreckage, limp as a rag doll. The mercenary came to his feet, blood flowing freely down the left-hand side of his face. He seemed utterly unconcerned as he turned back to Chronicler, still holding the tip of the broken sword in his bleeding hand. Behind him, Shep picked up a knife from where it lay next to the half-eaten wheel of cheese. It was just a kitchen knife, 
its blade about a hand span long. Face grim, the farmer stepped close behind the mercenary and stabbed down hard, driving the whole of the short blade deep into the mercenary's body where the shoulder meets the neck. Instead of collapsing, the mercenary spun around and lashed Shep across the face with the jagged edge of the sword. Blood sprayed, and Shep lifted his hands to his face. Then, moving so quickly, it was little more than a twitch. The mercenary brought the piece of metal back around, burying it in the farmer's chest. Shep staggered backward against the bar, then collapsed to the floor with the broken end of the sword still jutting between his ribs. The mercenary reached up and curiously touched the handle of the knife lodged in his own neck. His expression more puzzled than angry. He tugged at it. When it didn't budge, he gave another wild, bird-like laugh. As the farmer lay gasping and bleeding on the floor, the mercenary's attention seemed to wander, as if he'd forgotten what he was doing. His eyes slowly wandered around the room, moving lazily past the broken tables, the black stone fireplace, the huge oak barrels. Finally, the mercenary's gaze came to rest on the red-haired man behind the bar. Quoth did not blanch or back away when the man's attention settled onto him. Their eyes met. The mercenary's eyes sharpened again, focusing on Quoth. The wide, humorless smile reappeared, made macabre by the blood running down his face. Tayathan Sethaloi, he demanded. Tayrinte. With an almost casual motion, Quoth grabbed a dark bottle from the counter and flung it across the bar. It struck the mercenary in the mouth and shattered. The air filled with a sharp tang of elderberry, dousing the man's still grinning head and shoulders. Reaching out one hand, Quoth dipped a finger into the liquor that spattered the bar. He muttered something under his breath, his forehead furrowed in concentration. He stared intently at the bloody man standing on the other side of the bar. Nothing happened. The mercenary reached across the bar, catching hold of Quoth's sleeve. The innkeeper simply stood, and in that moment his expression held no fear, no anger or surprise. He only seemed weary, numb, and dismayed. Before the mercenary could get a grip on Quoth's arm, he staggered as Bast tackled him from behind. Bast managed to get one arm around the mercenary's neck while the other raked at the man's face. The mercenary let go of Quoth and laid both hands on the arm that circled his neck, trying to twist away. When the mercenary's hands touched him, Bast's face became a tight mask of pain. Teeth bared, he clawed wildly at the mercenary's eyes with his free hand. At the far end of the bar, the smith's prentice finally retrieved his iron rod from under the table and stretched to his full height. He charged over the fallen stools and strewn bodies on the floor, bellowing, he lifted the iron rod high over one shoulder. Still clinging to the mercenary, Bast's eyes grew wide with sudden panic as he saw the smith's prentice approaching. He released his grip and backed away, his feet tangling in the wreckage of the broken bar stool. Falling backward, he scuttled madly away from the both of them. Turning, the mercenary saw the tall boy charging. He smiled and stretched out a bloody hand. The motion was graceful, almost lazy. The smith's prentice swatted the arm away. When the iron bar struck him, the mercenary's smile fell away. He clutched at his arm, hissing and spitting like an angry cat. The boy swung the iron rod again, striking the mercenary squarely in the ribs. The force of it knocked him away from the bar 
and he fell to his hands and knees, screaming like a slaughtered lamb. The smith's prentice grabbed the bar with both hands and brought it down across the mercenary's back like a man splitting wood. There was the grisly sound of bones cracking. The iron bar rang softly like a distant, fog-muffled bell. Back broken, the bloody man still tried to crawl toward the inn's door. His face was blank now, his mouth open in a low howl as constant and unthinking as the sound of wind through winter trees. The prentice struck again and again, swinging the heavy iron rod lightly as a willow switch. He scored a deep groove in the wooden floor, then broke a leg, an arm, more ribs. Still, the mercenary continued to claw his way toward the door, shrieking and moaning, sounding more animal than human. Finally, the boy landed a blow to the head, and the mercenary went limp. There was a moment of perfect quiet. Then the mercenary made a deep, wet coughing sound and vomited up a foul fluid, thick as pitch and black as ink. It was some time before the boy stopped battering at the motionless corpse, and even when he did stop, he held the bar poised over one shoulder, panting raggedly and looking around wildly. As he slowly caught his breath, the sound of low prayers could be heard from the other side of the room where old Cobb crouched against the black stone of the fireplace. After a few minutes, even the praying stopped, and silence returned to the Waystone Inn. For the next several hours, the Waystone was the center of the town's attention. The common room was crowded, full of whispers, murmured questions, and broken sobbing. Folk with less curiosity or more propriety, stayed outside, peering through the wide windows and gossiping over what they'd heard. There were no stories yet, just a roiling mass of rumor. The dead man was a bandit come to rob the inn. He'd come looking for revenge against Chronicler, who deflowered his sister off in Abbotsford. He was a woodsman gone rabid. He was an old acquaintance of the innkeeper come to collect a debt. He was an ex-soldier, gone tabard mad while fighting the rebels off in Reykjavik. Jake and Carter made a point of the mercenary's smile, and while dinner addiction was a city problem, folk had still heard of the sweet eaters here. Three Finger Tom knew about these things. He'd soldiered under the old king nearly thirty years ago. He explained that with four grains of dinner resin, a man could have his foot amputated without a twinge of pain. With eight grains, He'd saw through the bone himself. With twelve grains, he'd go for a jog afterward, laughing and singing Tinker Tanner. Shep's body was covered with a blanket and prayed over by the priest. Later, the constable looked at it as well, but the man was clearly out of his depth and was looking because he felt he should rather than because he knew what to look for. The crowd began to thin after an hour or so. Shep's brothers showed up with a cart to collect the body. Their grim, red-eyed stares drove away most of the remaining spectators who were idling about. Still, there was much to be done. The constable tried to piece together what had happened from witnesses and the more opinionated onlookers. After hours of speculation, the story finally began to coalesce. Eventually, it was agreed that the man was a deserter and dinner addict come to their little town just in time to go crazy. It was clear to everyone that the smith's prentice had done the right thing, a brave thing, in fact. Still, the iron law demanded a trial, so there'd be one next month, when the quarter court came through these parts on its rounds. 
The constable went home to his wife and children. The priest took the mercenary's remains off to the church. Bast cleared the wrecked furniture away, stacking it near the door to be used as firewood. The innkeeper mopped the inn's hardwood floor seven times until the water in the bucket no longer tinged red when he rinsed it out. Eventually, even the most dedicated gawkers drifted away, leaving the usual felling night crowd, minus one. Jake, Cobb, and the rest made halting conversation, speaking of everything other than what had happened, clinging to the comfort of each other's company. One by one, exhaustion drove them out of the waystone. Eventually, only the smith's prentice remained, looking down into the cup in his hands. The iron rod lay near his elbow on the top of the mahogany bar. Nearly half an hour passed without anyone speaking. Chronicler sat at a nearby table, making a pretense of finishing a bowl of stew. Quoth and Bast puttered about, trying to look busy. A vague tension built in the room as they snuck glances at each other, waiting for the boy to leave. The innkeeper strolled over to the boy, wiping his hands on a clean linen cloth. Well, boy, I guess... Aaron, the smith's prentice interjected, not looking up from his drink. My name's Aaron. Both nodded seriously. Aaron, then. I suppose you deserve that. I don't think it was dinner, Aaron said abruptly. Both paused. Beg your pardon? I don't think that fellow was a sweet eater. You with Cobb, then? Quoth asked. Think he was rabid? I think he had a demon in him, the boy said with careful deliberation, as if he'd been thinking about the words for a long time. I didn't say anything before, because I didn't want folk to think I'd gone all cracked in the head like Crazy Martin. He looked up from his drink but I still think he had a demon in him. Quoth put on a gentle smile and gestured to Bast and Chronicler. Aren't you worried we'll think the same? Aaron shook his head seriously. You aren't from around here. You've been places. You know what sort of things are out in the world. He gave Quoth a flat look. I figure you know it was a demon too. Bast grew still where he stood sweeping near the hearth. Quoth tilted his head curiously without looking away. Why would you say that? The smith's prentice gestured behind the bar. I know you got a big oak drunk thumper under the bar there. And well, his eyes flickered upward to the sword hanging menacingly behind the bar. There's only one reason I can think you'd grab a bottle instead of that. You weren't trying to knock that fellow's teeth in. You were going to light him on fire, except you didn't have any matches, and there weren't any candles close by. My ma used to read to me from the Book of the Path, he continued. There's plenty of demons in there. Some hide in men's bodies like we'd hide under a sheepskin. I think he was just some regular fellow who'd got a demon inside him. That's why nothing hurt him. He'd be like somebody poking holes in your shirt. That's why he didn't make no sense, either. He was talking demon talk. Aaron's eyes slid back to the cup he held in his hands, nodding to himself. The more I think, the better it makes sense. Iron and fire, that's for demons. Sweet eaters are stronger than you'd think, Bast said from across the room. 
Once I saw... You're right, Quoth said. It was a demon. Aaron looked up to meet Quoth's eyes, then nodded and looked down into his mug again. And you didn't say anything because you're new in town and business is shy enough. Quoth nodded. And it won't do me any good to tell folk, will it? Quoth drew a deep breath, then let it out slow. Probably not. Aaron drank off the last swallow of his beer and pushed the empty mug away from himself on the bar. All right. I just needed to hear it. Needed to know I hadn't gone all crazy. He came to his feet and picked up the heavy iron rod with one hand, resting it on his shoulder as he turned toward the door. No one spoke as he made his way across the room and let himself out, closing the door behind him. His heavy boots sounded hollowly on the wooden landing outside. Then there was nothing. There's more to that one than I would have guessed, Quoth said at last. It's because he's big, Best said matter-of-factly as he gave up the pretense of sweeping. You people are easily confused by the look of things. I've had my eye on him for a while now. He's cleverer than folk give him credit for, always looking at things and asking questions. He carried the broom back toward the bar. He makes me nervous. Quoth looked amused. Nervous? You? The boy reeks of iron. Spends all day handling it, baking it, breathing its smoke, then comes in here with clever eyes. Bast gave a profoundly disapproving look. It's not natural. Natural? Chronicler finally spoke up. There was a tinge of hysteria in his voice. What do you know about natural? I just saw a demon kill a man. Was that natural? Chronicler turned to face Quoth. What the hell was that thing doing here anyway? Chronicler asked. Looking, apparently, Quoth said. That's about all I got. How about you, Bast? Could you understand it? Bast shook his head. I recognized the sound more than anything, Reshi. Its phrasing was very old, archaic. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Fine, it was looking, Chronicler said abruptly. Looking for what? Me, probably, Quoth said grimly. Reshi, Bast admonished him. You're just being maudlin. This isn't your fault. Quoth gave his student a long, weary look. You know better than that, Bast. All of this is my fault. The scrail, the war, all my fault. Bast looked like he wanted to protest, but couldn't find the words. After a long moment, he looked away, beaten. Quoth leaned his elbows onto the bar, sighing. What do you think it was, anyway? Bast shook his head. It seemed like one of the Mahal Uret, Reshi. A skin dancer. He frowned as he said it, sounding anything but certain. Quoth raised an eyebrow. It isn't one of your kind? Bast's normally affable expression sharpened into a glare. It was not my kind, he said indignantly. The male doesn't even share a border with us. It's as far away as anywhere can be in the Fey. Quoth nodded a hint of an apology. I just assumed you knew what it was. You didn't hesitate to attack it. All snakes bite, Reshi. I don't need to know their names, 
to know they're dangerous. I recognized it as being from the mail. That was enough. So, probably a skin dancer, Quoth mused. Didn't you tell me they'd been gone for ages and ages? Bass nodded. And it seemed sort of... dumb. And it didn't try to escape into a new body, Bass shrugged. Plus, we're all still alive. That seems to indicate that it was something else. Chronicler watched the conversation incredulously. You mean neither of you know what it was? He looked at Quoth. You told the boy it was a demon! For the boy, it is a demon, Quoth said, because that's the easiest thing for him to understand, and it's close enough to the truth. He began to slowly polish the bar. For everyone else in town, it's a sweet eater, because that will let them get some sleep tonight. Well, it's a demon for me too, then, Chronicler said sharply, because my shoulder feels like ice where it touched me. Bast hurried over. I forgot it got a hand on you. Let me see. Quoth closed the window's shutters while Chronicler removed his shirt. There were bandages stripping the backs of his arms from where he had been wounded by the scrail three nights ago. Bast looked closely at his shoulder. Can you move it? Chronicler nodded, rolling it around. It hurt like twelve bastards when he touched me, like something was tearing up inside. He shook his head in irritation at his own description. Now it just feels strange, numb, like it's asleep. Bast prodded his shoulder with a finger, looking it over dubiously. Chronicler looked back at Quoth. The boy was right about the fire, wasn't he? Until he mentioned it, I didn't under- Ah! The scribe shouted, jerking away from Bast. What in God's name was that? He demanded. Your brachial nerve plexus, I'm guessing, Quoth said dryly. I needed to see how deep the damage went, Bast said unruffled. Reshi, would you get me some goose grease, garlic, mustard? Do we have any of those green things that smell like onions but aren't? Quoth nodded. Caverol? I think there's a few left. Bring them, and a bandage, too. I should get a salve on this. Quoth nodded and stepped through the doorway behind the bar. As soon as he was out of sight, Bass leaned close to Chronicler's ear. Don't ask him about it, he hissed urgently. Don't mention it at all. Chronicler looked puzzled. What are you talking about? About the bottle. About the sympathy he tried to do. So he was trying to light that thing on fire. Why didn't it work? What's... Bass tightened his grip, his thumb digging into the hollow beneath Chronicler's collarbone. The scribe gave another startled yelp. Don't talk about that. Bast hissed in his ear. Don't ask questions. Holding both the scribe's shoulders, Bast shook him once like an angry parent with a stubborn child. Good Lord, Bast! I can hear him howling all the way in the back, Quoth called from the kitchen. Bast stood upright and pulled Chronicler straight in his chair as the innkeeper emerged from the doorway. Taylu, anyway, he's white as a sheet. Is he going to be okay? It's about as serious as a frostburn. Bass said disparagingly. It's not my fault if he screams like a little girl. We'll be careful with him, Quoth said, setting a pot of grease and a handful of garlic cloves on the table. He'll need that arm for at least another couple days. 
both peeled and crushed the garlic. Bast mixed the salve and smeared the foul-smelling concoction onto the scribe's shoulder before wrapping a bandage around it. Chronicler sat very still. Do you feel up for a little more writing tonight? Quoth asked, after the scribe was wearing his shirt again. We're still days away from any true ending, but I can tie up a few loose ends before we call it a night. I'm good for hours yet. Chronicler hurried to unpack his satchel without so much as a glance in Bast's direction. Me too. Bast turned to face Quoth, his face bright and eager. I want to know what you found under the university. Quoth gave a shadow of a smile. I supposed you would, Bast. He came to the table and took a seat. Underneath the university, I found what I had wanted most, yet it was not what I expected. He motioned for Chronicler to pick up his pen, as is often the case when you gain your heart's desire. Chapter 89 A Pleasant Afternoon the next day I was whipped in the wide cobblestone courtyard that used to be called Koyanheil, the House of the Wind. I found it oddly appropriate. As predicted, there was an impressive crowd for the event. Hundreds of students filled the courtyard to overflowing. They peered out of windows and doorways. A few even found their way onto the rooftops for a better view. I don't blame them, really. Free entertainment is hard to pass by. I was lashed six times, singly across the back. Not wanting to disappoint, I gave them something to talk about, a repeat performance. I did not cry out, or bleed, or faint. I left the courtyard walking on my own two feet with my head held high. After Mola laid fifty-seven tidy stitches across my back, I found consolation in a journey to Imre where I spent Ambrose's money on an extraordinarily fine loot. Two nice sets of used clothing for me, a small bottle of my own blood, and a warm new dress for Ari. It was, all in all, a very pleasant afternoon. Chapter 90 Half-Built Houses Every night I went exploring underground with Ari. I saw many interesting things, some of which may bear mentioning later but for now suffice to say that she showed me all the vast and varied corners of the underthing. She took me to Downings, vaults, the woods, delving, cricklet, tenors, candlebear. The name she gave them, nonsensical at first, fit like a glove when I finally saw what they described. The woods didn't resemble a forest in any way. It was just a series of crumbling halls and rooms where ceilings were propped up with thick wooden support beams. Cricklet had a tiny trickle of fresh water running down one wall. The moisture attracted crickets, who filled the long, low room with their tiny songs. Vaults was a narrow hallway with three deep cracks running across the floor. I only understood the name after watching Ari jump all three in quick succession to make it to the other end. It was several days before Ari took me to Below's, a maze of intersecting tunnels. Despite the fact that we were at least a hundred feet below ground, they were filled with a steady rushing wind that smelled of dust and leather. The wind was the clue I needed. It let me know I was close to finding what I'd come here looking for. Still, it bothered me that I didn't understand the name of this place. I knew I must be missing something. Why do you call this Below's? I asked Ari. That's its name, she said easily. 
The wind made her fine hair stream out behind her like a gauzy pennant. You call things by their names. That's what names are for. I smiled despite myself. Why does it have that name? Isn't everything here below? She turned to look at me, head cocked to one side. Her hair blew around her face, and she brushed it back with her hands. It's not below's, she said. It's below's. I couldn't hear the distinction. Blows? I asked, puffing out my cheeks as if blowing out air. Ari laughed, delighted. That's a piece, she grinned. Try for more. I tried to think of what else made sense. Bellows? I made a gesture with both arms as if working a forge bellows. Ari thought about that for a moment, looking up and tilting her head back and forth. That's not as good. This is a quiet place. She reached out a small hand and took hold of the edge of my cloak, pulling it out to the side so the slow wind caught it, filling it like a sail. Ari looked up at me, grinning as if she'd just done a magic trick. Billows, of course. I grinned back, laughing. That minor mystery put to rest, Ari and I began a meticulous investigation of billows. After several hours, I began to get a feel for the place, an understanding of which way I needed to go. It was just a matter of finding the tunnel that led there. It was maddening. The tunnels twisted, leading in wide, unhelpful detours. Those rare times when I found a tunnel that stayed true to its course, the way was blocked. Several passages turned straight up or straight down, leaving me with no way to follow them. One passage had thick iron bars driven deep into the surrounding stone, blocking the way. Another grew steadily narrower until it was barely a handspan across. A third ended with a cave-in of tangled wood and soil. After days of searching, we finally found an ancient, moldering door. The damp wood crumbled to pieces when I tried to open it. Ari wrinkled her nose and shook her head. I'll skin my knees. Shining my sympathy lamp past the ruined door, I saw what she meant. The room beyond slanted down until the ceiling was only three feet high. Will you wait for me? I asked her as I took off my cloak and cuffed up my shirt sleeves. I don't know if I can find my way up to the top without you. Ari nodded, looking worried. Inns are easier than outs, you know. There's tight places. You can get stuck. I was trying not to think of that. I'm just going for a look. I'll be back in half an hour. She cocked her head. What if you're not? I smiled. You'll have to come and rescue me. She nodded, her face as solemn as an earnest child. I put my sympathy lamp in my mouth, shining the red light out against the pitch blackness in front of me. Then I got down on all fours and headed forward, my knees rubbing against the rough stone of the floor. After several turnings, the ceiling went lower still, too low for crawling. After a long moment of consideration, I dropped to my belly and pressed on, pushing my lamp ahead of me. Each twist of my body pulled at the rows of stitches all across my back. If you have never been deep underground, I doubt you can understand what it is like. The darkness is absolute, almost tangible. It lurks outside the light, waiting to rush in like a sudden flood. The air is still, 
and stale. There's no noise except what you make yourself. Your breathing becomes loud in your own ears. Your heart thumps. And all the while, there is the overwhelming knowledge that thousands of tons of earth and stone are pressing down above you. Still, I continued to worm my way ahead, moving by inches. My hands were grimy, and sweat dripped into my eyes. The crawlway grew smaller yet, and I foolishly let one of my arms get pinned to my side. Cold sweat burst out across my whole body as I panicked. I struggled, trying to get it stretched out in front of me. After several terrifying minutes, I managed to get my arm free. Then, after lying there for a moment, trembling in the dark, I pressed ahead and found what I'd been looking for. After emerging from the underthing, I made my careful way through a window and a locked door into the women's wing of the mews. I knocked softly on Fella's door, not wanting to wake anyone accidentally. Men are not allowed unescorted in the women's wing of the mews, especially not during the late hours of night. I knocked three times before I heard a gentle stirring in her room. After a moment, Fella opened the door, her long hair in wild disarray. Her eyes were still half-closed as she peered into the hallway with a puzzled expression. She blinked when she saw me standing there as if she hadn't really expected anyone. She was unmistakably naked, with a bedsheet half-wrapped around herself. I will admit that the sight of gorgeous, full-breasted fella half-naked in front of me was one of the most startlingly erotic moments in my young life. Quoth, she said, maintaining a remarkable degree of composure. She tried to cover herself more fully and met with mixed success pulling the sheet up to her neck in exchange for exposing a scandalous amount of long, shapely leg. What time is it? How did you get in here? You said that if I ever needed anything, I could call on you for a favor, I said urgently. Did you mean it? Well, yes, of course, she said. God, you're a mess. What happened to you? I looked down at myself, only then realizing the state I was in. I was grimy. The front of my body streaked with dirt from sliding across the floor. I'd torn open my pants across one knee, and it looked like I was bleeding underneath. I'd been so excited that I hadn't even noticed or thought to change into my new clothes before I came. Fella took a half-step back and swung the door wider, making room for me to enter. As it opened, the door made a tiny wind that pressed the sheet against her body, outlining her nudity in perfect profile for a moment. Do you need to come in? I can't stay, I said without thinking, struggling against the urge to gawk openly. I need you to meet a friend of mine in the archives tomorrow evening, fifth bell by the four-plate door. Can you do that? I have class, she said, but if it's important, I can skip it. Thank you, I said quietly as I backed away. It says a great deal about what I had found in the tunnels underneath the university, that I was halfway back to my room at Anchors before I realized I had turned down an invitation from a near-naked fella to join her in her room. The next day, fella skipped her lecture on advanced geometries and made her way to the archives. She climbed down several flights of stairs and through a maze of corridors and shelves to find the only section of stone wall in the entire building that wasn't lined with books. The four-plate door stood there, silent and immobile as a mountain, Valeritas. 
Fella looked around nervously, shifting her weight from foot to foot. After a long moment, a hooded figure stepped out of the dark and into the ruddy light of her hand lamp. She smiled anxiously. Hello, she said softly. A friend asked me to... She paused and ducked her head a little, trying to glimpse the face under the shadow of the hood. You probably wouldn't be surprised at who she saw. Quoth? she said incredulously, looking around in sudden panic. My God, what are you doing in here? Trespassing, I said flippantly. She grabbed hold of me and pulled me through a maze of shelves until we came to one of the reading holes scattered throughout the archives. She pushed me in and closed the door firmly behind us and leaned against it. How did you get in here? Lorne will burst a vessel. Do you want to get us both expelled? They wouldn't expel you, I said easily. You're guilty of willful collusion at the very most. They can't expel you for that. You'd probably get off with a fine since they don't whip women. I shifted my shoulders a little, feeling the dull tug of the stitches across my back, which seems a little unfair if you ask me. How did you get in here? She repeated. Did you sneak past the desk? You're better off not knowing, I hedged. It had been billows, of course. Once I smelled old leather and dust on the wind there, I knew I was close. Hidden away in the maze of tunnels was a door that led directly into the lowest level of the stacks. It was there so the scrivs would have easy access to the ventilation system. The door had been locked, of course, but locked doors have never proved much of a hindrance to me, more's the pity. I didn't tell Fella any of that, however. I knew my secret route would only work as long as it remained secret. Telling a scriv, even a scriv who owed me a favor, simply wasn't a good idea. Listen, I said quickly, it's safe as houses. I've been here for hours and no one's come even close to me. Everyone carries their own light so it's easy to avoid them. You just surprised me, Fella said, as she brushed her dark hair back over her shoulders. You're right, though. It's probably safer out there. She opened the door and peered outside, making sure the coast was clear. Scriv spot-checked the reading holes periodically to make sure no one's sleeping in here or having sex. What? There's a lot you don't know about the archives. She smiled as she opened the door the rest of the way. That's why I need your help, I said as we headed out into the stacks. I can't make heads or tails of this place. What are you looking for? Fella asked. About a thousand things, I said honestly. But we can start with the history of the Amir, or any non-fictional reports of the Chandrian. Anything about either one, really. I haven't been able to find a thing. I didn't bother trying to keep the frustration from my voice. To finally get inside the archives after all this time and not be able to find any of the answers I was looking for was maddening. I thought things would be better organized, I groused. Fella chuckled deep in her throat. And how would you do that, exactly? Organize everything, I mean. I've been thinking about it for the last couple hours, actually, I said. It'd be best to do it by subject, you know, Histories, memoirs, grammars. Fella stopped walking and gave a deep sigh. I guess we should get this over with. She pulled a slim book off the shelf at random. What's the subject of this book? I opened it and glanced over the pages. It was written in an old scribe's hand, spidery and hard to follow. It looks like a memoir. What type of memoir? 
Where do you put it in relationship to the other memoirs? Still flipping pages, I spotted a carefully drawn map. Actually, it looks more like a travelogue. Fine, she said. Where do you put it in the memoir travelogue section? I'd organize them geographically, I said, enjoying the game. I flipped more pages. Atur, Modeg, and... Vint? I frowned and looked at the spine of the book. How old is this? The Aturn Empire absorbed Vint over three hundred years ago. Over four hundred years, she corrected. So where do you put a travelogue that refers to a place that doesn't exist anymore? It would be more of a history, really, I said more slowly. What if it isn't accurate? Bella pressed. Based on hearsay rather than personal experience? What if it's purely fictional? Novel travelogues were quite a fashion in Modeg a couple hundred years ago. I closed the book and slowly slid it back onto the shelf. I'm beginning to see the problem, I said thoughtfully. No, you don't, Bella said frankly. You're just glimpsing the edges of the problem. She gestured to the stacks around us. Let's say you became Master Archivist tomorrow. How long would it take you to organize all of this? I looked around at the countless shelves retreating off into the darkness. It would be a lifetime's work. Evidence suggests it takes more than just one lifetime, Bella said dryly. There are over three quarters of a million volumes here, and that's not even taking into consideration the clays or scrolls or fragments from Kelebtena. She made a dismissive gesture. So you spend years developing the perfect organizational system, which even has a convenient place for your historical fictional travelogue memoir. You and the Scribs spend decades slowly identifying, sorting, and reordering tens of thousands of books. She looked me in the eye. And then you die. What happens then? I began to see where she was going. Well, in a perfect world, the next Master Archivist would pick up where I left off. I said. Hurrah for the perfect world, Bella said sarcastically, then turned and began leading me through the shelves again. I'm guessing the new master archivist usually has his own ideas about how to organize things. Not usually, Bella admitted. Sometimes there are a several in a row who work toward the same system, but sooner or later you get someone who's sure they have a better way of doing things and everything starts from scratch again. How many different systems have there been? I spotted a faint red light bobbing in the distant shelves and pointed toward it. Fella changed directions to take us away from the light and whoever was carrying it. It depends on how you count them, she said softly. At least nine in the last three hundred years. The worst was about fifty years ago when there were four new master archivists within five years of each other. The result was three different factions among the scribs, each using a different cataloging system, each firmly believing theirs was the best. Sounds like a civil war, I said. A holy war, Bella said, a very quiet, circumspect crusade where each side was sure they were protecting the immortal soul of the archives. They would steal books that had already been cataloged in each other's systems, they would hide books from each other, or confuse their order on the shelves. How long did this go on? Almost fifteen years, Bella said. It might still be going on today if Master Tolum's scribs hadn't finally managed to steal the Larkin ledger books and burn them. The Larkins couldn't keep going after that.
And the moral of the story is that people get passionate around books, I teased gently. Hence, the need to spot-check the reading holes. Fella stuck out her tongue at me. The moral of the story is that things are a mess in here. We effectively lost almost 200,000 books when Tolem burned the Larkin ledgers. They were the only records on where those books were located. Then, five years later, Tolem dies. Guess what happens then? A new master archivist looking to start over with a clean slate? It's like an endless chain of half-built houses, she said exasperated. It's easy to find books in the old system, so that's how they built the new system. Whoever's working on the new house keeps stealing lumber from what's been built before. The old systems are still there in scattered bits and pieces. We're still finding pockets of books Scrivs hid from each other years ago. I sense this is a sore spot with you, I said with a smile. We reached a flight of stairs and Fella turned to look at me. It's a sore spot with every Scriv who lasts more than two days working in the archives, she said. People down in the tomes complain when it takes us an hour to bring them what they want. They don't realize it's not as easy as going to the Amir history shelf and pulling down a book. She turned and began to climb the stairs. I followed her silently, appreciating the new perspective. Chapter 91 Worthy of Pursuit Fall term settled into a comfortable pattern after that. Fella slowly introduced me to the inner workings of the archives, and I spent what time I could spare skulking about, trying to dig up answers to my thousand questions. Elodin did something that could conceivably be referred to as teaching, but for the most part he seemed more interested in confusing me than shedding any real light on the subject of naming. My progress was so non-existent that I wondered at times if there was any progress to be made at all. What time I didn't spend studying or in the archives, I spent on the road to Imre, braving the coming winter wind, if not looking for its name. The Aeolian was always my best bet for finding Denna, and as the weather worsened, I found her there more and more. By the time the first snow fell, I usually managed to catch her one trip of three. Unfortunately, I rarely managed to have her wholly to myself, as she usually had someone with her. As Diak had mentioned, she was not the sort who spent a lot of time alone. Still, I kept coming. Why? Because whenever she saw me, some light would go on inside her, making her glow for a moment. She would jump to her feet, run to me, and catch hold of my arm, then, smiling, bring me back to her table and introduce me to her newest man. I came to know most of them. None were good enough for her. So I held them in contempt and hated them. They, in turn, hated and feared me. But we were pleasant to each other. Always pleasant. It was a game of sorts. He would invite me to sit, and I would buy him a drink. The three of us would talk, and his eyes would slowly grow dark as he watched her smile toward me. His mouth would narrow as he listened to the laughter that leaped from her as I joked, spun stories, sang, they would always react the same way, trying to prove ownership of her in small ways, holding her hand, a kiss, a too casual touch along her shoulder. They clung to her with desperate determination. Some of them merely resented my presence, saw me as a rival.
but others had a frightened knowledge buried deep behind their eyes from the beginning. They knew she was leaving, and they didn't know why. So they clutched at her like shipwrecked sailors, clinging to the rocks, despite the fact that they are being battered to death against them. I almost felt sorry for them. Almost. So they hated me, and it shone in their eyes when Denno wasn't looking. I would offer to buy another round of drinks, but he would insist, and I would graciously accept, and thank him, and smile. I have known her longer, my smile said. True, you have been inside the circle of her arms, tasted her mouth, felt the warmth of her, and that is something I have never had. But there is a part of her that is only for me. You cannot touch it, no matter how hard you might try. And after she has left you, I will still be here, making her laugh, my light shining in her. I will still be here long after she has forgotten your name. There were more than a few. She went through them like a pen through wet paper. She left them disappointed, or frustrated they abandoned her, leaving her heart sore, moved to sadness, but never as far as tears. There were tears once or twice, but they were not for the men she had lost or the men she had left. They were quiet tears for herself, because there was something inside her that was badly hurt. I couldn't tell what it was and didn't dare to ask. Instead, I simply said what I could to take the pain away and helped her shut her eyes against the world. Occasionally, I would talk about Denna with Willem and Simon. Being true friends, they gave me sensible advice and compassionate sympathy in roughly equal amounts. The compassion I appreciated, but the advice was worse than useless. They urged me toward the truth, told me to open my heart to her, to pursue her, write her poetry, send her roses. Roses. They didn't know her, despite the fact that I hated them. Denna's men taught me a lesson that I might never have learned otherwise. What you don't understand, I explained to Simon one afternoon as we sat under the pennant pole, is that men fall for Denna all the time. Do you know what that's like for her? How tiresome it is? I am one of her few friends. I won't risk that. I won't throw myself at her. She doesn't want it. I will not be one of the hundred cow-eyed suitors who go mooning after her like love-struck sheep. I just don't understand what you see in her, Sim said carefully. I know she's charming, fascinating and all of that, but she seems rather, he hesitated, cruel. I nodded. She is. Simmon watched me expectantly finally said, What? No defense for her? No. Cruel is a good word for her, but I think you're saying cruel and thinking something else. Denna is not wicked or mean or spiteful. She is cruel. Sim was quiet for a long while before responding. I think she might be some of those other things, and cruel as well. Good honest, gentle Sim. He could never bring himself to say bad things about another person, just imply them. Even that was hard for him. He looked up at me. I talked with Savoy. He's still not over her. He really loved her, you know. Treated her like a princess. He would have done anything for her. But she left him anyway. No explanation. 
Denna is a wild thing, I explained. Like a hind or a summer storm. If a storm blows down your house or breaks a tree, you don't say the storm was mean. It was cruel. It acted according to its nature and something unfortunately was hurt. The same is true of Denna. What's a hind? A deer. I thought that was a heart. A hind is a female deer. A wild deer. Do you know how much good it does to chase a wild thing? None. It works against you. It startles the hind away. All you can do is stay gently where you are and hope in time that the hind will come to you. Sim nodded, but I could tell he didn't really understand. Did you know they used to call this place the questioning hall? I said, pointedly changing the subject. Students would write questions on slips of paper and let the wind blow them around. You would get different answers depending on the way the paper left the square. I gestured to the gaps between the gray buildings Elodin had shown to me. Yes, no, maybe, elsewhere, soon. The belling tower struck and Simmons sighed, sensing it was pointless to pursue the conversation further. Are we playing corners tonight? I nodded. After he was gone, I reached into my cloak and pulled out the note Denna had left in my window. I read it again, slowly, then carefully tore away the bottom of the page where she had signed it. I folded the narrow strip of paper with Denna's name, twisted it, and let the courtyard's ever-present wind tug it out of my hand to spin among the few remaining autumn leaves. It danced along the cobblestones. It circled and spun, making patterns too wild and varied for me to understand. But though I waited until the sky grew dark, the wind never took it away. When I left, my question was still wandering in the house of the wind, giving no answers, hinting at many. Yes, no, maybe, elsewhere, soon. Lastly, there was my ongoing feud with Ambrose. I walked on pins and needles every day, waiting for him to take his revenge. But the months passed, and nothing happened. Eventually, I came to the conclusion that he had finally learned his lesson and was keeping a safe distance from me. I was wrong, of course, perfectly and completely wrong. Ambrose had merely learned to bide his time. He did manage to get his revenge, and when it came, I was caught flat-footed and forced to leave the university. But that, as they say, is a story for another day. Chapter 92 The Music That Plays That should do for now, I imagine, Kvoth said, gesturing for Chronicler to lay down his pen. We have all the groundwork now, a foundation of story to build upon. Quoth came to his feet and rolled his shoulders, stretching his back. Tomorrow we'll have some of my favorite stories. My journey to Alvaron's court. Learning to fight from the Adem. Felurian. He picked up a clean linen cloth and turned to Chronicler. Is there anything you need before you turn in for the night? Chronicler shook his head, knowing a polite dismissal when he heard one. Thank you, no, I'll be fine. He gathered everything into his flat leather satchel and made his way upstairs to his rooms. You too, Bast, Quoth said. I'll take care of the cleaning up. He made a shooing motion to forestall his students' protest. 
Go on. I need time to think about tomorrow's story. These things don't plan themselves, you know. Shrugging, Bast headed up the stairs as well, his footsteps sounding hard on the wooden stairs. Quoth went about his nightly ritual. He shoveled ashes out of the huge stone fireplace and brought in wood for tomorrow's fire. He went outside to extinguish the lamps beside the waystone's sign, only to find that he'd forgotten to light them earlier that evening. He locked the inn, and after a moment's consideration, left the key in the door so Chronicler could let himself out if he woke early in the morning. Then he swept the floor, washed the tables, and rubbed down the bar, moving with a methodical efficiency. Last came the polishing of the bottles. As he went through the motions, his eyes were far away, remembering. He did not hum or whistle. He did not sing. In his room, Chronicler moved about restlessly, tired but too full of anxious energy to let sleep take him. He removed the finished pages from his satchel and stowed them safely in the heavy wooden chest of drawers. Then he cleaned all his pen's nibs and set them out to dry. He carefully removed the bandage on his shoulder, threw the foul-smelling thing in the chamber pot, and replaced the lid before washing his shoulder clean in the hand basin. Yawning, he went to the window and looked out at the little town, but there was nothing to see. No lights, no movement. He opened the window a crack, letting in the fresh autumn air. Drawing the curtains, Chronicler undressed for bed, lying his clothes over the back of a chair. Last of all, he removed the simple iron wheel from around his neck and laid it on the nightstand. Turning down his bed, Chronicler was surprised to see the sheets had been changed sometime during the day. The linen was crisp and smelled pleasantly of lavender. After a moment's hesitation, Chronicler moved to the door of his room and locked it. He laid the key on the nightstand, then frowned and picked up the stylized iron wheel and put it back around his neck before snuffing the lamp and crawling into bed. For the better part of an hour, Chronicler lay sleepless in his sweet-smelling bed, rolling restlessly from side to side. Finally, he sighed and threw off the covers. He relit the lamp with a sulfur match and climbed back out of bed. Then he walked over to the heavy chest of drawers beside the window and pushed at it. It wouldn't budge at first, but when he put his back into it, he managed to slide it slowly across the smooth wooden floor. After a minute, the weighty piece of furniture was pressed against the door of his room. Then he climbed back into bed, rolled down the lamp, and quickly fell into a deep and peaceful sleep. It was pitch black in the room when Chronicler woke with something soft pressing against his face. He thrashed wildly, more a reflex than an attempt to get away. His startled shout was muffled by the hand clamped firmly over his mouth. After his initial panic, Chronicler went quiet and limp. Breathing hard through his nose, he lay there, eyes wide in the darkness. It's just me, Bast whispered without removing his hand. Chronicler said something muffled. We need to talk. Kneeling beside the bed, Bast looked down at the dark shape Chronicler made, twisted in his blankets. I'm going to light the lamp, and you're not going to make any loud noises, all right? Chronicler nodded against Bast's hand. A moment later, a match flared, filling the room with jagged red light and the acrid smell of sulfur. Then gentler lamplight welled up. 
Bast licked his fingers and pinched the match between them. Trembling slightly, Chronicler sat up in the bed and put his back against the wall. Bare-chested, he gathered the blanket self-consciously around his waist and glanced toward the door. The heavy dresser was still in place. Bast followed his gaze. That shows a certain lack of trust, he said dryly. You better not have scratched up his floors. He gets mad as hell about that sort of thing. How did you get in here? Chronicler demanded. Bast flailed his hands frantically at Chronicler's head. Quiet! he hissed. We have to be quiet. He has ears like a hawk. How? Chronicler began more softly, then stopped. Hawks don't have ears. Bast gave him a puzzled look. What? You said he has ears like a hawk. That doesn't make any sense. Bast frowned and made a dismissive gesture. You know what I mean. He can't know that I'm here. Bast sat on the edge of the bed and smoothed down his pants self-consciously. Chronicler gripped the blankets bunched around his waist. Why are you here? Like I said, we need to talk. Bast looked at Chronicler seriously. We need to talk about why you're here. This is what I do, Chronicler said, irritated. I collect stories, and when I get the chance, I investigate odd rumors and see if there's any truth behind them. Out of curiosity, which rumor was it? Bast asked. Apparently, you got soppy drunk and let something slip to a wagoneer, Chronicler said. Rather careless, all things considered. Bast gave Chronicler a profoundly pitying look. Look at me, Bast said, as if talking to a child. Think. Could some wagon herder get me drunk? Me? Chronicler opened his mouth, closed it. Then? He was my message in a bottle. One of many. You just happened to be the first person to find one and come looking. Chronicler took a long moment to digest this piece of information. I thought you two were hiding. Oh, we're hiding all right, Bass said bitterly. We're tucked away so safe and sound that he's practically fading into the woodwork. I can understand you feeling a little stifled around here, Chronicler said, but honestly, I don't see what your master's bad mood has to do with the price of butter. Bast's eyes flashed angrily. It has everything to do with the price of butter! he said through his teeth, and it's a damn sight more than a bad mood, you ignorant, wretched onhout fain. This place is killing him. Chronicler went pale at Bast's outburst. I... I'm not... Bast closed his eyes and drew a deep breath, obviously trying to calm himself. You just don't understand what's going on, he said, speaking to himself as much as Chronicler. That's why I came to explain. I've been waiting for months for someone to come. Anyone. Even old enemies come to settle scores would be better than him wasting away like this. But you're better than I'd hoped for. You're perfect. Perfect for what? Chronicler asked. I don't even know what the problem is. It's like... Have you ever heard the story of Martin Maskmaker? 
Chronicler shook his head, and Bast gave a frustrated sigh. How about plays? Have you seen The Ghost and the Goose Girl, or The Halfpenny King? Chronicler frowned. Is that the one where the king sells his crown to an orphan boy? Bast nodded. And the boy becomes a better king than the original. The goose girl dresses like a countess, and everyone is stunned by her grace and charm. He hesitated, struggling to find the words he wanted. You see, there's a fundamental connection between seeming and being. Every fae child knows this, but you mortals never seem to see. We understand how dangerous a mask can be. We all become what we pretend to be. Chronicler relaxed a bit, sensing familiar ground. That's basic psychology. You dress a beggar in fine clothes, people treat him like a noble, and he lives up to their expectations. That's only the smallest piece of it, Bast said. The truth is deeper than that. It's... Bast floundered for a moment. It's like everyone tells a story about themselves inside their own head. Always. All the time. That story makes you what you are. We build ourselves out of that story. Frowning, Chronicler opened his mouth, but Bast held up a hand to stop him. No, listen. I've got it now. You meet a girl. Shy, unassuming. If you tell her she's beautiful, she'll think you're sweet. But she won't believe you. She knows that beauty lies in your beholding. Bast gave a grudging shrug. And sometimes that's enough. His eyes brightened. But there's a better way. You show her she is beautiful. You make mirrors of your eyes, prayers of your hands against her body. It is hard, very hard, but when she truly believes you... Bast gestured excitedly. Suddenly... The story she tells herself in her own head changes. She transforms. She isn't seen as beautiful. She is beautiful seen. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Chronicler snapped. You're just spouting nonsense now. I'm spouting too much sense for you to understand, Bast said testily. But you're close enough to see my point. Think of what he said today. People saw him as a hero, and he played the part. He wore it like a mask, but eventually he believed it. It became the truth. But now, he trailed off. Now people see him as an innkeeper, Chronicler said. No, Bast said softly. People saw him as an innkeeper a year ago. He took off the mask when they walked out the door. Now he sees himself as an innkeeper, and a failed innkeeper at that. You saw what he was like when Cobb and the rest came in tonight. You saw that thin shadow of a man behind the bar tonight. It used to be an act. Bast looked up excited. But you're perfect. You can help him remember what it was like. I haven't seen him so lively in months. I know you can do it. Chronicler frowned a bit. I'm not sure. I know it will work, Bast said eagerly. I tried something similar a couple of months ago. I got him to start a memoir. Chronicler perked up. He wrote a memoir? Started a memoir, Bass said. He was so excited, talked about it for days, wondering where he should begin his story. After his first night's writing, he was like his old self again. He looked three feet taller with lightning on his shoulders. Bast sighed. 
But something happened. The next day he read what he'd written and went into one of his dark moods, claimed the whole thing was the worst idea he'd ever had. What about the pages he wrote? Bast made a crumpling motion with his hands and tossed imaginary paper away. What did they say? Chronicler asked. Bast shook his head. He didn't throw them away, he just... threw them. They've been lying on his desk for months. Chronicler's curiosity was almost palpable. Can't you just... He waggled his fingers. You know, tidy them up? Unbowen! No! Bast looked horrified. He was furious after he read them. Bast shivered a little. You don't know what he's like when he's really angry. I know better than to cross him on something like that. I suppose you know best, Chronicler said dubiously. Bast gave an emphatic nod. Exactly. That's why I came to talk to you, because I know best. You need to keep him from focusing on the dark things. If not... Bast shrugged and repeated the motion of crumpling and throwing away a piece of paper. But I'm collecting the story of his life. The real story. Chronicler made a helpless gesture. Without the dark parts, it's just some silly fa- Chronicler froze halfway through the word, eyes darting nervously to the side. Bast grinned like a child catching a priest mid-curse. Go on, he urged. His eyes were delighted and hard and terrible. Say it. Like some silly fairy story, Chronicler finished his voice thin and pale as paper. Bast smiled a wide smile. You know nothing of the Fae. If you think our stories lack their darker sides. But all that aside, this is a fairy story, because you are gathering it for me. Chronicler swallowed hard and seemed to regain some of his composure. What I mean is that what he's telling is a true story. And true stories have unpleasant parts. His, more than most, I expect. They're messy and tangled, and... I know you can't get him to leave them out, Bast said. But you can hurry him along. You can help him dwell on the good things. His adventures, the women, the fighting, his travels, his music... Bast stopped abruptly. Well, not the music. Don't ask about that or why he doesn't do magic anymore. Chronicler frowned. Why not? His music seems... Bast's expression was grim. Just don't, he said firmly. They're not productive subjects. I stopped you earlier. He tapped Chronicler's shoulder meaningfully. Because you were going to ask him what went wrong with his sympathy. You didn't know any better. Now you do. Focus on the heroics. His cleverness. He waved his hands. That sort of thing. It's really not my place to be steering him one way or another, Chronicler said stiffly. I'm a recorder. I'm just here for the story. The story's the important thing, after all. Piss on your story, Bast said sharply. You'll do what I say, or I'll break you like a kindling stick. Chronicler froze. So you're saying I work for you? I'm saying you belong to me. Bast's face was deadly serious down to the marrow of your bones. 
I drew you here to serve my purpose. You have eaten at my table, and I have saved your life. He pointed at Chronicler's naked chest. Three ways I own you. That makes you wholly mine, an instrument of my desire. You will do as I say. Chronicler's chin lifted a bit, his expression hardening. I will do as I see fit, he said, slowly raising a hand to the piece of metal that lay against his naked chest. Bast's eyes flickered down, then up again. You think I'm playing at some game? His expression was incredulous. You think iron will keep you safe? Bast leaned forward, slapped Chronicler's hand away, and grabbed the circle of dark metal before the scribe could move. Immediately, Bast's arms stiffened, and his eyes clenched shut in a grimace of pain. When he reopened them, they were solid blue, the color of deep water or the darkening sky. Bast leaned forward, bringing his face close to Chronicler's. The scribe panicked and tried to scrabble sideways out of the bed, but Bast took hold of his shoulder and held him fast. Hear my words, manling, he hissed. Do not mistake me for my mask. You see light dappling on the water and forget the deep, cold dark beneath. The tendons in Bast's hand creaked as he tightened his grip on the circle of iron. Listen, you cannot hurt me. You cannot run or hide. In this, I will not be defied. As he spoke, Bast's eyes grew paler until they were the pure blue of a clear noontime sky. I swear by all the salt in me, if you run counter to my desire, the remainder of your brief mortal span will be an orchestra of misery. I swear by stone and oak and elm, I'll make a game of you. I'll follow you unseen and smother any spark of joy you find. You'll never know a woman's touch, a breath of rest, a moment's peace of mind. Bast's eyes were now the pale blue-white of lightning, his voice tight and fierce. And I swear by the night sky and the ever-moving moon, if you lead my master to despair, I will slit you open and splash around like a child in a muddy puddle. I'll string a fiddle with your guts and make you play it while I dance. Bast leaned closer until their faces were mere inches apart, his eyes gone white as opal, white as a full-bellied moon. You are an educated man. You know there are no such things as demons. Bast smiled a terrible smile. There is only my kind. Bast leaned closer still. Chronicler smelled flowers on his breath. You are not wise enough to fear me as I should be feared. You do not know the first note of the music that moves me. Bast pushed himself away from Chronicler, and took several steps back from the bed. Standing at the edge of the candle's flickering light, he opened his hand, and the circle of iron fell to the wooden floor, ringing dully. After a moment, Bast drew a slow, deep breath. He ran his hands through his hair. Chronicler remained where he was, pale and sweating. Bast bent to pick up the iron ring by its broken cord, knotting it together again with quick fingers. Listen, there's no reason we can't be friends, he said matter-of-factly as he turned and held the necklace out to Chronicler. His eyes were a human blue again, his smile warm and charming. There's no reason we can't all get what we want, 
You get your story. He gets to tell it. You get to know the truth. He gets to remember who he really is. Everyone wins, and we'll all go our separate ways, pleased as peaches. Chronicler reached out to take hold of the cord, his hand trembling slightly. What do you get? he asked, his voice a dry whisper. What do you want out of this? The question seemed to catch Bast unprepared. He stood still and awkward for a moment, all his fluid grace gone. For a moment, it looked as if he might burst into tears. What do I want? I just want my Reshi back. His voice was quiet and lost. I want him back the way he was. There was a moment of awkward silence. Bast scrubbed at his face with both hands and swallowed hard. I've been gone too long, he said abruptly, walking to the window and opening it. He paused with one leg over the sill and looked back at Chronicler. Can I bring you anything before you go to sleep? A nightcap? More blankets? Chronicler shook his head numbly and Bast waved as he stepped the rest of the way out the window, closing it gently behind him. Epilogue A Silence of Three Parts It was night again. The Waystone Inn lay in silence, and it was a silence of three parts. The first part was a hollow, echoing quiet, made by things that were lacking. If there had been horses stabled in the barn, they would have stamped and champed and broken it to pieces. If there had been a crowd of guests, even a handful of guests bedded down for the night, their restless breathing and mingled snores would have gently thawed the silence like a warm spring wind. If there had been music, but no, of course there was no music. In fact, there were none of these things, and so the silence remained. Inside the waystone, a man huddled in his deep, sweet-smelling bed, motionless, waiting for sleep. He lay wide-eyed in the dark. In doing this, he added a small, frightened silence to the larger, hollow one. They made an alloy of sorts, a harmony. The third silence was not an easy thing to notice. If you listened for an hour, you might begin to feel it in the thick stone walls of the empty taproom and in the flat, gray metal of the sword that hung behind the bar. It was in the dim candlelight that filled an upstairs room with dancing shadows. It was in the mad pattern of a crumpled memoir that lay fallen and unforgotten atop the desk. And it was in the hands of the man who sat there, pointedly ignoring the pages he had written and discarded long ago. The man had true red hair, red as flame. His eyes were dark and distant, and he moved with the weary calm that comes from knowing many things. The waystone was his, just as the third silence was his. This was appropriate, as it was the greatest silence of the three, wrapping the others inside itself. It was deep and wide as autumn's ending. It was heavy as a great river-smooth stone. It was the patient, cut-flower sound of a man who was waiting to die. We hope you have enjoyed our presentation of The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Copyright 2007 by Patrick Rothfuss. 
read by Nick Podell, directed by Colleen Willits, engineered by Corey Young. Performance copyright 2009 by Brilliance Audio, all rights reserved. For further information concerning this program or other Brilliance Audio titles, please call the following toll-free number, 1-800-222-3225, or visit our website at www.brilliancedaudio.com. No part of this recording may be played for an audience or reproduced in any form. It may not be streamed, downloaded, broadcast, or copied without written permission. Address all inquiries to Brilliance Audio, P.O. Box 887, Grand Haven, Michigan, 49417. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.